tonight at 9 Eastern, May 8th, 2020. It's the David Feldman Show's office hours where guests and listeners of the David Feldman Show mingle without ever getting too close. Come join me. Watch as I try to start arguments. We'll meet authors, teachers, listeners, students, and dropouts, class clowns, jocks, cheerleaders, and nerds. It's high school for pretty people. By that, I mean pretty on the inside. We'll have my comedy friends, my comedy writer friends. Bring your pets. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin will be there. We're going to make another love connection. Well, actually, we haven't been able to make one yet. We're trying. But bring your pets. We saw a baby goat last week, some baby chicks. We need to see your dogs. Yeah, we'll even look at your cat. Cats are welcome. Tell a joke, sing, play an instrument, or lay back and get wasted while we watch. We'll watch you get wasted. Work the chat room. Make some love or business connections. No passwords to join. We opened up the room. It's much bigger now. David Feldman Show's office hours tonight at 9 Eastern. Go to davidfeldmanshow.com. Hit the office hours button to sign up. And we'll send you an invite. You're in. You're in. It's that easy. I'll see you tonight at 9 Eastern, David Feldman Show's Office Hours, where guests and listeners mingle without ever getting too close. Okay, all flight controllers, going to go for landing. Retro. Go. Fido. Go. Guidance. Go. Control. Go. Telcom. Go. GNC. Go. Econ. Go. Surgeon. Go. Capcom, we're go for landing. Eagle Houston, you're go for landing. Over. Roger, understand. Go for landing. 3,000 feet. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. Let us now go to Drain, Oregon, where Carrie Fugit is standing by. She recently had a piece published in the Washington Post in cooperation with the Economic Hardship Reporting Project. She is a writer, and her forthcoming memoir is entitled... A live day, which is about being widowed at the age of 24. Thank you very much for taking time to be with us. Of course. Carrie, you are a farmer and a writer, and you have a, I was going to say an amazing but uh, infuriating story that you wrote about. It appeared in the Washington Post and Stars and Stripes about yeah. a, a safari that you went on that didn't turn out the way you had planned. Let's start at the beginning before you went on the safari. This is an amazing story. You were widowed at 24, I believe, back in 2010? Yeah, it was April 20th, 2010. Ten years ago. Your husband passed away from what? He passed away from an accidental overdose of pain medications that he was receiving for an amputation that he got while he was in Iraq. Right, um, in 2006. In 2006, your husband was serving. He was a Marine. Mm-hmm. And he was sent over. He was. He was sent over to Iraq in 2006. His leg was amputated? It was just one. Um, he actually, so we we were married. 
And then three months later, he was wounded. And when he got back to the States, his left lower leg was pretty mangled. Um, they tried really hard to salvage it. You know, with new technologies during this war, they were kind of practicing new things on these guys if they were willing. Mm-hmm. And his leg salvage was, was one of those things. So it was kind of a gamble in the first place. But after about a year and a half, um, he had osteomyelitis, a bone infection, and then ended up having to amputate anyway. They had to amputate that. And he was treated by the VA? Yes, he was. First, he was treated by the military. He was at, at the time, Bethesda Naval Hospital and Walter Reed were two separate hospitals about 45 minutes apart. And now they've been combined, and they're both now called Walter Reed, and it's located where Bethesda Naval Hospital was. But that's when he was inpatient. And then when he retired four years after he was wounded, he was being seen by the VA. Before the Iraq War, we were told that the VA was the gold standard in medical care. And if you ask (laughs) people who have dealt with the VA if they would like to switch to private insurance, they would prefer the VA. Were you satisfied with the VA back in 2006 and then through 2010? The very quick answer is no. I mean, it's complicated. I think that there are a lot of um, smart people that are doing the best that they can, but I would not say that they have... And, you know, I'm not in the military anymore, so I know that it's changed a little. But definitely back then, they did not have the resources to keep up with the amount of people who were being wounded by that war. Yeah, yeah. When you say you're not in the military anymore, were you in the military? Sorry, no. I'm not affiliated with the military anymore. So, you know, it's been 10 years. Right. This was the beginning of the opiate epidemic, and he was given Mm -hmm. opiates was he overprescribed? I believe so. I'm not a doctor. Um, I was very young and only witnessing this thing that I couldn't quite put into words at the time. They didn't have the term opioid crisis. I wasn't even, I didn't even know we were in the middle of anything like that. I thought it was very personal. It was very personal for us and right. we didn't really realize on a big scale, but, um, From what I could tell, yes. And there weren't a lot of resources back then to figure out how to, if someone's in extreme pain from something like an amputation, which he was, how do you both fix that pain and also take away the thing that is actually killing them? Right, right. Um, And I don't even know if there's an answer for that now. but You write in your piece for the Washington Post that this is the wealthiest country in the world, your mm-hmm. husband was sent off to to fight in Iraq, and he was given a Humvee, and there were improvised explosive devices, IEDs back then. And mm-hmm. our government sent our Marines into battle. Did they have the proper equipment back then? I don't know. Were the Humvees, at that point. Did, the, did the Humvees have the kind of protection? against IEDs back then? I don't believe they did. I believe Donald I don't Rump- think not yet. I yeah. think it was a couple of years after he was wounded. I remember I remember at Camp Lejeune after he was wounded and we moved back briefly a ton of um, reinforced, I guess, upgraded Humvees being shipped into town and that was supposed to help with what happened to him. 
Um, but of course it was a reaction and it wasn't like, like they, it would have been great if they were prepared ahead of time. Right. Yeah, and Donald Rumsfeld made the famous statement, go to war with the army you have, not the army you wish you had. And they were totally unprepared to to Mm -hmm. invade Iraq. They didn't have the the equipment to take on a guerrilla insurgency, totally unprepared. And now we're fighting a war against COVID-19, and we're going to throw trillions at it the same way we threw trillions at the invasion of Iraq. There'll be some profiteering, mostly profiteering, but the people mm-hmm. on the ground, the, the, the first responders, the nurses, the doctors, the people who work for Instacart, who, who deliver our food, they still don't have masks and gloves. Still, mm-hmm. they don't have the PPEs. And if you have a memory, it doesn't surprise you because we sent our our treasure off to Iraq without without the right vests, without the right helmets, without Mm -hmm. the undergirding for the Humvees to protect them from IEDs. And we're seeing it again with this war against COVID-19. But every night here in New York City at 7 p.m., Everybody sticks their head out the window and they bang pots and blow horns to celebrate <laughs> the the nurses, 80% of whom make less than $30,000 a year. But, you yeah. know, we call them heroes for five minutes every night oh, at 7 yeah. o'clock. Oh, yeah, I hate that. <laughs> yeah. How does it feel when you, yeah. when you watch a football game and, uh, you know, they introduce the, the veterans and everybody salutes? And or we see the uh, the blue angels flying over to salute our soldiers. How does that make you feel? It feels like a distraction, like an easy way to make people feel good about something in the moment when really these people need actual resources. Resources. George W. Bush last week spoke out about how we need to unify as a country. And suddenly he's missed compared to (laughs) Donald Trump. All of a sudden we miss George W. Bush. Did you ever meet George W. Bush? I had a chance to meet him. He was visiting the hospital just after my husband had gotten out of surgery. And I opted not to meet him. Because it was a mix. I, again, I was young and wasn't, I didn't have as uh, clear of an understanding of what we had gotten ourselves into, what the country had gotten itself into, his role, all of that. Um, so I felt conflicted about him. Uh, but also, you know, my husband was sleeping and had just come out of surgery and it was more important for me to just be there for him than to meet the president. So we closed our curtain and just, I listened to him talk to the person next door. I've heard stories and this is why I think George W. Bush is absolutely despicable as a man. I heard stories that during the war he would meet with the, 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 the widows and or or people who 
were wounded and he would break down and cry and say, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. It was a mistake. It was a mistake. Please forgive me. Have you heard those stories? Oh, no, but that just made my stomach drop. Yeah. And, uh, and then I've heard, we've seen it, and this is what is so reprehensible about him. He's painting wounded soldiers now, and he's dealing with wounded soldiers. Yeah, I do know about that, yeah. And you can see it. Go ahead. I, I was just going to say I don't know what to make of that. It's, it seems like he's living with a lot of guilt maybe. Um, it, this is definitely not helping anything other than himself probably, though. Yes, yes, his own guilt. Yes, he's helping. Exactly. He's working through his guilt. And so he's painting wounded soldiers and meeting with them and inviting them to his ranch. But if he truly cared about this country, he would go before the people and say, this is this is what happened. I was misled. I was lied to. I was a fool. And this is how these things happen. Don't ever let this happen again. This is this is the roadmap to failure and to come clean and offer up his own truth and reconciliation, which people do do in other countries. They have truth and reconciliation. Instead, we just forget the past and pretend it didn't happen and mistakes were made and we move on. And then there's somebody like Carrie who uh, who's left behind cleaning up his mess. Let's now talk about America. It's 2020. It's 10 years later. You decide to celebrate by taking a safari. Yeah. Why did you go on a safari? Um, it, the 10-year anniversary of his death was coming up, and I, I couldn't think of anything that was, like, big enough to kind of commemorate this date that felt really big to me for many reasons. I mean, I, in that amount of time, went from being a high school dropout to getting an MFA to sell. I sold a book of oh, recently like my life I was part of it was kind of like I guess to maybe reward myself for just getting here Mm -hmm. Um, and then the other part was to you know remember the kids that we were because we knew each other since we were 13 and both of us came from families that didn't have a lot of money so taking big vacations like that wasn't ever really an option for us so I, I wanted to do something that I thought would have been really special for those kids that met so long ago, but also like safaris are cool. And I was, and I found a cheap ticket and I was like, this just feels perfect on every level. So I bought it and decided to do that kind of for that 10 year anniversary. Right. Carrie is a contributing writer for the economic hardship reporting project and her fourth coming memoir is Alive Day. It's about being widowed at the age of 24. And the story she relates to us in the Washington Post is a pre-COVID-19 safari to Kenya. So what happened? So I booked the ticket in like in about in July 2019. Um, really couldn't afford it, but I had some credit cards, and I was like, I'll just figure it out. 
Um, I was preparing to sell a book and I was really, I wasn't sure what was going to happen, but I was like, you know, I'll just charge the credit cards. I'm going to go on this trip. It's been 10 years. Like I'm doing this. Um, started around January, you know, reports from China started to roll in about this virus. Didn't know what to make of it because everything seemed fine. I'm not a fan of our president, but he was saying everything was fine. Our government, like nobody, you know, was really, really seemed alarmed on this side of the planet. So March came around and, you know, we started to have a few people who had it in the States and again, wasn't sure what to make of it because it was early on. The president was still saying it was fine. Everyone in our country was kind of like, you know, It'll be fine, whatever. March what? So we what, decided what, what, to what, go. What, what, it was March 4th. March 4th, <laughs> March 4th. right? So that would be yes. like... Actually... I, it was the day after Super Tuesday. <clears> and <throat> so as I remember, March 4th, you know, people were campaigning and people were out on the street and there was like a cold coming to us from Wuhan. But Yes, all I was thinking about was um, who was going to be the Democratic candidate at that point. I was very concerned about that. I uh, wasn't really thinking much about this thing in China that people, None I mean, of us it seems scary, but like I, uh, who's been in a pandemic? I mean, I could not like looking back, part of me feels silly for going. Cause I'm like, well, duh, like this was going to happen. But when I really think about it, like I had no idea there was no way for my mind to go there. It was, it sounds like something from a movie. Mm-hmm. So, we just, we went and I mean, I figured worst case scenario, we're only here for two weeks. Like it's just two weeks and everything's fine. I mean, I went to a, um, a little travel writing meet and greet thing in Seattle the night before. And it was just writers hanging out, eating from a buffet, which would never happen now. <laughs> yeah. And then we went to Kenya. And so you went on the safari. How many days were you in Kenya for? We were supposed to be there for 15 days. Uh, we ended up being there for uh, 19 or 20. And why did you now. end up being there for 19 or 20 days? So almost, I want to say it's exactly seven days after we were there, Trump announced that the U.S. borders were going to be closed. It just happened so fast. And that was, he said that, and then he backtracked and was like, but people from or U.S. citizens can come back. So that was good. Um, but when that started happening, uh, what happened was, or when that happened, <laughs> flights, they people started canceling them. And as people started canceling flights, um, the airlines started completely canceling the flights. So, you know. What airline were you flying? What, what airline did you fly out on? Delta. Yeah. Okay. And, and Delta so goes directly we, to Nairobi. How do you get there? It's a connection. We connected through Paris to get to uh, Nairobi. All through Delta? Yep. Okay. Well, sorry. They have subsidiaries. So once you get to Paris, I booked through Delta and they work with, you know, other airlines from other countries. So they were working with um, Kenya Airways to get from Paris to Kenya, but it was all booked through Delta with a Delta ticket. And you had to talk to a Delta representative even to rebook the Kenya Airways flight. Okay. It's 
10 days in, it's about March 13th, we're beginning, you know, Biden and Bernie are debating in a bubble on CNN. (laughs) This thing is starting to look bad and you want to get home. What happens? So the halfway about a week in a couple days um, after we were there, Delta emailed me to cancel to say that my flight was canceled. So they, and they also said they had a little recording that was like, we have a lot of people calling right now. Um, if your flight isn't supposed to be booked for more than three or for under three days, please wait. Uh, we will rebook your flight, et cetera. So I was like, okay, I don't want to like add to the chaos. I'll wait. They'll probably re I'm assuming they're going to rebook my flight, but then they didn't. And now so you, I went you, online. Where are you staying? Where, where are you living while this is happening? I, so at this time it was still during my, um, regular, regularly scheduled vacation. I see. So, yeah, my first cancellation was in the middle of vacation. So we were at the hotel we were supposed to be at. Everything was fine. Um, we were hoping to be rebooked for the same date that we were supposed to leave anyway. It was I ended up rebooking the flight for myself, and it was just like an hour later than the other one, so it seemed fine. And then when that day came and we went to the airport, they hadn't called, hadn't emailed. I got to the um, ticket counter and that flight had been canceled too. And that was the point where we did not have accommodations and we weren't sure what we were going to do. So where did you stay that night? We ended up booking an Airbnb. Um, it How was in a neighborhood we'd never been to. How much does it cost? It was about $30 a night. And, um, you know, Kenya is not super expensive. So that did, is lucky. Did Delta, did Delta say, you know, we're going to reimburse you? We're going to make good on no. this? No. No. Um, actually, so after I got off the phone and we booked this, and again, we weren't sure how long we were going to be staying. We had no idea what we were about to plan for. Someone mentioned, you know, call Delta. They would pay for this. They canceled the flight. And I did. And they were like, oh, no, we can't do that. (laughs) We're not doing that. So we were on our own to pay for it ourselves. Delta Um, said they're not going to. This was Delta that said that. Yes. Yes. They said you're on your own. They said we can't help with that. (laughs) And the flight was banned by the federal government? No. So this one, they Delta just canceled it because I guess because people had been canceling flights due to the virus, they didn't want to travel anymore. So Delta was trying to save money they and were just trying started to canceling save. flights. They canceled flights to save money. So the flight, yeah. had they gone ahead with it, you would have been allowed to land in the United States. Yes. Because it would have been a flight in from Paris. This one, yeah, my original one would have been flying through Paris, and then we would have gone to the United States. And airports were still open, um, and as long as you were a U.S. citizen, you could get back to the States. Now, the curveball then, so we booked another one. That one was canceled, too. Booked another one, and then um, the president of Kenya announced that they were going to close the borders to any ingoing and outgoing flights. And then that's when I was like, okay, (laughs) And we had like two days, three days, I think, at that point to figure something out. Um, and then we were kind of in panic mode. And meanwhile, like, you know, I have a farm and I had farm hands here that I was paying well because I wanted to make sure that they were taken care of. But like, that was all I had. 
So we were kind of dipping into that to pay for the hotel, even though the Airbnb is not that expensive. It was like not planned. So then I had to start borrowing some money to pay our bills back home and also potentially plan to stay in Kenya for the foreseeable future. Who did you end up, uh, um, who, who lent you money? Hmm. She, I met her at Walter Reed. Her husband is a double amputee and was wounded in Afghanistan. And we've mm-hmm. been friends ever since. And she, your family, right? Yeah. Yeah. So you're stuck in Kenya. There's an American embassy there. <laughs> you're an American citizen. Yeah. You're, 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 mm-hmm. you're going to be taken care of. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I really lost my sense of security and travel after this trip because I always assumed that the U.S. Embassy, if you were, you know, broke in another country or something bad happened, that they would have at least information to help guide you at, at the very least. And even that, it was just so little um, they definitely did not offer to help with the hotel. Well, what they said was once we become destitute, we could apply for a loan. But we weren't quite destitute yet. <laughs> they wanted mm-hmm. their ideas like start asking around to friends and figure this out. So, you know, that's what we did. But uh, I, I think, would you be a silver star, a, a silver star family? Don't you? Get, I'm considered gold star. Gold star. I'm sorry. Mm-hmm. It's and, okay. <laughs> uh, and one step up, I guess. I'm not sure what's over. Yeah, and, and so you don't get special treatment at our embassy. Oh, I mean, I have no idea. I didn't throw the that card either, so they may not have known. Um, right. Yeah, I don't know. And so you were stuck in in. Kenya for how, how long did, did it take for you to get home? I want to say it was either four or five days. Um, and we got really lucky because we have a friend. So the other thing that was crazy, Delta could not, every time they rebooked the flight, it got canceled. It just was not, it was no longer a reliable airline for us. The most reliable airline that was coming in and out of Kenya at that time was Ethiopian Air. But Ethiopian Air and all other airlines, because all of these people were canceling, I'm assuming it's because people were canceling and they were trying to make money. Flights were being inflated, the prices. So the ticket to get a ticket on Ethiopian Air one way home was $2,400 almost per person. So in order for us to get out before the borders closed, we had to come up with that amount of money each, and we absolutely did not have that. I mean, our credit cards were maxed out. We were very, we just did not have that. So um, we had to ask some uncomfortable favors, and that's when my friend that I met at Walter Reed offered to charge it to her credit card just to get us out. Yeah. You write over at the Washington Post, just as when my husband died, and I'd felt abandoned by my wealthy and powerful country as I buried him, it was friends and family who came to my rescue. Yeah, and, and, every and, time. Yeah, 
And now we have a president who has signaled to the American people, to the states, you're on your own. Yeah, no, I mean, it's, you know, my experience in Kenya was very specific, but I am very aware that people are probably experiencing similar feelings right now for many different reasons because, because related to this pandemic and our administration. It's, uh, we're, we're fighting this war against COVID-19 the same way we fought all the other wars in my lifetime. Well, Carrie Fugit is a, a brilliant writer, and she has a book coming out, A Live Day. It's about being widowed at 24, and she is a contributing writer for the Economic Hardship Reporting Project, and I will link to her piece that appeared in the Washington Post and Stars and Stripes. It's entitled Stranded in Kenya and Abandoned by My Country Again. And it's a powerful piece. What what, what kind of farm do you have? Well, it's I just bought it last year, and it used to be based on pictures from Google Earth, this, like, very beautiful, well-manicured farm. And then when I got it, it was just covered in blackberries and completely overgrown. So we've really been kind of beating that back. But we are hoping to do a permaculture farm with a food forest. We've got goats, pigs, chickens. We have a lot of ideas. We're about to bring honey in. We're hoping in the next year or so we'll actually be kind of um, functioning a little better than we are right now. Right. And the writing, you write every day? How do people follow you on Twitter? How do people get in touch with you? I'm on Twitter, at Carrie Wright. I wish that I was writing every day. I have to say since the pandemic, I've been outside working on the farm or working on other projects a little more. Writing's kind of hard right now for whatever reason. Um, but normally, yes, I write a lot. <laughs> and I do have a book to finish, so I have to get back to it at some point. How great is the economic hardship reporting project before you go? So great. They're absolutely wonderful. I would say that they played a huge role in launching my writing career. Yeah. They tell the real story. And it's Barbara Ehrenreich. It's Barbara Ehrenreich who said, Mm -hmm. when she set this up, history has to be written from the bottom up, not the top down. Thank you, Carrie. Fugit, can you stay on the line one second? Yes. Thank you. But this move comes on a day when the big six airlines and other airlines as well have all applied to the federal government for a piece of the $25 billion in cash grants that will be awarded to them sometime over the next week to week and a half uh, from the federal government. They have all filed those applications.
VJ Das is back. He is a writer, advocate, and data for progress senior policy fellow based in San Francisco, California. He recently worked in Washington, D.C. as an advocate for public citizen, that's founded by Ralph Nader, and Demos. VJ writes on a variety of social and economic justice issues, including universal health care, climate justice, and criminal justice reform. Earlier this week, and this is why I contacted him, VJ and journalist David A. Love wrote a piece in Al Jazeera on the coronavirus's impact on American prisons and jails. Their op-ed, Coronavirus is an Impetus for America to Decarcerate, connects the dots between the outbreak in prisons to America's thirst for mass incarceration. He argues for state and federal politicians and prosecutors to pursue policies that improve prison conditions, break away from tough-on-crime sentencing, and invest in low-income communities and communities of color. Welcome back, VJ Das. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's good to hear your voice again. Didn't the Supreme Court something like five or six years ago rule that California's prisons, the conditions were cruel and unusual punishment and had to be emptied? Yeah, I mean, this is a legacy that California has been wrestling with, as many states are. It's just mass, mass incarceration era. Tough on crime laws created more people to be locked up. It created these unsanitary conditions. Crowding was a focal point in a lot of people's concerns in California penitentiaries. And um, there was a giant push by Governor Brown in response to that ruling to basically realign and reduce California's prison population. And he created this policy called realignment that has been fairly successful in decarcerating the prisons and putting a lot of nonviolent offenders into uh, uh, county and, and local jails throughout the state. So they're still in, they, have they reduced the number of men and women behind bars in California or yeah, they just I mean, spread the them population out? population is drastically reduced. I mean, California, uh, you know, it has the large, it's the largest state, but it, it, it was leading the nation at the time in, um, incarceration. And now, um, they're actually, um, um, I believe second or third, Louisiana and Texas. Um, still have a large prison population. And what is the complexion of California's prison population? You know, it, it's um, like the consequences of a lot of, um, of racist policies in the past, the era of mass incarceration, and largely thinking around tough-on-crime sentencing and over-policing um, tactics, um, they targeted black, brown, and uh, low-income Californians. And um, prosecutors, um, which were bound by a lot of uh, tough laws, were um, forced to, to put together long sentences. And in some cases, some of these offenders, both violent and nonviolent, were put away for a long, long time. Yeah, the prosecutors always say they have their hand tied because of the mandatory minimum sentencing. But haven't they done studies that it's not really the fault of the police, it's the fault of prosecutorial discretion that causes these prisons to be overcrowded and primarily, primarily people of color 
that the prosecutors choose to prosecute people of color, and then they find their hands tied by the minimums? I mean, it's a combination of factors. You have a, a, a law enforcement that's incentivized based upon how they're um, instructed by the state, pol- the local politicians to go after certain types of populations um, and put more patrols on those areas. You have laws in the books that um, penalize uh, homelessness. They penalize um, just being poor in America. And then you have uh, you have laws in the books that make drug possession um, a serious crime. And then you combine that with the fact that low-income people with uh, very poor um, access to the courts are uh, stuck with very aggressive prosecutors who are are per- pursuing their own career interests to uh, to to win cases and lock up a lot of low income folks, predominantly um, kids of color, people of color. You're talking about Amy Klobuchar, her record as a prosecutor, or Kamala I mean, Harris's I'm not, I'm not familiar with her record when she was a prosecutor in Minnesota, but I could just say. Um, this can range from DAs up and down um, to um, to prosecutors in Washington. So are they just ambitious? Do they sleep at night? Are they okay knowing that they railroaded some poor black kid into prison for 25 years to further their career? Are they okay with that? That's an unfair question to ask you. I mean, I can't, I can't yeah. really speak to their conscience, but... I can imagine if anyone would go about their their days, you know, putting um, putting kids away for such a long period of time. One of the consequences of mass incarceration that we still live with is how it furthers um, cycles of poverty, which I don't think is discussed enough. Well, so how does it so it does it, as I understand it, it it. Creates poverty because you're taking the men and separating them from their families. And it puts them into a cycle of debt with bail and not being able to get jobs after they get out. Right? I mean, it's, talk to me about how it creates a cycle of poverty well, once you get arrested, once you get into that system. Yeah. I mean, these are areas, and I've written about this in other articles, um, and David and I have. Um, David Love. Yeah, David Love. Um, and the fact of the matter is that you have um, the possible breadwinners of families being stripped um, from households. You're seeing a long um, duration of their uh, sentencing, some of it for very minor offenses, and you're already layering this on top of areas that are suffering from the consequences of structural racism. Housing is um, housing segregation is the most prominent feature of, of late. And then you couple that with the fact that it's really hard for people coming back out of the system to get jobs. It just creates a downward trend that really um, – predominantly sucks the the potential upward mobility of communities of color, particularly urban communities of color. Okay. Talk to me about COVID-19. You write over at Al Jazeera that 
23 inmates and staff members in U.S. prisons and jails have already tested positive for coronavirus. When you say U.S. prisons and jails, are you talking about federal prisons? Um, I think when we think about the prison, the criminal justice system, you have to think about both federal and state because a majority of prisoners um, in the United States are actually in state penitentiaries. So, you know, we're combining jails, which is, you know, thinking about uh, pretrial, the, the, the accused who deserve their day in court. Um, and then you're thinking about those who are serving time. And so when you throw all that together, you have a, you know, a massive uh, population incarcerated, 2.2 million. You know, America is 5% of the world's population, 25%. Uh, they house 25% of the world's prisoners. So mass incarceration has taken its toll. You couple the fact that we're, as I described earlier, living in the aftermath of tough on crime, mass incarceration, lock them up mentalities towards uh, the law, you are now seeing um, a potential hotspot, which is what's happening um, for uh, infectious disease like COVID-19. And, and COVID-19 is just the latest of a lot of, of um, dis- questions of poor health access in American prisons. And um, this just exacerbates all the current trends of what it means to live in a post and current mass incarceration era. Yeah, you, this piece over at Al Jazeera is amazing. You say if they don't change the warehousing of people in our prisons, we will see 100,000 dead, more dead within the next year. The fact of the matter is, is without a massive decarceration effort, and with with something in which all the public health guidelines require, given the pandemic, which is social distancing, physical distancing, you're going to see the spread. And this was always anticip- this could have always been anticipated, given the the size of the public health pandemic. So you're going to see, and you're going to see this response by governors first working with the jail system for a massive um, release. Of inmates, and then you're going to be looking at governors and others for much more sweeping releases um, for nonviolent offenders. And I would argue both for uh, violent offenders and nonviolent offenders who are over a certain age. And because of the duration of the mass incarceration era, we have to remember there's a massive graying out of prisons. So it's, it's vital that we remember that the same issues that affect folks on the outside, age, um, thinking about all the issues around uh, chronic ailments related to uh, asthma and thinking of those who are at risk, that's the same population that lives inside the confines of American cells and penitentiaries. So you need a massive decarceration effort. The question remains... Um, well, I've heard, I, so I've heard people on Fox... I've heard people. Well, that, I'm sorry. You you said something. Yeah, I've heard people on Fox say the older prisoners are better off being in prison because then they get Medicare for all. If you leave them, uh, if you let them out, then they're on their own and they don't. They're not getting any government health care. You write over at Al Jazeera that they're not getting health care inside the prisons. 
That's a yeah, myth. I mean, it, it, there's the, the big thing uh, we're seeing is with outbreaks, not just COVID-19, but you see with AIDS, you see with um, hepatitis uh, B and C, particularly hep C, because treatment, and this actually cuts into how broken our pharmaceutical system is, a big pharma's role in all of this, um, is there's a cure for hep C. It just costs a lot of money. And that cost is now breaking prison budgets. So you have a world of colliding in which for-profit drug corporations have a cure. You have a certain number of patients inside American cells that have a constitutional right to treatment. And our system is was never meant for that many inmates to be in there in the first place, coupled with an exploding budget when it comes to prison crowding and just mass incarcerations uh, right. toll on the size of the prison population. Right. So we all know, if you watch MSNBC, that there's a cure for hepatitis C. We're barraged by those commercials. But MSNBC, which makes a lot of money after hours on the weekends with lockdown, we will never hear a discussion on MSNBC about how expensive the cure for hepatitis so you know, you never hear, ask your warden about Slovenia or whatever the cure is for hepatitis Havaldi. C. Havaldi, yeah, Havarni, Savaldi. Yeah, you just, yeah. they'll tell you there's a cure, but MS, because they, they sponsor MSNBC, they won't tell you that it's too expensive to administer to our prisoners. The thing with COVID-19, which is so terrifying, you write about this over at Al Jazeera, you say that they've studied about 10 million Americans who've passed through our prison system, 4% have HIV, 15% have hepatitis C, 3% have active tuberculosis. Now, I, I'm i not a, a scientist, but it seems to me COVID-19 would is much easier to spread than HIV, hepatitis C, and tuberculosis, right? Hello? Did I lose you? Yeah, can you hear me? If, if you can't hear me, just just stop me. Um, I talk too much, so please just... No, no, no. It's better, it's better if, you, if people can't hear me. I'm going to assume <laughs> that COVID-19 is much easier to spread than tuberculosis. Yeah, I mean, one of the things about this we're learning every day is how um, infectious this, this virus really is. And that's the actual issue, in particular when we're looking at um, asymptomatic um, um, conditions related to the virus and the ability for people to be vectors. I think a big thing to remember is you may not care necessarily about the health care of prisoners on one end, which I find something questionable would be because how we treat our prison population says a lot about our democracy's vitality. But take that aside, the public health threat given uh, the amount of infection that can basically blossom inside the the, the cells um, creates uh, vectors for disease when they're back, released back to the public, and that's why just decent, good healthcare is not only a constitutional matter but just smart public policy because uh, we need to be able to address um, the ability to, to deter community spread at, at every level. Yeah. You write over at Al Jazeera, and I didn't know this. Uh, let me preface this by saying about a year ago, 
we were calling our detention centers concentration camps. And a lot of people objected to calling the detention centers concentration camps until a lot of Holocaust, Jewish Holocaust historians said, no, by definition, these are concentration camps. And in your piece over at Al Jazeera, you write, and I didn't know this, Anne Frank died of typhus. I always assumed that she had been marched into the gas chambers, but she died from infectious diseases within the concentration camp. Yeah, I think it's really important that we remember how disease is often used as a weapon. And David and I always... Uh, David Love. David Love, yeah, the guy David who... David Love, yes. the co-author of this piece, yeah. fellow commentator and journalist. Um, we always talk about how the ability to use disease and the exposure to disease is often as brutal as inviting physical harm. And I think um, what's really interesting when you just look at the American history, you think about smallpox pandemic, you think about, um, you think about how Native Americans suffered as a consequence of disease from uh, the the colonialist. We're seeing it with the the Navajos right now. We're seeing. Yeah. I mean, the layer of lack, lack of health care, and poverty and um, all the all the layers of the challenges of what it means to be uh, living on the Navajo Nation is is evident now. So the bottom line is this is nothing new. And um, I think it's particularly striking because uh, I'm reminded of what AOC said recently in which a lot of these disparities when it comes to housing, schools, um, you think about health care access, they were bad, and they were bad for people of color and low-income people across the country, no matter what race you were. But what we're seeing now is COVID is just pouring gasoline all over these issues. Especially her district. Match, and we're seeing such despair as a consequence. We're seeing despair and disparity. She represents Queens, which is very not white. A lot of low-income workers, frontline workers, and... There are more COVID-19 cases in Queens than there are in Manhattan, which should pretty much tell you about the income inequality at play with uh, COVID-19. I want to bring in Stephen Robbins. He's the host of Redirect. He's a great man. He is an immigration lawyer in Yakima, Washington, and in between fighting for victims of our detention centers, he works with undocumented Americans and has witnessed what's going on in the detention centers. Stephen, do you want to chime in here? Hey, okay. Stephen. So we were talking about the conditions inside the uh, the prisons in California. If you could uh, tell us what's going on in the detention centers up in Washington. Well, I actually just got a text from a client, well, from his family saying that he's been, he's detained at the Northwest Detention Center um, in Tacoma, and uh, he's been complaining about uh, just basic hygiene, cleanliness. The showers are dirty. Um, he complained to the guards, and they laughed at him. Um, and that's a really common type of anecdote. Um, they're packed in a very tight. They've known about the risks from the beginning. Um, they went through and let a few people out uh, who were high risk, and then everybody else is 
uh, requests have basically been denied. But it's interesting that um, with the people who they deemed high risk, they just let them out, some of them on maybe ankle monitors or things like that. But it just it proves that the whole project is based on a nothingness, right? Like, in reality, we can let these people out and everything's fine. Yeah, right? let me let me stop you there for one second because I'm, VJ behaving like your typical Democrat. Not Bernie. I'm asking questions where we're spelling out the problem but not the solution. Have you noticed that, VJ? This is what the Democrats do. The difference now between Democrats and Republicans is Democrats are willing to acknowledge there's a problem, but and the Republicans deny that there's a problem. But Democrats like Biden, Klobuchar, Harris, they're not willing to offer up the solution. And in Al Jazeera, in your piece, and this is what I wanted to get to, you're saying these prisons and these detention centers have to be emptied out. So what kind and and that's the difficult conversation. It's very easy to talk about the problems inside these prisons and oh we need we need to do something. We need to do something. That's what the Democrats do. Empty these prisons out. What does that look like? What does it look like when you come in and say you're you're nonviolent offenders and you open the doors? I can't imagine that happening in the United States, but what does it look like? What do you see, VJ? Yeah. So, first of all, it's already happening. So, Governor Murphy of New Jersey, second hardest hit nation, uh, COVID nineteen um, population in the nation. They he already ex- put an EO that's releasing a massive amount of their state uh, prisoner population. Um, Governor Polis of Colorado, he's already uh, putting together. Uh, a huge release program, over 40%, I believe. Um, so- 40% of the prisoners in Colorado Correct. are being released? Correct. And it's because of the public health scare related around COVID-19. 40% of the prisoners. Correct. That's And the the other 60% are what, violent or why? I mean, that's the question I think that we have to ask ourselves. I think one is the duration of release. So we got to make sure that folks, when they are released, that um, we're finding ways in which they can get the wraparound services to integrate back into society at, uh, so that they're supported. Number two, that we're able to have a criminal justice policy that helps them s- stay um, out of trouble and then stay also out of prison. Um, Don't and- they find, let me ask yeah, Stephen yeah. that, isn't the idea of flight risk a myth? Don't they find like 98% of people who have been arrested there's no chance that if you if you don't imprison they show up for their hearings don't don't the undocumented americans all show up for their hearings that there's really no need to detain people for a, a crime they haven't been convicted of yeah so the vast majority of immigrants at least show up for their hearings and and on top of that, uh, not that I agree with most uses of ATDs or alternatives to detention, uh, because I, I also see the psychological harm in having like an ankle monitor for, you know, months and months and years sometimes. But there are, there are alternatives that exist. And 
you know, it, what we see oftentimes is an agency like ICE just refusing uh, to use those or to, to use something like check-ins with probation officers or with ICE officers. And so, yeah, I mean, most people just aren't flight risks. I think that the number of cases where people are actually flight risks are pretty slim. So is it is it about money, VJ? Is there money to be made, not just in locking them up, but the bail bonds people and why yeah, don't I mean, yeah go ahead i think the first the first thing i was going to say in terms of continuing my my last thought was the big thing is really trying to push for massive decarceration um for for programs that already exist so uh, for example i wrote last year for truth out that we actually have a lot of compassionate release programs for that elderly sick populations already on the books prior to covid 19's outbreak and states already have these 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 policies, but we just don't see them taking shape. So this is an effort to really think about um, harm reduction, rehabilitation, second chances in a real way. And if you want to focus on nonviolent offenders first, I would say we have to think much more um, uh, holistically about the school to prison pipeline and think just. Sorry about this. That's okay. I'm getting a call, but um, is it an emergency? Back, back? All right. So we got to think more constructively about the school prison pipeline. Um, That's me. I'm just. I thought it'd be funny if I kept calling <laughs> you. It's a, I'm playing a trick on you. My dad is called, so uh, you know, okay. can't 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 turn him away. But um, so. My point being is like we need to spend less money on prisons and more in education. Correct, and we got to think about investing, not divest. Investing in communities, not divesting in communities. Right. Um, I will say, when it comes to bail, there's a reason. Last year, there was a big reform push. A couple years ago, actually, with bail reform in California, there's problems with it. I'm not going to go there, but like the the lobbyists are powerful. The prison industrial complex lobbyists are powerful. These things are done largely at the state level, and there are interests to be lost. Who are they? It's the prison. Gu- it's is it? It's the prison guard union in California, which is way more powerful or as powerful as the teachers union. Is it the payday lenders? Who's who's lobbying for this? I mean, there there are the the payday predatory kind of capitalists, which interferes both payday and uh, bail companies. And the, the industry, industrial book groups that represent them, and then there are, um, and then you just think about all the other layers when it comes to the uh, for-profit prison system, right? Um, which fortunately is shrinking. Um, but my point being is, we just have to keep the pressure up. That's what the article tries to really dig in. It's not just about now we live in a public health crisis, but how we have to think about the ramifications of thirty to forty years of brutal. Um, sentencing regimes and over-policing of communities of color and poor people, and how do we think about ways that are both proactive and and um, looking back in how yeah. we decarcerate and prevent another explosion of our prison population because of like a brutal mentality around criminal justice? Yeah, we have to wrap it up. I think out of 350 million Americans. Two million Americans should be locked up. I think that's a good number. 
And that's what we have about. We have 2.3 million Americans locked up. I think that's a good idea. I just think we're locking up the wrong people. I think we need to aim higher. I think we, we start at the top. We start in the boardrooms and then, you know, and then we fill the prisons up. We have to have a quota of 2.2 million Americans locked up at all times. And we just start at the top. And uh, if there's still some openings, then we lock up. I'll, I'll leave you with Brian Stevenson's quote. It's better to be rich and guilty than poor and innocent. Right. How many millionaires are in prison? I would love to know. We know how many millionaires are in Congress. How many millionaires are in prison? Because the logic then is that millionaires don't commit crimes, but they can't get that million unless they do commit a crime. I'd love to know the number of millionaires behind bars. I bet it's a handful. I bet it's about a hundred. Be an interesting article to write, VJ. Yeah, I mean, the, the question about over-incarceration of some <laughs> is, um, is a long, a long overdue ar- argument to be made. But I think it's a really question of like how fragile our democracy is when we look at a system that just locks up the most disadvantaged right. and people that have been victims of historical inequities. You you know that you can the, the old saying is you can prosecute a ham sandwich, you can also arrest a ham sandwich, and they just it's easier to arrest a poor person, especially a poor person of color than it is to arrest, say, Michael Cohn or anybody else who works for Donald Trump. Uh, I was going to ask the attendees if they had any questions, but I don't see any hands raised. So uh, I'm going to ask Stephen uh, Robbins, do you have a final question that you, you would like to ask? Stephen Robbins from Redirect. What, what do you think is the best way that people can change minds on this because I find that feelings about prison or prisoners are sort of, you know, they're practically in people's DNA. So how do you suggest people get out there and do the, uh, the good work that needs to be done? Um, so first of all, I think the trends are changing. You're seeing a lot more public attitudes towards decarceration Data for Progress has been doing a number of polls, including with Republicans. And you're seeing a majority actually favor decarceration right now. I think there's a trend towards decriminalization of pot that needs to continue. So I think we just need to um, educate people more about thinking about a, a sane criminal justice system that is not overly punitive. And we need to look at ourselves in the mirror because this is a reflection of who we are when we have so many people behind bars that one shouldn't be there or are there for too long for petty things. Yeah. Even the Koch brothers are for uh, well, the one, the one that is left, but they're, they're for criminal justice reform. Even Jared Kushner. Well, he was for criminal justice reform. I think now he, he knows he's not going to prison. So maybe he's changed his mind. VJ Das is a terrific writer. His latest piece is in, Al Jazeera. It's entitled Coronavirus is an Impetus to Decarcerate America. He wrote it with David Love. Very quickly, tell us what your Twitter handle is. 
Yeah, folks, I'm at Vijdas, V-I-J-D-A-S. And Data for Progress, very quickly tell us what Data for Progress is. Data for Progress is a uh, polling and progressive policy shop based in New York, um, opened by a couple of Demos alums, and they're pushing the envelope on a lot of bold ideas and really building um, support um, for these bold ideas on, on, on the left. The one thing is they're, they're, they center their work around polling. So mm-hmm. we want to prove that not only our ideas are good, which we all know they are, but are actually popular between it for everybody. For everybody. Yeah. Like Medicare for all is popular, but, you know, they tell us it isn't. Thank you, VJ. It's, it's been a while. I hope you come back. For sure. Thank you. Stay on the line, everybody. Thank you. You're listening to The David Feldman Show. You happy, self-actualized hump. Let's go to Flagstaff. Arizona, where Eva Putsova is standing by. She's running for election to the U.S. House to represent Arizona's first congressional district. She is on the ballot for the Democratic primary, which takes place August 4th, 2020. And she is endorsed by Howie Klein and the Blue America PAC. Welcome, Eva Putsova. Thank you for having me. So you sat on the city council of Flagstaff, Arizona. How long were you on the city council for? So I served there for four years, from 2014 to 2018. I see. And Arizona's first congressional district, I believe you're represented currently by a Democrat. His name is Tom O'Halloran. Is he running for re-election? Yeah, he's running for re-election, and uh, he was a Republican all his life. In 2015, switched parties uh, to run for uh, the seat in 2016 for the first time. So he's a Republican. So would he be considered like a blue dog? What, what? Yeah, he's a culture of the blue dogs. He's with the blue dogs. And the the, the primaries are in August. Are we going to have primaries? They canceled the presidential primaries here in New York. How do you vote in Arizona, given the the virus? Yeah, we are definitely going to have a primary election. And as you said, it's on August 4th. Uh, we have early voting that starts on July 8th by mail. And in the primary election, most of our votes are cast by mail. Uh, the Secretary of State, as well as uh, a lot of uh, county recorders, are trying to do their best to get um, ballots uh, mailed to people, even to people who perhaps are not officially signed on the permanent early voting um, list. Okay. You were born and raised in Slovakia. And That's correct. You, you have a master's degree from the University of Economics in Bratislava, mm-hmm. Slovakia. And mm-hmm. then you completed a leadership program at Harvard University and Cornell University. How 
to the left are you if you come to us from Harvard and Cornell? <laughs> they don't train. Yeah. They don't train people to to be leftists and, at Harvard, do they? Right. And uh, and as you probably reading it, uh, it says short leadership programs that I participated in when I spent 14 years in higher education. Uh, that was my profession for a long time. Right. And, um, uh, you know, it was a leadership program for um, uh, people who hold administrative jobs in higher education. I see. And they don't, do you, I'm just curious, having gone through Harvard, did you find any leftists there or just neoliberals at best? Mm-hmm. Well, I was not connected to their, you know, uh, political science department, but to their, uh, education department. And, uh, we had uh, actually great session with some psychologists. Um, uh, it, you know, it, it was not, uh, in any way, a political leadership program where we would, um, as, as so many people in academia, I think a lot of deans that participated in the program uh, are progressive people. Um, I don't think, uh, you know, reading too much into uh, the two weeks I spent in the Harvard and, uh, you know, the, the oh, three two months. Weeks, I, two weeks at Harvard. I said short, yes, yeah, short, yeah. short leadership program. Intense, but short. Okay. And you have a background in renewable energy. What did you do in renewable energy? So, yeah, my very first job here in Arizona was working for a, a, a world's largest uh, manufacturer of small wind turbines. And, uh, you know, my, my, um, major, my background is, uh, in the marketing and commerce. And so I was their marketing uh, coordinator. That company is no longer in business. And I spent there, you know, maybe two years. What years are we I, talking about? Was this 2000? We're talking about 2001, 2002. I see. I see. So let's turn to COVID-19 because there doesn't seem to be anything right now more important than COVID-19. It, it is everything. It's Medicare for all. It's mm-hmm. frontline workers. It's how we treat one another. Are we being told the truth? Both parties, are they telling us the truth about what COVID-19, what the challenges are for us when it comes to COVID-19? I think we're getting a partial information. Uh, I don't think that there is, uh, any official, any, any, um, you know, health public, um, officer who is, uh, telling us everything, uh, they know. However, uh, we don't have to have all the information to know just how uh, cruel our healthcare system is. And, uh, you know, one thing is the, is how we handle the crisis and, uh, Trump's administration, uh, can be blamed for, uh, many things, um, in handling the crisis. However, uh, how, you know, what people come to this crisis with what kind of underlying conditions and their own health is a product of decades and decades of the system where we prioritize profit of healthcare industry over people's health. 
So what what do the American people, when you go to Congress and you're endorsed by Howie Klein and people should go to Eva, Eva for Congress.com and donate money. If you're an American citizen, you can, you're only allowed to donate money. What, if you're, you went to Congress, what would you tell your constituents? What do we need to, to know about COVID-19 and what we're in for? What are we looking at? in the next two years? Well, I think COVID-19 illuminates uh, the kind of injustices that lead to uh, way worse outcomes uh, for people who uh, get infected. And so while we are from, um, I guess, the immediate perspective dealing with, you know, for or focusing on testing people and then getting treatment and then getting um, vaccination ready. We also cannot forget that this is one outbreak and many more similar can come. And then those injustices who that are part of just our structures need to be addressed if we want to uh, be a better society. Can you level with the American people? You know, Franklin Roosevelt, the myth of Franklin Roosevelt is he leveled with the American people when it came to the Great Depression and he leveled with the American people when it came to the lead up to World War II, although he didn't. When he talked about the Lend-Lease program, he was kind of misleading us about where he wanted to take us. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter supposedly leveled with us about the energy crisis in the late 70s. And the what was received wisdom from that is that the American people cannot be leveled with it. They're children, and you cannot tell them the truth about a war, how it's going, and you cannot tell them the truth about COVID-19 because they won't accept it. The, I think the, we have to tell truth. But, but, but mm-hmm. can you get elected telling the American people the truth as opposed to a bedtime story. I mean, this virus hasn't even hit yet. We're mm-hmm. just, we're in the second inning. If we're lucky, it's the second inning. And already the stock market is supposedly going up and we're reopening the economy and we're going to have a vaccine and it's all, it, it's over. It lasted a month. It's over. Let's move on. How do you tell the American people the truth about the virus? What is the truth about the virus? And can you get elected telling the American people the truth about this? Well, I guess the question is, can you get elected uh, saying anything uh, about anything? I I don't I don't necessarily think that people uh, vote for others based on whether they are being told the truth or not. Uh, I don't think that's the way uh, voters calculate in you know, decide who to vote for. Of course, people have preferences for what they want to hear and what they want the reality to be. I still think that we have to uh, tell the truth. I just heard a horrible story from a local shelter, a homeless shelter, where uh, there are, you know, 62 um, clients uh, and uh, they just did testing this Saturday and 18 of these uh, uh, clients came out positive. So the, the reality is that, you know, because we are not testing, we don't really know how widespread the virus is. Um, 
And we know that uh, people who are vulnerable have bad outcomes. Um, we know, you know, this district, and you probably know this, is uh, also includes the Navajo Nation that right. has some of the highest death rates. Um, how is right the, there's a power. lockdown in New Mexico? Is uh, yeah. the Navajo? How is that affecting Arizona? Well, it's the same thing on the Navajo Nation. They actually during the weekends they have curfews, and uh, everything is locked down. Because the population is super vulnerable, they have a higher rate of diabetes. They have older population. Uh, it's difficult to actually for people to wash their hands. Thirty percent of people who live on the Navajo Nation what don't have running water. If, if you were you're running in Arizona's first mm-hmm. congressional district, what percentage of that district would be Native American? So 25% of people who live in uh, Arizona's first district are Native American. And they would be Navajos? And uh, there are actually 13 different tribes, but the largest is the Navajo, uh, the Navajo Nation. And And are they allowed to vote? Do they vote for? And they vote, they vote, they vote at a lower rate than other populations in, um, the federal election, whether it's primary or um, or the general, but they do vote. Uh, and this district has the highest number of Native Americans living of any district. In America. There is no, in America. This right. is the largest uh, population of Native Americans are in this district. And so, so what, these are and, the challenges. And so the Native Americans, you, you have the, the highest percentage of Native Americans in your district. Uh, Highest number. Highest number. Well, I guess so. Then percentage, because each district is about the same. And they have their own nation, right? Mm -hmm. They have their reservations where they get to vote for their leaders. They're still American citizens. Correct. And they vote. And they vote. And they Mm -hmm. vote. How do you campaign if it's being locked Mm -hmm. down due to the virus? How do you get to them? Well, you know, campaigning in this district, which is 10th or 11th, the largest in the country, you know, whether uh, things are locked down or not locked down, is not the same as campaigning in uh, urban, more densely populated districts. So you have to rely on uh, the distance mode of communication, um, online organizing, uh, texting, phone banking. Uh, reaching people uh, in the cyberspace, essentially. Mm-hmm. Um, of course, that is also complicated because uh, there is a lack of cell phone coverage and there is a lack of uh, access to internet on the reservation. Um, so th- during normal times, uh, a lot of people in this district would uh, visit with chapter houses on the Navajo Nation and then you know go visit with other tribes uh, in person it is um, very, you know, I, I actually don't believe that you can develop meaningful relationships during uh, campaigning, right? So mm-hmm. it is um, a long-term kind of proposition. I worked very closely with uh, people who, you know, a lot of Native uh, people who live in Flagstaff and they have obviously their families uh, on the reservation, and we worked on things like, um, you know, environmental uh, protection. Uh, there is a ski resort just outside of the town, uh, and the ski resort is on one of the uh, sacred mountains. Um, it's a sacred mountain for 13 tribes, 
and uh, there they've been um, doing art, making artificial snow from uh, uh, reclaimed water from sewage, uh, which the tribes oppose. So I work with them, and I oppose that you know uh, snow making effort. If you were yeah, to so- drive, if you were to take me on a tour of your district and show mm-hmm. me how the the tribes live, what would I see? You would see uh, dirt roads that are, um, you know, get flooded. Uh, you would see uh, little towns that have maybe one grocery store and, you know, very underdeveloped um, kind of economic infrastructure. Um, a lot of housing is uh, substandard. There's uh, quite a bit of overcrowding of people, and that's another reason why COVID-19 uh, hits uh, the native communities uh, so hard. Uh, kids um, spend two, three hours on on a school bus going, I mean, obviously not now because everything is shut down, but under normal times, going to and from school. So um, it, it, it is, you are would the see schools a not on the, Is that because the schools are not on the reservation? No, they are on the reservation, but there are not enough of them. And so they are, uh, you know, the distances are great. You know, in this district, um, it takes eight hours to drive from one end to another to drive. And that's a huge area. It's, um, you know, the, the, this is the two, three times the size of Slovakia, the country where I come from. Um, so, so you would see a lot of poverty. That doesn't mean that, you know, I mean, people like everywhere, you know, they, they have very rich lives, right? But the, some of the basics that, um, you know, are, it's obvious that these, these basics are not in place and they're not in place because we have never prioritized them. Yes, it's going to be, it's expensive to pave the roads. Yes, it's expensive to have uh, schools that serve small student populations. And yes, it's expensive to have, uh, to deliver healthcare uh, in this vast area, but that's the responsibility that we have and we have been falling short. Not to mention the kind of racial profiling native people experience in the border towns. Here in Flagstaff, 50% of all arrests are Native Americans. We arrest people because they deal with mental illness and because they're poor. And they stay in jail because they cannot pay uh, for the bail. In Canada, there's been an epidemic, at least it's probably been going on forever, but it's being reported now, of white people attacking Native American women and Native American men. It seems to be getting a lot of attention finally in Canada. We don't really hear about uh, violence against Native Americans mm-hmm. in this country. It's it's underreported. It is underreported, and there is um, actually huge effort um, and now it is a lot of, actually it's, it's both here in the state in Arizona, but also nationally, um, you know, there are a lot of murdered and missing women, uh, uh indigenous women. Um, and it, it is, you know, we are not, we don't have the kind of, um, tracking system, but also we, because we don't, when somebody's missing, 
when it comes to native people, we, we do not spend the same resources in trying to, um, uh, you know, locate them. And, um, you know, it's all kind of connected to the uh, difficulty that we have with, um, you know, federal authority on um, the reservation and also uh, with uh, white on native crime. Right, uh, it's 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 very complicated, and, uh, and it's complicated uh, by design. So it leaves uh, the indigenous communities so vulnerable. Yeah, Are, is the first district on the border with Mexico? No, we, we don't go all the way south. You don't go south. Are there detention centers? Do you do you, do you have any detention centers in your district? Yes, there is, uh, in Eloyd, um, there is detention center, um, and obviously immigration is still a big, big issue in our district. Uh, you know, ICE has been, uh, you know, traumatizing and terrorizing, uh, immigrant communities, uh, for now years. And, um, you know, people are being detained in, uh, you know, what I think are horrible, inhumane uh, conditions. On this, show, um, yeah, we, we, on this show, we call for the abolition of ICE. We've had mm-hmm. a couple of candidates from uh, the 2018 midterms who ran mm-hmm. on a policy of el- eliminating ICE. I think AOC actually has called for the elimination of ICE. Yep. Do you believe ICE should be eliminated? Absolutely. We should actually end the, um, we should abolish ICE because ICE lost its, um, moral authority to, um, to operate. We need to bring all the immigration agencies back under U.S. Department of Justice. Now they are under Homeland Security. And that's, has not been the case all along. It's been just the case since 2003. Um, and because we moved everything under Homeland Security, I think that's also the reason why we see such a uh, emphasis on enforcement and detention. And we don't see our emphasis and money spent on processing cases. I think we should end the use of detention in immigration enforcement. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we should also end all for-profit uh, detention centers, whether they're private or privately managed. Um, right. How do you explain to the American people that what we do to others, we eventually do to ourselves? I mean, it's out of mm-hmm. sight, out of mind so much of what we've done in my lifetime has been an abstraction and then put under the, beneath the rug. You know, Vietnam was an abstraction except for the, mm-hmm. the men and women who served over there and then they were warehoused over at the VA and never heard from again unless you stumbled upon them on the streets. Iraq was an abstraction. Shock and awe looked good on CNN and then we lose interest in it and if you ask Americans who protested Iraq who the leader is of Iraq, they can't tell you. They can't tell you who's running Afghanistan. It's still going on. This is almost a dress rehearsal for how we're treating ourselves. Mm-hmm. How, how, you know, how we treat Iraq and Afghanistan, how we treat that migrant caravan last year, how we treat the kids in the detention centers. 
the reason we can treat people like that is because we have media that don't report and they don't show the real news. Um, it, it, I think one of the big, you know, it's, it's, it's easy to say, well, Americans are just kind of, uh, you know, not paying attention. They are paying attention, but let's look, uh, what is being broadcast and, you know, on our major channels. You don't, you don't ever see anything, any reports from, um, the African countries. You don't, you don't see reports from Afghanistan. Than on how they're dealing with COVID or how, um, you know, what's going on around the globe. But we don't get um, reports around this country. We don't get reports of what's going right, on in right. America because it's, sure. it's uncomfortable to, to focus on the detention centers. It's not sexy. You, you, you avert exactly. your it's eyes. It's not sexy. It's not that sexy and it doesn't bring the, uh, the money. And we have our major media, our uh, major corporations and their interest is profit. It's not news reporting. How come we have, when you, when you turn any ch- major channel, it's always, you know, talking heads, oftentimes the same, the moderators, uh, interviewing each other about their opinions about things. You don't see a reporter uh, in the field um, interviewing people, asking them what's going on. It's very rare right. uh, when we see that. And right. I, I, I want to interrupt problem. you for one second. I don't know if you can hear this, but it's 7 o'clock. And Manhattan is, can you hear that? They're cheering the uh, the first responders, the nurses and the doctors. Do you hear that? And in many ways, it's what Andrew Basevic taught me is cheap grace. You know, we cheer you for five minutes mm-hmm. at seven o'clock, and uh, but we're not going to pay you what you deserve. I interrupted you, but at at, uh, at seven o'clock every night here in New York, mm-hmm. they they cheer on the healthcare workers, and. Yeah. Uh, it's beginning to seem like cheap grace. It's, yeah. uh, and uh, at the same time, the same uh, healthcare workers are their benefits are being uh, decreased. I just heard from a, a story from a local hospital that um, the 401k match uh, is no longer going to be available for the healthcare workers. So while they are uh, risking their lives and uh, you know doing this very important work. Uh, you know, the, the for-profit healthcare system, um, decides that this is the time to cut their benefits. And the Blue Angels will fly over the healthcare workers to salute them. Right. When that money could be better spent getting them PPEs and, and, uh, masks. But that's a whole other conversation. We're treating them the same way we treat our soldiers. Mm-hmm. We, we call them heroes and we send them off. To, to fight this virus without a plan, without recognizing who the enemy is, throwing money at it, but the profiteers are the ones who benefit, not the not the people on the ground. Let's get back to my question about COVID nineteen. What do the American people need to know about the virus? Mm-hmm. About the virus that and how their lives. Mm-hmm are going to be changed, well, whether the, the government is, likes it or not. Right. The the virus is here. We have not seen the worst of it. And uh, 
opening up the economy um, is very dangerous. Um, we, we will see the death rate increase. My understanding is that, you know, it's, you know, we can see even the second, uh, third or more waves of this. And uh, until we have some like wide, widely available testing um, and then, you know, how we move, how we interact, that all should be very carefully considered. And there are no real plans. Uh, I think we just heard today about uh, uh, a, a paper that's been um, withheld <laughs> by uh, Trump administration that would outline some of these best practices for local governments on how to perhaps uh, move forward uh, with some opening, but um, you know that's not going to be released. Um, uh, so I think we are being lied because because it's all about uh, the profit-making of those corporate interests that um, want to, you know, capital, even capitalize on the crisis. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We're talking with Eva Potseva. She's running for Arizona's first congressional district. The Democratic primary is in August. And we have invited the listeners to join us via Zoom and or phone And if they would like to ask a question, they can raise their hands right now if they want to join the conversation. She is endorsed, Eva is endorsed by Howie Klein from Down With Tyranny and the Blue America Pack. If you're an American citizen, you can donate money by going to, is it Eva Eva for Congress? Is that the website? Correct. Eva for Congress. What was your number one priority as a candidate before COVID-19 and what is it now? How has it changed? Um, It it didn't really change. My really the top two issues, uh, it's uh, Medicare for all and, um, you know, addressing climate uh, change through the Green New Deal uh, with immigration overhaul just coming in, you know, kind of rounding up the top three. Um, to me, these issues are connected. Um, in fact, all, you know, all the progressive issues that I, uh, support and will want to champion are connected. You know, I oppose uh, wars of choice. And, uh, you know, we cannot say that, uh, you know, the war economy, uh, somehow is not connected to immigration or climate change. Um, and even healthcare. Uh, so, you know, the COVID-19, as I said, just kind of eliminated the urgency for a universal single payer healthcare system where we eliminate the health insurance companies and, uh, we actually don't treat healthcare as, um, a profit industry first, but we, we treat it as a human right. And, and so, and then, of course, you know, COVID, if COVID-19 is, we consider that as a big crisis, then, you know, the, the, the huge crisis that we like to ignore uh, is the climate change. Because if we are worried about the economic impact of, uh, you know, the economy essentially being shut down and for a few months, the impact by uh, the constant uh climate disasters that we will see um, is going to be even much greater. We will see. 
but will we see it because we live in state controlled media? We live, we only see what we're allowed to see. And so the, the American people think that I've spoken with Democrats who say Biden says he's going to veto Medicare for all. But once he gets to be president, he's going to see how bad things are and he's going to have no choice but to nationalize our medical system. Uh, But he operates under a state-controlled media that will not allow us to see the people who are dying on the streets, in the detention centers, in the prisons, in the homeless shelters. They will distract us. They'll find something else that will infuriate us but in a way that makes us angry at each other instead of the richest 1%. That's how they work. They get us angry, but not angry at the right people. We are looking at uh, a, a, a pandemic that will start wiping out Americans financially and killing them. But in two or three years, when the when the vaccine is found and the treatment is found, we will not know to what extent how much damage was was truly done. And we will be left pretty much with the same ideological and political infrastructure this pandemic started with. I, I see that because Bernie couldn't break through. Bernie didn't break through. And without leadership at the top, without some kind of revolution, we're not going to, we're going to ignore the realities on the ground. Don't you think unless we, I mean, Biden just isn't the guy to do this. Do you support Biden? Would you support Biden? So I, I think the best thing we can do now that we know we're not going to have a progressive president is to elect as progressive Congress as possible. Because I think, you know, it's one thing to say, uh, I will veto Medicare for all uh, while you're campaigning and, you know, you're trying to um, distinguish yourself from from others. Um, and one thing is to actually do it if both chambers pass it. I mean, obviously, he would only be able to to veto it if the House and Senate passes it. So I cannot even imagine under what political reality uh, he would be able to uh, veto Medicare for all when if House and Senate passes it. So I don't necessarily think that, you know, if we can get um, more progressive Congress, um, yeah, we can, but it's not uh, happening in the Democrat. I, I don't mean to. Be, I mm-hmm. should wrap it up. And I, I this is kind of a, a rude question mm-hmm. to somebody who represents everything I believe in and should be elected to Congress. And I, so I'm sorry for being so negative. But there is a real pro- people say to me, "You got to support Biden," and I and I say, "Well, hang on for one second. The primaries are still going on. There's a pandemic." He's the shadow government, and he's doing absolutely nothing. So we're seeing what kind of government he's offering to us right now, and it's zero. He can't get out in front of of the story. He's letting 
Donald Trump wag it. The, the primaries are still going on. Joe Biden is the presumptive nominee. And the Democratic establishment right now is revealing the kind of governance they're capable of. The campaign is 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 a dress rehearsal for what kind of presidency we're going to see. And we're witnessing zero action on Biden's plan. He has not been able to take the story away from Trump. It's Bill Gates who gives the counter narrative, not Joe Biden. We're seeing nothing in the Democratic Party. So why would we, when people say to me, you have to vote for Biden, I'm saying this is a disgrace. This is an absolute disgrace. It's just as bad as Trump. It's just as bad as Trump, the Biden campaign. They offer nothing. And, and I have to say, Obama, if, if Obama were running right now, he'd be out in front of this the same way he was out in front of the financial crisis and, and telling us the kind of leadership we would see. Biden is offering absolutely nothing. And I'm being told, but you have to vote for him. I find it really hard to vote for Joe well, Biden because the I, Democratic I Party you. is showing that they're not going to change. We're not seeing anybody in the Democratic Party who's talking about Medicare for all. They're they're more paralyzed than Mike Pence and Trump and Mnuchin. It's disgraceful. Right. And, uh, and I don't think there is... The, the, we shouldn't be talking about supporting Biden when uh, the primaries are still going on and um, there hasn't been a convention yet. So um, I, I think Democratic Party would do the best to um, recon- reconsider its choices for the nominee. Um, I, I actually worry that with Biden as a nominee, we're going to lose uh, the election in November. I I don't think that, you know, as you said, he's not necessarily projecting any leadership, um, you know, during this time. And um, it's anti it's, it's, you know, Obama is a disgrace. Barack Obama is a disgrace because he's anti-democratic. Big D and little D, because before Super Tuesday took place, he put his thumb on the scale. He made those calls. He got Amy Klobuchar and Mayor Pete to drop out. Mayor Pete was in second place. I think Mayor Pete had more delegates than Joe Biden. And yet, right before Super Tuesday, when the American people go to the polls, he got Amy and Mayor Pete to drop out and endorse Biden. He got Beto to come out and endorse Biden. You know, Bernie would have won Texas if it weren't for Beto coming out. And that 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 signaled to me that that the the establishment Barack Obama didn't want didn't trust the process. He didn't trust the Democratic Party, the voters. I'm a Democrat. He didn't trust us to make the right decision. He was afraid that we would choose Bernie. And that's undemocratic. And, and now we have the lesser, the, the, the least qualified man to, to, to go up against mm-hmm. Trump. It's disgraceful. And people say, well, you have to vote for Biden. Give me, do one thing. Joe should do one thing right now to convince me to vote for him. And he hasn't done it. 
are you are you what do you 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 agree that that he's not the candidate that it would it should have been bernie oh absolutely yeah i i i think you know it's clear like, yeah. he, he doesn't have much to offer to the country he's probably one of the weakest uh candidates uh we've had uh, you know in this primary Mm-hmm. And I don't think Democratic Party wanted him to be the nominee. I mean, they tried everybody else, but Bernie, of course. Um, and uh, I think they were going uh, uh, with Bloomberg as their darling until that didn't work out. Um, so with the, before you go, and thank you for doing this, Bernie not getting the nomination, going in there, you know, turning over the tables and recreating the Democratic Party in the image of FDR and, and Lyndon Johnson. Did that, did Bernie not, because he wasn't winning. There's no question that he didn't win these primaries. Is it because of Barack Obama putting his thumb on the scale? Is it because of moneyed interests who control the Democratic Party and can get the, the Joe Biden narrative out there? Or is it because of a stupidity in the Democratic Party or not caring? What co- I mean, we didn't see the youth vote. We didn't see that revolution that was promised to us by Bernie. We didn't see that we saw more of a voter turnout against Bernie than for him. So I, you can't blame it all on the Democratic establishment. Eventually, you have to blame it on the Democrats. The energy of the campaign and, uh, you know, it, 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 it was not the same thing as in 2016. And there were other candidates that all the young people um, kind of gravitated to, um, including, you know, Andrew Young. And there was, uh, uh, you know, Pete Buttigieg that, who appealed to, you know, some identity uh, politics um, of you know, some young people. So I don't know that, you know, I, I don't know that Bernie could have done anything in this kind of um, race. But, you know, the truth is that the, the as you said, the young people didn't necessarily show up to vote in the primaries. Uh, but there were so many people who did um, work their you know, butts off mm-hmm. for the, for Bernie's campaign. A lot of younger people. I mean, it's I I know because I I went to some of these uh, meetings uh, where there were tons of young people, and it's I worry that you know what has happened um, will leave uh, people disenfranchised and uh, disappointed and checked out. Yeah. I hope that's not the case. And, uh, I, and I think we have to kind of harvest the energy that um, all of the, the young and people of color, young people of color uh, have, and they're fighting for their future. I think this is, they're really fighting for their lives. And, and it's, it's very disturbing to hear from, you know, it is a generational conflict, but it's also a conflict between uh you know, the solidarity and greed 
I don't know that this is this is not a conflict between you know red and white, red, red and blue, right? Um, it's really you know the corporate world um, that runs both our parties and you know the rest of us. It's kind of like you know the the next Occupy movement will probably uh, come out of all of this because um, you know, there's the, a very the simple in- there's a very simple ethos ethos from the '60s that everybody should embrace, and that is don't don't solicit, don't work with corporate America, that mm-hmm. don't buy things that are owned by corporations. Don't engage in it. It's all, you know, and even Netflix and Amazon Prime and Hulu uh, don't support it. It's propaganda. They'll throw you stuff that has a whiff of anti-capitalistic narrative. But for the most part, it's sedating you. The news, this corporate media is sedating you. They they'll report the problems, but never the solutions. They 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 make you think you're being woke, but you're being put to sleep. Anything that's owned by a multinational corporation, don't give them your money or attention. They're your enemy. They're your oppressor. And that was something that came out of the 60s that was lost when Reagan Mm -hmm. took office, that people began to embrace corporate culture and now you go to comic-con you you know you have these kids who are walking billboards for the avengers or for you know some happy memory from nickelodeon and they, they don't realize they're being used as walking billboards for corporate america and they should be politicized and angry and focused on congress and the senate and the white house and putting away their childish things, stop watching the garbage that it's just being shoved down your eyeballs by Hulu, Netflix, Amazon, NBC. It's all garbage. The Good Morning America, Meet the Press, MSNBC. It is all propaganda designed to lull you to sleep and buy pharmaceuticals. That's all it is. They're not telling you the truth and this is why bernie this is it's a miracle that bernie got as far as he did given this corporate culture that just dominates our entire consciousness well eva putseva is running for election to the u.s house to represent arizona's first congressional district she's on the ballot in the democratic primary scheduled for august 4th 2020 and if you would like to donate money and you're an American citizen, go to Eva for Congress. Thank you so much for taking time to be with us. I hope you come back and you stay on the line for one second. Thank you. Thank you. If you called in your backup becomes now, see if we can get some more brain power in this. We thing. got one here. Roger. Fly to Inco. Go ahead and call. Uh, he's, never mind. He's straightening up a little bit. Okay. Okay. Now let's everybody keep cool. We got the limb still attached. The limb spacecraft's good. So if we need uh, to get back home, we got a limb to do a good portion of it with. Okay. Let's make sure that we don't do anything that's going to blow our CSM electrical power with the batteries, or that will cause us to lose the main or the uh, fuel cell number two. 
Okay, we want to keep the O2 and that kind of stuff working. We'd like to have RCS, but we got the command module system, so we're in good shape if we need to get home. Let's solve the problem, but let's not make it any worse by guessing. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. It's been nearly 60 days since America went into lockdown, so where are we? About 200,000 new cases each day by the end of May. 200,000 new cases each day by the end of May. That's what they're saying. And yet the Republicans are talking about reopening our economy, and the Democrats are blaming Trump for dropping the ball But nobody talks about science. Where are we? 4,900 meat and poultry processing workers have been infected across 19 states. Half the inmates and staff members tested at Truesdale Turner Correctional Center in Hartsville, Tennessee, have tested positive for the virus. The virus is barreling through detention centers, homeless shelters, public housing, and any other facility that warehouses humans. This is a lot worse than I could ever have imagined. And while we're lonely and getting lonelier, the reality is this is going to get worse. Here's what the New York Times said on Wednesday. Coronavirus in America now looks like this. More than a month has passed since there was a day with fewer than 1,000 deaths from the virus. Almost every day, at least 25,000 new coronavirus cases are identified, meaning that the total in the United States, which has the highest number of known cases in the world, with more than a million, is expanding by between 2 and 4% daily. Andrew Neumer, an associate professor of public health at the University of California, Irvine, tells the New York Times, if you include New York... It looks like a plateau moving down. When you exclude New York, it's a plateau slowly moving up. Today, science, no opinion, science, not political science, science, facts. The irritable immunologist is joining us from an undisclosed location somewhere in Southern California where he works to defeat the virus And helping me out once again with the questioning is Henry Hakamaki, who is a researcher studying and specializing in Ebola. Also with us via Zoom and phone are some of the listeners I invited to attend and help out asking some questions. So if you have some questions, please go ahead and raise your hands now or later on in this segment. Irritable. How are you, irritable? I'm mighty pissed off. I was just muted, and I'm I'm not used to that experience. So I'm I'm irate, enraged, and and ready to engage with questions from your listeners. A month ago, you said that there was talk that some ethnicities are more susceptible to the virus than others. This week, hmm. we're discovering Saudi Arabian doctors are studying why certain cultures defy what we're told is the norm about the virus. Saudi Arabian doctors are discovering that some cultures seem to be immune and and others more susceptible. 
Does the virus have a genome? And if so, would it affect humans who possess different types of genes? Is it possible that some cultures are going to get hit worse than others? I guess that was multiple questions, but uh, yes and yes. Uh, It certainly does have a genome. It's comprised exclusively in in the case of group four viruses, of which this is one of positive sense single-stranded RNA, which makes it um, particularly exciting to handle um, because all you need to do to generate virus is to take the genome and get it into a cell somehow. Uh, for the second part, yes, there is certainly some potential for a variability in response depending on, oh, boy, I'm not how to, sure how to explain this exactly, but, oh, there is genetic variance in the, in the immune system in particular. And what we refer to that in terms of is usually things like HLA, human leukocytic antigen, um, which is a catch-all term for a number of things. But in, to make, to make that story very short, um, there is genetic variability in the epitopes, what's called epitopes or surfaces that your immune system uses to recognize invading pathogens, uh, particularly on the T cell side. Uh, and what can be observed, detected by those T cells is to some degree determined by genetics. Yes. Okay. And Henry Hakamaki? Would you like to respond to that? Uh, I mean, I can pretty much just reiterate what he said. Um, he's exactly right that there's many cases that we have where um, different populations of people from different ethnic groups or different nationalities have uh, different responses to different diseases. And this go, it runs the gamut from uh, parasites all the way to viruses, everything in between. So a common one uh, for people to think about, and of course it has a very different mode of action than HLA signatures uh, as Irritable is talking about, but just an example that people might have heard of is malaria and African-American populations being less susceptible to having severe disease because of that, uh, and that's due to them having the, uh, a higher probability of having one of the alleles for sickle cell disease Everybody has two alleles for every gene. And if you have one allele for sickle cell disease, you're not susceptible to malaria. That would be an example of an ethnic group that's not particularly susceptible to a disease. Now, I said totally different way that it would work for a coronavirus, for example, but it's an example that perhaps people are familiar with. Could you... Can you manufacture a virus yet? And if so, would it have markers? Can you tell if a virus has been manufactured in a lab? I mean, it's, it's not always immediately obvious. I guess it depends on what you mean by manufactured. Uh, when this first started, I think in early January, there was a bioinformatics publication out of an Indian group that was that was completely erroneous conclusions, and and anybody who had access to the the software program and knew how to use it could verify that fact. But they were suggesting that there was uh, the genome of this virus had been deliberately manipulated and included segments from HIV, which is patently false. Uh, that paper was retracted; it was never published, never even peer reviewed. It was just that bad. Um, so there's, yes, sometimes you can. There's also some potential telltale signatures of 
what we call passage in, in terms of cell culture, keeping a virus in a different environment from the whole organism that it typically reproduces in. If you keep it in culture systems, which is a, a lot of what I'm doing, although not with this virus directly outside of BSL three, um, you can accrue a certain oh signature, but it, that's very difficult to tell. So no, there's there is no good reason to believe that this virus was this is not a synthetic organism. That's clear. It's ninety eight percent homologous with a bat virus, uh, the original SARS virus and MERS, both very obvious coronaviruses, both zoonotics from other organisms, probably both originally from bats, MERS, most recently probably hanging out in camels for 23 years before it showed up in people. But uh, if CRISPR, CRISPR does gene splicing, correct? Uh, CRISPR is a, is a broad catch-all term. You are talking to a good person to talk to that about since I've, I've done a fair bit of CRISPR-Cas9 work. Um, usually when people are talking about CRISPR, they're talking about the use of the Cas9 enzyme with specific guides. Um, and that I probably, you wouldn't, you would be less likely to use, let's, let's just say Cas9 targets DNA. Cas9 targets DNA, and this is an RNA virus, so you wouldn't use that CRISPR enzyme if you wanted to mess with this virus. No, there are other modifications of different Cas proteins that you could uh, operate on uh, single-strand RNA with, but you're probably going to have a be better off just doing it purely biochemically, uh, which would also be feasible. Right. Uh, Henry, uh, join us here on this. Is it conceivable that in the not-too-distant future we will be designing viruses that can attack a certain type of human? Well, there has been conspiracy theories about this exact topic for a long time. Uh, I even have a, a book upstairs from, I want to say, the late 80s, where a medical doctor was hypothesizing that Ebola and AIDS were both created in the lab and then the U.S. government was going to use them to genocide people in Africa. Of course, it was a completely not true, not rooted in any sort of fact, but those those theories have been around forever. But on the other hand, we do have examples of where viruses are manipulated in the lab, not necessarily created from scratch, but manipulated. For example, Mm -hmm. uh, during the Cold War, back when the U.S. and the Soviet Union were both working on biological weapon systems for potential future wars, uh, hot wars, that is, they, both the U.S. and the Soviet Union, would be taking viruses and some bacteria in the lab and trying to make them more and more virulent. So they would either spread more easily or kill more people. And one that the Soviets particularly used a, a lot in the lab was smallpox. So they took the smallpox that had been circulating prior to eradication and through selecting for strains that are more virulent and more virulent and pushing it kind of to the nth degree, they ended up with a strain that was incredibly hot. So those kind of things have also been going on for a long time. It's not, it's not beyond the realm of possibility that we could have uh, viruses in the, relatively near future that would have a large impact due to human interference. 
but I, I wouldn't say that we're anywhere near making a virus from scratch. If that right. was what you were asking, irritable is. Are they working on a virus that can kill another virus? I guess that's what a vex kind of. Well, that wouldn't be what a vaccine <laughs> is. No. Well, I mean, in order to kill something that's not alive, that's, right. that's a bit of a. No, I mean, viruses are not infectable per se. There's really interesting. My name is David. Um, Why do you keep calling me per se? This is like the fifth time I mean, I've had to tell you, my name is David, not per se. Go ahead. I, I, I'm just lulled into a false sense of complacency by the, <laughs> by the dulcet soprano tones that, that I'm hearing. And I, All right. Uh, so there's there are there's things like hepatitis delta virus, which is very interesting, and there are some really exotic viruses that have subviral parasites that actually reduce their fitness, which is all very fascinating, but not, I think, actually addressing your point. No, you're not going to be generating a virus to target another virus. You could hypothetically generate a virus to target a specific cell type. Um, or yes, in in the distant future, if you had a really good handle on oh some specific antigen that a subset of the population expresses, and you wanted to kill all of those people, uh, I suppose hypothetically that might be possible, but that would be totally insane. Uh, and the ability to contain something like that to your specific target group is probably not feasible reasonably the uh, the reason i bring this up is because this is really hard and i don't have a background in biology and dynamics of cells yet we're being told to understand this and then make decisions accordingly meanwhile you have mike pompeo saying that this virus comes to us from a lab in wuhan and donald trump Mm -hmm. saying that Blame the Chinese, blame the, the 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 World Health Organization. Simplify this for us. Who's the villain in all this? It's the Chinese. They gave it to us, and and the CIA has been instructed to trace it to a a lab in Wuhan that the virus either leaked out intentionally or unintentionally. This is weapons of mass destruction that lived inside of. Iraq in the run-up to that war, right? There's no evidence to suggest that any of that is true. No, no, not, not only that, but, I mean, come on. You want to design a bioweapon? You want to make, make one that's not very good at killing people? Come on. You just use the original SARS. The original. It has a much higher fatality rate, much higher. I mean, this is SARS-2, which is what they should have called it. The WHO really should not have had been dancing around and saying SARS and COD-2 and calling the disease COVID-19. They should have just straight up called it SARS-2 from day one. Maybe there would have been a little bit more appreciation of how serious the circumstance actually is. Um, but no, no, this is a, this is the shittiest bioweapon that's ever been developed, as far as I can tell. So it's not it's not a bioweapon. Period. It's ninety eight percent homologous to a virus that was isolated out of the ass of a bat in a cave in Hunan. Right. Um, right. So there's, you know, that's, and, and that's as Henry pointed out, as Henry pointed out, that the Russians were able to weaponize smallpox during the fifties to make a more ravenous smallpox, I would assume they could easily make a more ravenous SARS than uh, than what we've got now. 
That's what you're saying. If, if this was a serious bioweapon, you would expect extremely high rates of mortality and morbidity. Also, this would be a, it would be a little bit crazy to attempt to weaponize respiratory viruses because containment and vaccines are difficult. Let's put it that way. Henry? No, I'll speak. Yeah, go ahead. So I, what I will say is that you, you're absolutely right that we're hearing a lot of uh, the sycophants in Washington, D.C., blaming the Chinese and the World Health Organization for all of the world's problems. What, what it appears is that there is no criminal activity from China. They didn't intentionally release it from a lab. The real criminal activity, if there is any, is the horrendously mismanaged situation in the United States. If, if there was any criminal activity, it would be the mismanagement by the sycophants that are supposed to be keeping us safe and are failing absolutely miserably. Okay, this is for another conversation. I really want to stick with the science. It's very easy to sure. go down the path that I'm familiar with, which is blame Trump, blame the Democrats, blame China, the WTO. Sure, sure. Is but I, I really want to use this opportunity to learn the science. There is some good news that seems to be coming out this week. China says it, it may, no irritable, no good news. Uh, I, I would say the, probably the, the headline over the last day or so was a, a preprint publication regarding mm-hmm. a single amino acid substitution in the receptor binding domain of this I'll particular ask you about that in just a second. Okay. <laughs> okay. I, 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 uh, let's get to that. That sounds very uh, enticing, even though I have no idea what you're talking mm-hmm. about. But a, oh, it's delicious. Okay. A team it's of science. It's refreshing, sci- too. It's refreshing. Uh-huh. Yeah. It's no longer just for breakfast, as I understand it. A, no, a, every a, meal. A, a team of scientists have developed a fairly quick, cheap test to diagnose the coronavirus. It's almost like a pregnancy test, and it only costs six bucks. That's good news because it's testing. T- you said on Tuesday show, contact tracing, contact tracing, contact tracing. But you can't Indeed. trace without tests. Does this uh, yes. cheap test show promise? Sure. I mean, cheaper the better, as long as it's highly specific and doesn't have a substantial rate of, of false positives. Uh, ideally, not a substantial rate of false negatives either. Yeah, I mean, there's... Look, there's, there's a number of different schemes that have been proposed. The, the issue is actually implementing them. You would need some kind of central authoritative presence to implement all of these things. And instead, we have a delusional clown with orange makeup on babbling at the mouth. Uh, what about Operation you know, Warp Speed? He unveiled Operation Warp Speed. We're going to have a vaccine tomorrow, according to Donald Trump. Right, yes. Well... <laughs> I, no, I, I, I thought from the sound of it that would be associated with Space Force. Okay. But, uh, All right, so more bad. more good news, and then we'll get to that complicated. Yeah, <laughs> what, what, what you were, that paper you sent me that I really thought was passive aggressive. I, I didn't understand a single word. I thought, oh, he's just putting me in my place. Harvard. No, that was, that was actually mainly for, for Henry. Honestly. Oh, okay. I, I realized how stupid I am when I try to pretend to read that. 
Even my lips wouldn't move while I was reading it. That's how dumb I am and how hard that was. Even my lips couldn't move to read that one. Researchers at two Harvard hospitals. What the boys down on the corner say? I'm sorry, what did you say? Well, I, I was I was just making, uh, uh, I was casting aspersions that that's not what the boys down at the corner say about how you use your lips, but uh, I'm in. Okay. I'm not doing that now during the pandemic, so there's no need to bring it up. Okay. And and this is how I support the show by you using did good work. I'm, I was complimenting you. I was thank you. Okay, it's not all right. I use my lips over there, so I can use my lips over here. And I don't think you need to talk about. Mm-hmm. Okay, irritable. To uh, I want to go back to something that Henry Hakamaki touched on in, in, in gene therapy to develop a coronavirus vaccine. So I said, can they can they splice a virus's genes to make it kill a bad a bad virus? Can there be a good virus that goes in and kills a bad virus like, you know, Tron, uh, you know, make a great movie like Tron? They're, they, they, deep cuts. Deep cuts. That's uh, what. Uh, <laughs> right down to the corner. Yeah, we that's, got no, that. no, that's what Sal Minio said when he was uh, being. Uh, okay. Uh, gene therapy to develop a coronavirus vaccine. So, how would that work? How would you manipulate? Would Would you use a well, it's RNA, so you can't use CRISPR to do this? You wouldn't. You would probably just go ahead and use restriction enzymes. You wouldn't. I, you're saying that you know, I would do it because I'm a moron. The, the tone of voice was you would go ahead and use restriction enzymes because you're a moron. But <laughs> the cognoscente, like me and Henry, we would use. What would you use? Sure, I, I would probably go ahead and use restriction enzymes. It depends on what you mean. So in terms of direct killing of another virus, no, not happening. But uh, in terms of engineering a less virulent virus, that, that's effectively what's being done with a number of the vaccine trials. They're using a carrier virus that isn't fatal and introducing in part of SARS-2, COVID-19, the COVID-19 causing virus, in order to fool your immune system into thinking that it's been infected with COVID-19, the COVID-19 virus, and therefore will mount an immune response appropriate to that virus when it is later uh, presented with that virus. Uh, at least that's the idea. So yeah, the, both the Oxford and the Sinovac uh, principal trials right now are using an adenovirus, another respiratory virus, an unenveloped virus uh, that they've altered to make it more or less not pathogenic, and then they're introducing part, mainly the spike in, in both of these cases, of SARS-CoV-2 so that your immune system sees that spike protein and develops a memory immune response to combat it the next time around. Okay, Henry, what kind of vaccine, Henry, because you touched on this Tuesday, what kind of vaccine would that be called? You were saying that there are different types of vaccine, or would it in fact be a vaccine? 
Sure. Before I answer that, David, I am just going to um, clarify what restriction enzymes are for Thank people you. that Thank are you. unaware. I know, but we, we have to, you know, for the listeners, yeah. we, but I, you want me to tell them what restriction enzymes are? Go you know ahead. what? You go ahead. You're a guest. Okay, you go I, ahead. I'll get it. I'll get it. Okay. Uh, so restriction enzymes are enzymes that are typically produced by bacteria, and they have, so as we described, was it a Friday meeting or was it recorded? I think it was one of the Friday meetings, but... Your genetic sequence is just essentially a bunch of letters, one after another, or we interpret them as letters. Restriction enzymes are enzymes that cut at specific sequences of letters. So it'll recognize the sequence of those letters, and it'll cut in the same spot every time. So what Irritable is saying is that we could take restriction enzymes that are uh, specific for the sequence of coronavirus, potentially, and use it to cut the RNA of the coronavirus. So that's to answer that um, or to clarify that point. In regards to the vaccines, as I um, spoke about last time. Barry, yeah, in answering that question, Henry, mm-hmm. tell me how many different types of vaccines existed in 1950. And thanks to the unraveling of the genome and ge- the exploration of genes, how many different types of vaccines are there today? Oh, God. Uh, so uh, there's a lot of different kinds of vaccines today. Uh, the first two kinds of vaccines that we had were live attenuated and inactivated. Okay, so that, that's like 1950s era vaccines. Mm. Okay, so start with that. This is good. Like live attenuated and what is the other kind? Inactivated. Inactivated. Mm-hmm. So you, what is an activated vaccine? An inactivated vaccine is where they take, let's say we're uh, going to be vaccinating for a virus, they take the virus and they kill it in a way where the structure is still more or less maintained. And then they inject the dead virus into your system. Your body recognizes the dead virus. It doesn't recognize it as dead, but it recognizes it. And then it is able to generate memory against that antibodies for the next time and then it will produce antibodies for subsequent infections and how well and I, I, this is an unfair question to ask you this is an unfair question to ask you henry but uh, how much money do you have in your pocket right now no, uh this is an unfair, but like how I long think i have a nickel in my pocket okay <laughs> how long did they how long have they been doing that in like they didn't invent that in the 50s so did they do that for in the 19th century, did they know enough to do that? So the first, okay, so we've had vaccinations of one sort or another for a really, really long time. Um, when we want to nail down when a specific type of vaccine came out, it's a little bit harder to nail it down. Okay, exactly. All right. Okay, so but, let, let's go to atten- so an attenuated vaccine. What is that? Sure. A, an attenuated vaccine is instead of killing the, the virus, let's say, again, that we're doing it for a virus, they're going to weaken it in some way. Let's say they just leave it on the counter for a couple of days to the point where the virus is almost dead but not completely dead. Then they stick it into you. The virus is weakened, so you don't get you either don't get sick or you develop just very mild symptoms because the virus is not particularly potent at that point. And what happens then is your body develops a more robust 
response against it because it's actually a, a virus that still has some physiological function rather than just a dead bit of a virus. Irritable, is that the kind, before we get to the new types of vaccines, I would assume the attenuated virus is something you would use to fight a more aggressive virus, right? The attenuated vaccine. You'll get get higher efficacy. So um, a a good demonstration of this would be the Salk polio vaccine versus Alfred Sabin's polio vaccine. The latter was alive attenuated and was had a higher efficiency in terms of preventing uh, uh, illness from subsequent exposure to polio, but also had a potential issue of causing polio itself and immunosuppressed people. Okay, so I'm going to stop uh, you for one second. I'm going to stop you for one second, mm-hmm. Irritable, because this is great for a cocktail party. This is great information to know the difference between the two types of polio vaccines. I need to know this. Okay, this is really good. This is if we get anything out of today's segment, we can show up at at a cocktail party and explain to people the difference between the Sabin vaccine and, and the Salk vaccine. I think one was oral. The other was anal. We'll get to that. Okay, which which vaccine came first? Who came first? Uh, Salk. Salk came first. Go ahead. What? Just when it started to get good, we're losing him. Salk came first. Yes, that was an inactivated virus. It was an inactivated virus. And, and, and teaching is repetition. So tell us again what that inactivated virus vaccine means. Are you there, Irritable? Uh, yeah, still here. Am I uh, going in and out? You're going in and out, just like uh, oh, the good. guys down on the corner were going in and out when I was. Do you want to call back? Why Why is the sound bad? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure. Uh, is it still dropping up? No, no. Go ahead. You're good. Okay. Uh, yeah, so... He is still dropping out. He's dropping out. So here's what here's what here's what we're going to call back. I can fill in for a little bit. Okay, Henry's going to fill in, but you'll answer the question. Can you call back? Irritable. Yeah, sure. Thank you. This is great. This is great. You know, it's interesting. I'm really glad that I asked that question about the polio vaccines, because Mm -hmm. I think that's the touchstone upon which we unlock an understanding of vaccines for, for the layman. I think we all know what the polio vaccines were and that Salk and Sabin donated the, the, the rights to the United States government. Yes, I was just about to bring up that point because that's something that was famous at one point, but a lot of people these days don't remember is that they could have made millions and millions patenting the polio vaccines and they decided for the betterment of humanity to just make them free for for public use essentially and uh, yeah ended up saving millions and millions of lives in the process and even many more millions from permanent disability and they hated each other <laughs> that that um yeah, they had a definitely an interesting relationship between the two. Have you read about it at all? David? No, I, I met the guy who unraveled the human genome in 2000. I forgot his name. 
he was on a comedy show, believe it or not, that I was working on. And we were hanging out, and he told me that uh, Salk and Saban hated each other, and Watson and Crick hated each other. Did oh, you, yeah. Uh, you knew yeah, that? I, yeah, I did know that. And one of them, ooh, what one was it? One of them is a absolute right-wing nut. Yeah, yeah, he's a racist right-wing. Yeah. What one was it? God. I don't know. So like, I should remember that off the top of my head. And I don't, I have a feeling I know what one it is, but I don't want to slander the wrong I think it's Watson, I presume. Let me just check very quickly. Okay, while you're checking, I, I really that. don't want to give the wrong name for yeah. But for for yeah, it for, was Watson. As yeah, yeah, and uh, he uh, Watson and Crick uh, unraveled DNA. They came. They discovered DNA with Rosalind Franklin. Let's not forget a woman, a woman who did not get any of the credit for the discovery. She actually did most of the legwork for. Um, the research that ended up getting us the structure of DNA. She was their um, x-ray crystallographer. She would be like the RNA for the DNA. She'd be like the... Doesn't the RNA do the legwork for the DNA? Well, legwork, I I don't know if I would want to use that term, David, but the point is is that it would be like... uh, you know, the person that builds the car that wins the race doesn't get any of the credits. The person that drives past the finish line. Okay. Thank God. We, we, I think we did a pretty good job filling time waiting for, uh, irritable to join us. You're back. Irritable. Yeah. If you're going to do bleach, man, intravenous. Intravenous. <laughs> Well, like you guys, I like this. We were talking about how Watson and Crick hated each other and Saban and Salk hated each other. And, you know, Lennon and McCartney hated each other. And I think we're on to something. I think Irritable and Henry Hakamaki can learn to hate each other. I think we can turn this in to such a great popular segment that within six months, the two of you will despise one another. Okay. Let's go back to the uh, Henry. <laughs> All we have to do, we, we can turn this into a show. We just have to get two talking heads fighting with. I mean, wouldn't it be entertaining? I could sell this to CNN. Watson and Crick arguing, right? Saban and Salk arguing over science. That's how you teach, just by people fighting with one another. And they would have been big celebrities at the time. Imagine the yes. viewership that you would have gotten. <laughs> yeah. Celebrity cage Ooh. match, Watson and Crick. You, what Ooh. I've learned is you My need... My money's on Crick. <laughs> you need... Yeah, really. uh, you can only teach through conflict. If people aren't screaming at one another, no knowledge is being... Shut up, that's a bunch of bullshit. Thank you. Okay, Good. let's go back to the original question, which is... Saban and Salk, uh, and the two vaccines and how they differed from one another. Okay, I, I feel like Henry probably covered this pretty well. No, no, we yeah, were gossiping. No, no, we were gossiping. Seriously, okay. we, were, we were gossiping about personalities. Waiting for you. Yeah, so, okay, so we were talking about the difference between an inactivated and a live attenuated virus. And that, and that's a good example of that. Uh, Jonas Salk, I think it was mid fifties, uh, came up with it. Uh, it, they were both oral, 
both the salt and salmon vaccines, but they differed in terms of the salt vaccine was inactivated. It could not infect people who it was given to. It was not capable of getting into cells of its own accord. It could not reproduce inside of cells. It, it was dead. But it still maintained all of its proteins, all of the things that the immune system is looking for, the, what, I, what I call the epitopes or Maybe easier to think about in terms of surfaces. Immune system, the cells in the immune system don't have eyes, but they can recognize surfaces and we'll, we'll call them epitopes. And so those are maintained in an inactivated virus. The virus is still there. It's been chemically treated typically with something called formalin. In contrast, a live attenuated virus has been grown usually in cell culture under really weird chemical conditions. And so it's become adapted to a different circumstance. And that would be Sabin. That would be Sabin? Exactly. And that came second. Yes, the same vaccine came second. The advantage, as, as Henry mentioned, what is with an inactivated virus is that the virus is still causing an infection. It may be asymptomatic. It may be very mild. Attenuated. attenuated. Yes, yes. Live attenuated, excuse me. Um, but, uh, yes. So, so functionally, it's reproducing inside of cells, which is sort of half of of the bit for a virus in order for the immune system to really effectively combat with a really high rate, uh, a second infection with something, it's best if that infection is a full infection rather than just exposure to proteins. Okay. So while the salt vaccine was way better than nothing and was inactivated and the same vaccine was, was much more oh, active, the virus is still alive. It was just heavily adapted to reproducing in cells that were under quite different conditions from the cells in your body. And so it's really crappy at reproducing inside of normal human cells, the same virus, but it could still do so. And that's critical for vaccine design, particularly for viruses, if you want very high efficiency, is to have an actual low-level infection with something uh, that causes proteins to be produced inside of cells of your body because half of the coin in terms of antiviral response is killing cells that have virus actively reproducing inside of them. Okay, uh, and which the, vaccine uh, Which vaccine do we use now? For what? Oh, for yeah. polio. Yeah. Are you drinking bleach? Are you drinking bleach? No, I told you bleach intravenous, oh, dumbass. I'm sorry. Jesus Christ. No, I'm, I'm taking shots of hydroxychloroquine, <laughs> a little bit of laced in there. I mean, I don't give a shit about my QT interval. I mean, God <laughs> damn it. It might be cardiotoxic. In fact, it is cardiotoxic, but it's delicious. David. All right. All right. Which delicious, re- refreshing. With no nasty no, aftertaste. Is that, right? No nasty aftertaste? Exactly right. Have you put fluoride in it? Have you put fluoride in it? Of course. Okay. Of course. Got to keep these chompers, these chompers really sharp. It's it's critically important. Okay. Which vaccine are we using now to combat polio? You know, I believe, uh, boy, I'm actually not sure whose formulation is used. It is an attenuated vaccine these days. I'm not sure if it's... Oh, I'm actually not sure in terms of what's currently deployed, but I, I believe the overwhelming majority of it is attenuated, so it would be based on something like Sabin's initial vaccine. I think Henry has you, the... Do you happen to Henry, know? do you happen to yeah, know? Yeah, yeah. So 
they actually, the World Health Organization uses both. It more or less depends on where in the world they're giving it. In the U.S., uh, we get sure. it as part of our Tdap, so it's uh, actually yep. the inactivated form in that because it's being given intravenously mm-hmm. anyway, which is how you would administer the inactivated one. The attenuated one is the one that you take orally, and they haven't been giving that in the U.S. for a long time. But in other parts of the world where... Uh, maybe injection is more difficult to carry out or they're doing mass vaccination where they're just going down rows of kids and, and vaccinating, they would be using the attenuated one. Okay. Uh, we're we're going to open this up now to the attendees. We've invited some of the listeners to sit in on this, and it's been a tremendous boom so to the show. Yes, Henry. Do you want me to save the, the bad news questions for Irritable for next time? Then? No, no, we have time. I, I just okay. I, uh, I just want to ask one final question, and then you ask a bad news question. But uh, two major pharmaceutical companies, Johnson & Johnson and Moderna, have joined forces, and they are promising a billion doses of an undeveloped vaccine by the end of 2021. By the end of 2021, their big, bold promise is a vaccine by the end of 2021. Not the end of 2020, the end of 2021. Now, I'm not a scientist, but that seems like it's more than a year away. Okay. Two questions I like Henry to pile in, chime in here. A, A, is that ambitious? Is that doable? Can they come up with a billion doses of a vaccine by the end of 2021? And without a vaccine between now and 2021, what is herd immunity going to look like? The two of you, please go at it. Hopefully you'll argue and fight so it will be entertaining. Well, I mean, in reverse order, I, I think uh, a shit show for the second for the second question. Uh, I mean, for Moderna, wasn't polio a shit show? It, it seems to me polio was the shit show. <laughs> Certainly, anything with a fecal oral route, yeah, you could call it a shit show. I think. Uh, I, I mean, the issue with Moderna specifically, yes, because they're fundamentally an mRNA vaccine house. That's what they're trying to do. And mRNA is, is very easy to produce. It's very easy to lyophilize and it's very easy to do so in under sterile circumstances. A more interesting question is whether that vaccine will actually work. Uh, the track record in terms of mRNA vaccines has not been good so far, despite huge sums of money being poured at Moderna in particular for, I think, at least 10 years. Okay. Um, so uh, typically when you, when you're doing an mRNA vaccine, you're, you're you're keeping RNA in a, a let's say a little fat ball, a lipid particle, uh, and you're injecting that usually, uh, at least with the mRNA vaccines I'm familiar with. And eighty percent of that just ends up with your liver. Uh, so if you want to treat something that's infecting your liver, probably a pretty good way to go about it. But in terms of actual effective RNA vaccines currently deployed for viruses. I'm not sure there are any for human viruses, at least nothing that's been approved by the FDA. So you're saying there's never been an RNA vaccine? I mean, I believe there have been for pigs. They're, they've certainly shown promise 
clinically. Oh, so Mnuchin's safe. Hang on, I just did a joke. So hang on, let me hang on. I have a joke. Hang on for one second, folks. Hang on. Let me repeat that joke. <clears throat> so Mnuchin's safe. See, because pigs. Okay, so they haven't come up with a, a vaccine for an RNA virus. You're saying. No, a vaccine that is using RNA. So that the reason I bring this up is because that is Moderna. Moderna's entire gig has been the development of RNA-based vaccines. And so what that's trying to do is to take a oh, part of the virus's genome, which is RNA, instead of putting it in a viral particle, you put it in oh, a little ball of fat. Let's put it that way. Yes. And you're trying to get that... Yes, you're trying to get that little ball of fat, uh, you know, Steve Mnuchin jokes are fine here as well, um, and get that into cells in the body. And once that's in there, that RNA will be translated into protein so you can express proteins inside of cells without actually having to infect them properly. Uh, the issue is that there's not a lot of good examples of this vaccine technology that have been approved so far. They certainly could be. They claim to have worked out a lot of the issues associated with all of it ending up in your liver and just getting metabolized. Uh, but I don't believe those have been deployed in, in any first world country, to my knowledge. Do you know, Henry? Uh, I'm not aware of any that have been, no. So, I mean, that's, that's who Moderna So how is, so. ambitious is it for Johnson & Johnson and Moderna to say by the end of 2021 they're going to have a vaccine and a billion doses of it? How reasonable I mean, is they that? They can produce a they can produce a billion doses worth of an RNA vaccine. Whether that RNA vaccine will work where the shit is a different question. Um, I mean, traditional vaccine production is going to be a bit slower. And any time that you need to grow, oh, anything related to a virus can be a big pain. So synthesizing RNA is quite easily done these days. Right. So there's a lot of potential for this type of vaccine to work. It just hasn't been demonstrated to have worked in any way that's been clinically approved almost anywhere that I'm aware of. Okay, I want to go to the I want to go to the the questions because they've been patiently sitting by. This has been far far better than I I mean just that just the segment on the polio vaccines. I cannot wait to go to a super spreader party with young people. That's what they call them, super spreader parties. Working on the herd immunity, I'm going to go to a cocktail party with the super spreaders and tell them about the, the polio vaccine. Go ahead, Henry. Just uh, to address one quick thing before we get to the listener questions. Uh, most of the vaccines that are being tested right now for efficacy are not mRNA vaccines. So they're targeting an MR, uh, uh, RNA virus, but they're not mRNA-based vaccines, um, which the reason I bring this up is because you asked if have we had vaccines that have worked against RNA viruses before. Yes, we have, um, but they haven't been mRNA vaccines. There, there's a difference. The but I believe they were, were for pigs. Is that correct? The mRNA vaccines that have worked ha- were for pigs. but again, Which reminds me of my the, Steve Mnuchin joke. Right. Uh, but the point is, is that there's a difference between an mRNA vaccine, which the mRNA is the vaccine versus treating an RNA virus. So most of the vaccines that are being developed right now are what we call recombinant vaccines, where they take little bits of our RNA virus, COVID-19, SARS-2 virus, and 
mounting that little piece of that onto a different virus so that the body thinks it's SARS-2, COVID, but it's really not. It's just a little piece of that. Okay, last question, and this is important. 27 states in America are loosening social distancing restrictions within the next week. 20 of those states, only, well, 20 meet the benchmarks that the COVID-19 task force recommends. So we're at best a year and a half away from a vaccine. And they say that when you ease the lockdown, some of the models show that 3,000 people will be dead in Georgia by the end of August. 10,000 will be dead in New York by the end of August. 10,000 dead in New Jersey, 7,000 dead in Pennsylvania, 7,000 dead in Illinois, goes on and on. They're saying that by easing the, the, the restrictions, we will see 100,000 additional deaths by August 4th with no vaccine. So, you know, I said on this show, America gets lucky, maybe it won't be so bad. I was wrong. I mean, this is like we're going to have to get used to this the same way we get used to car accidents and gun deaths and the flu and a Vietnam War every year combined. Correct? Is that fair? Sure, man. If you if you want to put it that way, I mean it's it's a colossal crap show because of our our absolutely inept response. And is anybody leveling with the American people? Where do you is any politician leveling? I'm at like Cuomo, Trump, is Fauci, is anybody telling us the truth about what we need to get to herd immunity? Without a vaccine, I read. 90% of Americans will have this within, by Christmas. Henry? Yeah, and the other thing to keep in mind, and this is something that we talked about last time and I talked about on the previous Friday Zoom meeting, is that we don't even know if it'll be possible to get to herd immunity because we don't know how long we're going to be able to maintain the neutralizing antibodies for. We don't know how long we're going to be able to maintain long-term memory against this virus for. So even if you're infected, it's quite possible if it's like other coronaviruses that we could be susceptible again in five months. So you could be infected by this virus more than once in the same year. Even SARS, SARS-1, that is, uh, its, its memory, our body's memory against it from survivors, only lasted two to three years. Well, we so, talked about booster shots, but seventy. Right. So in, order, in order to get to herd immunity, as I understand it, of a population has to either be vaccinated or infected. Is that correct? Depending on the disease, right. Yeah, that's probably a good ballpark, but I I think it's really critical to underline the point Henry was making there is in order to have effective herd immunity for coronaviruses, you need everyone to have caught it and generated an effective immune response roughly in the same time window. Otherwise, you're just going to have 
rolling infections where people who were previously exposed three years ago are now catching it again. And there's some potential that catching it a second time might be really nasty too because of mm. specific propensities that this type of virus engages in. I would frankly doubt that, but okay. it's certainly possible. What are the possibilities five years from now? Because we always spin disasters and, you know, we manipulate numbers. You're doing a heck of a job, Feldman. Thank you. What is what are the five years from now? I can hear somebody saying, you know, it wasn't really that bad. And it, it turns out that more people had it than knew they had it. And it really doesn't. It's just like a bad flu, like any bad flu. And, you know, but we don't see that right now. I mean, bodies are piling up. I mean, they can't process them quick. I mean, we, we, we certainly were seeing that for quite a while, right? I mean, we had, we had a substantial fraction of, of the right-wing media indoctrination echo chamber all more or less parroting. I believe Limbaugh was calling it just a cold. Right. I mean... Right, and his lung, cancer is moment, just, his lung cancer is just a hemorrhoid. All right. right. Let's, uh, let's take some questions. I, I've been... By the way... Uh, thank you for this, and thank you to all the attendees who have – you're brilliant. Let's go to Justin. Hello, Justin. Let me move you up to uh, – so we can see you. Hi, Justin. How are you? You're coming to us from San Francisco, I believe. Justin, are you there? You have to unmute yourself. Yes. Hey, Justin. Can you hear me? Yes. Okay, so um, I've been looking at, and thank you, you, you've answered some of my questions already, but I've been looking at this uh, from the perspective of some of uh, these companies that have come out and talked about uh, developing a vaccine, and uh, Irritable, you mentioned uh, Moderna, which you know, has gotten a lot of attention. We should you know, mention Justin is a an investigator for FINRA. You investigate stockbrokers and companies. Correct. And, um, you know, there's, there's a task force that's been put together by the SEC and FINRA and others to um, investigate companies that may be making questionable claims, um, and there's already been some stocks that have been halted on the exchanges uh, as a result of that. My my interest here is, is some of these companies that have come out and talked about you know the, their efforts to develop vaccines. Um, several of them are companies that uh, have going concern clauses in their financial statements, meaning that they have less than a year's worth of cash before they run out of money unless they get financing. Um, a lot of these companies had stocks that were trading, you know, below a dollar or around a dollar in January, and then they make these announcements about uh, having a, a COVID-19 vaccine in development, and their stock skyrockets, you know, 400, 500%. Um, so, you can imagine why, you know, I, I'm skeptical about some of these companies, although, you know, some of them also uh, are included in um, uh, things like the World Health Organization's uh, draft landscape for COVID-19 candidate vaccines. So 
I guess what I'm hoping to get is is to just uh, maybe throw out you know a few names if you're familiar with them we can talk about it if not you know we can move on but I, I'm interested in getting a sense of which of these companies who've announced uh, vaccines that they have in development are legitimate and which of them are maybe you know talking about stuff that is very speculative or, or doubtful. It sounds like you're looking for, well, you're not looking for inside information, but I was reading that Japan, Abe, the prime minister, is pushing, I believe, a treatment for COVID-19 that's manufactured by Fuji Film, and they have TV stars endorsing it on television, and it's apparently not that effective, but it's in the best interest of Japan to push that into the marketplace. Uh, I think I muted Irritable because, yes, sorry, Irritable, I muted you. I apologize. Just so I can finish the, the, the question, or actually pose a question, um, you know, some examples, uh, there's, there's like a... Um, uh, a company here in the Bay Area called Geovax that is, you know, they make a vaccine platform. They claim to have, at this point, three vaccine candidates uh, in development. Um, you know, they were running out of money as recently as, you know, the end of 2019. Uh, there's a company called Vaxart that is also in the Bay Area, claims to make a oral recombinant vaccine uh, administered by tablet. Um, Innovio, uh, which is highly dependent on outside financing, has um, a vaccine which is a intradermal vaccine, you know, the kind that creates a bubble on your skin. Like a patch. Um, I, I don't think that any of these, I don't think that any of these are using uh, the RNA approach that Moderna okay. is using. Yeah, we're getting a little but deep. We're getting a little deep into this. So let, let's allow the uh, Henry and Irritable to respond to this. Great question, though. I mean, I'm not intimately familiar with the various platforms that the vaccine startups have going. I I'd say that, that's a really tricky business to be in because if it fails you're hosed. This is the amount of re the resource investment versus payout rate for vaccines typically hasn't been that great because they tend, they tend to be fairly heavily regulated both nationally and worldwide. So I, unfortunately, I don't think I have any good insight in, in terms of the financial status of those companies. I had heard of Geovax. I think they were claiming they had insight on an HIV vaccine. Hasn't shown up yet. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. They, Henry, do you want to respond to that? And then we have two more questions. I, I pretty much just have the same thing to say as irritable that I, I'm not familiar with the specific vaccine candidates that they're putting out there. What I will say is that it's, I don't want to say it's easy, but it's relatively easy to come up with a plan of how you're going to make a vaccine. It's infinitely harder to make an effective vaccine based on that plan. So it's really hard to speak towards which of these plans is going to actually work, if any of them. Right, right. They're discovering that hypertension medications 
you know, if you're you, a comorbidity is hypertension. So if you, but now they're discovering that if you take the hypertension medications, it worsens the COVID-19. They're discovering that tuberculosis, uh, a, a maybe. Okay. Maybe. That's the whole point. Maybe. I, I, I would, I would say maybe to both of those, actually. Uh, the critical bit, I think, that isn't broadly understood about ACE2 in particular is that ACE2 has a critical role in terms of preventing really nasty tissue damage. Um, what is ACE2? What is ACE2? What is ACE2? So it's a, this is the, we'll call it the receptor. It, it's the bit that sticks out on the surface of the cells okay. that SARS-CoV-2 is binding to. It's actually an enzyme. It's a transmembrane protein in the external, the ectodomain, the external part uh, is critical in terms of a broader system of, oh, let's say <laughs> hormonal and blood pressure regulation, the RAAS system. Um, and so, ACE2 expression, high levels of ACE2 expression are associated with better outcomes post nasty lung and heart injuries. And we seem to see that recapitulated in patients. Older patients tend to have actually lower levels of ACE2 expression in the cells and lungs and tend to have a worse outcome in part because it does appear to be particularly integral in terms of, oh, that conversion that it's doing to something in your blood. Um, Okay, we have we have. You're you're breaking up. Out that. You're 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 breaking up. Uh, and Henry, do you want to respond to that? And we'll get no, to the three I, I questions. No, I think that he, he he actually covered that one. I think quite well. If anybody else doesn't understand the role of ACE two in in COVID infections, uh, basically that's just the point that the virus is invading at, or it's the receptor that the virus is targeting. So it's that's the honey the, to the bee. Or it's the pollen to the bee. Yeah. Okay. And now they're telling us to go outside. I was reading, you know, uh, the, the way to defeat COVID-19 is to get out there and exercise and get off your ass. So good luck uh, investing in, 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 in a treatment. Vince, let's go to Vince, who I believed is, I don't know, where are you Zooming from, Vince? Uh, Florida. From Florida. Yes. Uh, it's not really a question, but uh, uh, I do my daily uh, kind of COVID uh, updates with uh, Dr. Uh, John Campbell from uh, Britain. Uh, I highly recommend watching him every day. He, he really does a good job. Um, but I had an original question. He, he pushes uh, uh, vitamin D a lot. I don't know if you've heard from the British. So did Irritable. That was the first thing Irritable told me to he's take. Got, he's got, oh, really? Okay, I didn't know Irritable, that. are you there? Okay, I thought I was going to get a lot of pushback. I was just like, I, I, I'm out of my realm. I'm just Irritable, like, are you there? Yeah, I mean, I'm still here. I mean, it's, it's certainly possible to take too much vitamin D, but you really have to try. So I if did. you're going to take a, a supplement that's, you know, potentially immunomodulatory. Vitamin D, vitamin D is probably a good one, particularly for respiratory viruses. Oh, cool. That's, that's great. And zinc, great and zinc you, he, irritable, you recommended zinc, right? I mean, I, I suggest that zinc might reduce the duration of symptoms in common cold type viruses, I believe, which it has been shown to do to some degree. 
There's a lot of people who seem to think that zinc is some sort of magic fucking bullet for this virus. It's not. Absolutely not. It might help. There's going to be very little downside to taking a small amount of zinc. So what okay, about smoking uh, cigarettes? Uh, I, Does smoking cigarettes I, help? <laughs> I have. I'm going to. Uh, thank you, Vince. Great question. Does smoking cigarettes help in the in the fight against COVID-19? And that's a serious question. They have discovered that. I just have one more question. Oh, you haven't. Who am I unmuting? Hang on. Let me. Oh, it's Vince. Okay. Hang on. For, okay. Hang on for one second. Let me ask Henry or Irritable. They say one of the reasons China's death rate is so low is due to the smoking. Have you heard Hard that? To believe. It was, in the, it was in the Economist. It was in the Economist. There's so, a lot of things that are in the Economist that are hard to believe, David. <laughs> okay. The listeners at home can't see the smug look on my face right now. That's one of the, the benefits to attending one of these uh, meetings via Zoom or telephone. Well, you can't see it on telephone, but I have a very smug look right now that you just want to punch it's like i have a very punchable face right now vince you had a uh, uh, you got you got the you, you got the kushner face i on, got huh? the kushner face uh yes Go, uh, are those crickets in the background have i told a joke uh, yes <laughs> i hear crickets um uh, no uh, uh you know dr campbell uh today just mentioned you know he goes over different countries and they're they're the different uh you know, the responses to the virus. And, uh, you know, maybe a month from now, it's, it'll be a different story. But right now, it seems like Thailand's doing a good job uh, just culturally with wearing the masks and uh, ventilating things. And so, in other words, it, the story was uh, this is an easy virus to, uh, to, to conquer in one sense. No, uh, that's actually not true. That they, 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 not? yeah, as I understand it, they, uh, young, everything that they think is true about the virus betrays itself in another culture. The, the well, fun- no, no, no. He, he he goes over like children coming down with it and it, it, it mutating, but just culturally, like as a as a Brit, he's telling everybody that they should be wearing masks, they should be ventilating. Uh, you know, just these these things that are very basic uh, about uh, you know. I, you know, a lot of this stuff, yeah, that's uh, Vince, that's I, I, you know, uh, I'm competitive with Campbell. I think we, I, I don't even know who he is, <laughs> but uh, I just want you listening to my show. I feel like you've been cheating on me. <laughs> Haven't they discovered that cities like Bangkok, Baghdad, and uh, New Delhi and Lagos, where people live on top of one another, they've been spared? Or is that reporting? I mean, Baghdad is claiming they have almost no COVID-19 cases, whereas Iran, they can't bury the bodies fast enough. Any truth to that? Is that alone? I mean, I'm not sure of how good the testing regimens are in those countries specifically. There, There may be some reason to suggest that people living in high density, low income countries that have potentially reasonably exposure on a more regular basis to the standard seasonal coronaviruses. Yeah, you're break. You're breaking up. Damn it! Excellent. 
you're breaking up a little. We, we, and we're going to wrap it up in two seconds. Let's go to JS. JS, where are you Zooming or calling from? Atlanta, Georgia. Atlanta, Georgia. That's right. How are, um, thi- how are things? Have you gone outside? Uh, yeah, actually. We've actually um, changed our state motto to um, Georgia. Um, uh, it's great to live here, and we're willing to die for you. <laughs> Okay. What is your question for ear? Did you get your nails done? I did. I got I got my nails done in my tattoo parlor. <laughs> They're actually doing a three for one tattoo. Nice. And I actually had uh, nails tattooed onto uh, onto my uh, tramp stamp, so it looks pretty good now. Um, wow, that's classy, man. Yeah. Take a lesson, Feldman. Yeah, this I is Georgia. Tr- we're talking about here. So. Um, it, I, I guess my question really re- revolves around. Uh, the D614G mutation. Mm. Uh, you guys are probably yeah. that one. I know it hit the news recently as being of particular uh, interest and stuff. So um, I know it. Um, it's uh, PCR. It takes less PCR cycles to kind of um, uh, recognize that, which means that may have a, a higher viral load, and that seems to be the one that's kind of picking up steam. Do you guys um, know, and maybe more for the uh, irritable immunologists, um, is that the strain that we're focusing, uh, or is that the mutation that we're focusing all, a, a lot of the virus research on, or are we still just doing general, um, vi- you know, or sorry, vaccine uh, research on, or... Uh, um, is it spread out more broadly a- across multiple spike mutations? Okay. Um, I, I, and we'll yeah. start with that. Okay. Thank you. We're running out of time. So you want to handle that irritable or Henry, you want to answer that? Henry, you want to. Well, if I can get it started. Yeah, ahead, yeah I'll, I'll get it started because this is actually one of the, there's two pieces of bad news that I was going to bring up to irritable. So I guess this will be the one for this time and the other one will get saved for next time. Um, and that's the other so, piece of bad news that there's going to be a next time. Wow. You have three pieces of bad news. Good news for me. I'm enjoying this. Okay. Me uh, too. Thank you for doing this, you guys. No problem, David. So just to get everybody up to speed that hasn't seen this, um, what was it JS? What JS was referring to yeah. was a, a new, uh, can't even say a paper. It's a preprint. So it hasn't gone through peer review um, and it hasn't been published yet, but it's been, put out on the internet to kind of speed up the dissemination of information um, that's showing that we've, and, and we've kind of known this for a while now, but what it's really showing is that we've switched from one strain of the virus to a different strain of the same virus. And when I'm saying there's a strain, there was a mutation at one specific point that we're focusing on here, which is in the spike protein and the spike protein. So you've seen pictures of, SARS-2 coronavirus, it's like a ball with little spikes coming out of that. The, the spike protein is the protein that's responsible for allowing it to enter our cells. Okay. The spike protein is also the protein that we've been targeting our vaccine candidates towards because if we can, uh, well, basically what we're looking at is if we can target the, the spike protein, we'll be able to target the, the virus as a whole. Now with this mutation, it's been found that the, the strain that has this new mutation, which 
has overtaken the original strain now in terms of how many people have it. It's much more virulent in terms of uh, it's much more transmissible. People catch it much more frequently, and people have a higher viral load, as was mentioned. It's not necessarily more deadly, but it'll spread a lot faster. The biggest problem that we have with that is that it might really throw off some of the vaccine research that we have because most of the the vaccine candidates that are being worked on right now were working under the assumption that we were having that original spike protein. And now we have a mutation. So whether or not those can- those vaccine candidates would still be effective against it is up in the air. So uh, now I'll toss it over to uh, irritable immunologist for his thoughts now that I've got everybody kind of up to speed on that. Thank you. Yeah, I'd say I'm more, I'm more or less agree with, with almost all of that. I would say that the, there's not an in vivo demonstration of increased transmissibility. They're inferring that from the fact that it does appear to be taking over populations relative to the strain that don't have this specific mutation. Right. Uh, whether this will alter vaccine design considerations, it assuredly will alter people looking at the spike. Uh, the, the issue is that this is, this is a, a mutation that's happening I talk about this a bunch. RNA viruses mutate all the time. RNA viruses less so than others in their group, but they still mutate. The critical bit here is that this is a amino acid substitution in the core section of the spike that that mediates the binding between the ACE2 receptor and the spike. So this is in what's called the RBD, the receptor binding domain. It's smack dab right in there. And not only is it an amino acid substitution, it's a substitution from aspartic acid to glycine. And what that means is that this is a substantial chemical change of this amino acid residue. Instead of having an acidic polar amino acid, you now have a largely non-polar amino acid, and it appears to spread better. So this almost certainly is an example of the virus adapting to a new host. This is a zoonotic. This came over from bats. And so we have this single amino acid substitution that at least appears to in- increase its ability to spread rapidly, to infect large numbers of people. And, and as the caller mentioned, Henry mentioned, if you take controlled doses of this version of the virus and the original version, and you dose them into the, into the cells at the same time, this new virus will reproduce more rapidly. Okay. In, uh, in a very controlled circumstance. I, I, you know, I, I want you to come back. I'm honored that you two have, have done this, and I'm honored by the number of attendees who showed up. But you won't come back if I let this drag on and on. So let's take our last question from Invisible Ninja. It's great to see you again, Invisible. I'm going to keep doing that joke. It's great to see you, Invisible. Oh, man. Glad to be here. I, I can't turn on my video. Why can't I do that? That's okay. You're Invisible. Well, I know. That's what I wanted to show you. Oh, okay. All right. <laughs> hey, um... Well, I had a, I have a few questions, but I'll keep it kind of quick here. Um, I originally wanted to ask about the, the potential of the virus affecting the red blood cells. Um, the initially you were talking about malaria and like maybe like thalassemia and some of these other forms of anemia in which that red blood cell is protecting it from malaria. So I'm wondering if this virus is attacking those red blood cells similar to some of these other things. And maybe that's what's causing that genetic mutation in some of these groups of people to be more protected? 
Okay, that's it. That's it. I know that's that Harvard. I know there's something in Harvard and John Hopkins. They just released something a couple of weeks ago talking about this effect on the red blood cells. I just haven't looked into a whole lot of info after it, so I was just going to see what you guys thought on that. Here's what we're going to do. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to do a cliffhanger. We're going to answer that question next week, Invisible, because we're out of time. And I have to be respectful of Henry and Invisible. And I'm going to say this one more time. If I let this go too long, and it did go too long, you will not come back. Henry and Invisible won't come. uh, uh, Irritable won't come back. And Invisible, you won't come back. You really will be invisible. I have to keep these things shorter. So I want to thank Henry Hakamaki. You are... You are fantastic. And I met you through this show and uh, you are you are just terrific. And I want to thank Irritable Immunologist, who's on the front lines. You met in prison. We've covered this. I met in in prison. We don't need to go infinitely more funny than me, as well as uh, (laughs) more of an expert in coronaviruses. Yeah, I met him in prison was a different type of viral load. But we were so. um, Yeah, that's fair. Okay. Okay, uh, and irritable immunologist. I met you through the show. You wrote me an angry, angry letter. You contacted me and set me straight, and you told me this is the story of our time, and you are absolutely right. So thank you. I hope you will come back as well. I'm going to mute you f- for your sound, and I want to thank the people who attended today Uh it's truly amazing. I we didn't. I kind of hogged the conversation, but it's to be continued next week. I want to remind everybody that we have a Zoom party every Friday night at nine Eastern. You're invited. It's office hours. I. It's turning more into uh, an after party for the listeners and the guests, and it's a lot of fun and it's very edifying for me. I kind of figured out what what the what after hours really is it informs the the show it it helps me figure out how to book the show and where to take it so i invite all my listeners to go to davidfeldmanshow.com hit the after hours button and please sign up and join you can join via phone via zoom you can turn your video off and we can a lot of people make connections that can you hear the sirens? They're coming for me. Everybody, thank you so much. Please stay on the line. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program, you sad, pathetic hump. We're going to talk murder hornets with Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. She's back. She's an internationally recognized animal behavior expert. And she has two books that everybody should go buy. One is Raised by Animals, The Surprising New Science of Animal Family Dynamics with Try-at-Home Lessons from the Wild. I can't think of a better book to try at home if you're uh, stuck at home. And Wild Connection what animal courtship and mating tell us about human relationships. 
We've invited our listeners to join us via Zoom or phone. They have questions they want to ask the good doctor. Hello, Dr. Jennifer Vertolin. Hello, how are you doing? Well, I want to ask you about murder hornets. I want to ask <laughs> you about the love connections that oh, yeah. that I think you've made that will be revealed tonight at our Zoom party, Friday nights at 9 Eastern. I want to ask you about that. And I want to ask you about this this COVID-19 thing that's going on. We did a long segment with the irritable immunologist and Henry about this. Mm-hmm. I have, I try to temper my temper. I, I, you know, I tend to say this is either the worst or the best, or it's, you know, Donald Trump is the worst. Everything is either horrible or great. But in the end, it's right down the middle. But uh, I made the mistake of saying COVID-19 won't be as bad as we think it is. Nothing is ever as bad as we think it is. And maybe we'll get lucky. And then the numbers started coming in. And now I found myself saying this is horrible, horrible, horrible. This, <laughs> So right. uh, I, I don't like to go, you know, be an extremist. What do you mm-hmm. think? I mean, you're reading about this. I studied up on it for this show and I started to get I thought wow this is really bad yeah it's not great (laughs) um I mean look you know I think that there's there's a couple of things that trouble me that that aren't really the disease itself the disease itself is quite troubling uh, right and and we know that it spreads easily we know that asymptomatic people Transmit it and up to 30% of people can be asymptomatic. We're starting to see that for some young people, including children, there might be some more serious complications than were previously realized. We know that if everybody wore a mask, everybody and stayed six feet away from each other, we could demolish this. Yes. It would take time, but we could. Yes. And the idea that we're going to get a vaccine in six months to save us all is fanciful at best. Um, yes. Um, <laughs> no, no, it, well, you're saying exactly what I've concluded. But, yeah, you're, and, but you know what you're talking about. Well, and, and, you know, and at the same time, you know, the, the sort of um, the, there's a missed opportunity for collective uh, cooperation. There is a lack of transparency. Like we've, we've accused China for not being transparent, but you know, we are, are exemplifying a lack of transparency at all levels of government. Oh, I think Trump is, I think Trump is transparent. I think we all see. No, no, no. What I'm yeah, saying know, is that, know. you know, they're silencing scientists. They're, uh, we're not quite at throwing them out of windows, you know. Uh, or having them accidentally fall. Talking about Russia. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, or, yeah. or whatever. Yeah, I, I'm not naming any names. I don't know right. anything, you know. Uh, right. <laughs> but but I do think that, um, you know, there's a it, it, there's a great disparity in risk. There's a great disparity in economics. There's a great disparity in knowledge and uh, education and communication about what you really need to do. I mean, I went for my one walk yesterday. I, I walk on the golf course when nobody's on playing and I can walk and avoid. It's wide enough that I can move 
And as I'm coming back to my apartment, there are 20 teenagers, a gaggle of teenagers, and, and then three adults off center, but they're blocking the road. It's the only way I can go. And so you know, I feel like I'm walking in a minefield and it covered my, my face with my shirt. Um, were they and, wearing masks? No, no, no. They were having a party. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it's infuriating because, you know, people who want to be irresponsible and remain uneducated or politicize a disease that is really doesn't care. It is, mm-hmm. it is a, it is a, 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 a pathogen that has its own agenda and it could care less. And the fact that they want to do that, it's not, they act like it, it has no impact on anyone else. And, and this is false. And I've discovered, this is what I've discovered here in New York City. And it's undeniable. I mean, you hear the sirens all day. You cannot deny that they're, that you're in, in the epicenter of this epidemic. People don't wear masks. And right. I have, you know, I don't want to come across as the I want to speak to your manager guy because right. I I really don't go outside, so I keep my mouth shut. But I I got the the garments necessary to mingle with the world. I have latex gloves. I have a pretty nice mask, and I can cover my eyes. And I'm thinking exactly what you said. I can live my life this way. I can go outside if you give me enough hand sanitizer. Right. And enough Lysol and enough latex gloves right. and, and, and a mask. Right. I am not afraid to go outside and shop and go for a walk. Right. And be around people. And I but, thought the same thing you said is that I, I think you can crush this virus. It can't be spread that way. Go ahead. Well, I'm sorry. well but you, you, you're mistaken that you're safe if you're wearing a mask. They can't right, so, spread it. Right. Explain that, please. Okay. So both of you, so basically, I mean, the mask, any uh, mask of approved fabrics that are known to provide some barrier, some protection, uh, you know, reduces your risk by some percentage, right? Uh, and, and that's great. The problem is that if an infected person is not wearing the mask and they don't know that they're infected or they do and they don't care or whatever, you you only have marginal protection. Mm-hmm. But if both of you are wearing a mask and staying six feet away, the fact that they're not respirator masks is okay in the sense that the transmission risk is even lower. So to me, I do not feel at all comfortable going out and about shopping where everybody or at least the vast majority. I went to the supermarket for the first time in six weeks the other day. Yeah, yeah, that sounds very similar to me. And and I, I'm not going to do it again anytime soon uh, because about 80% of people were wearing masks. All the staff were wearing masks, and there was plexiglass. And But people weren't staying six feet away who had or didn't have masks on, both, Um you know, I, I tried to choose aisles to go down where no one was in. I had one aisle that... This is what uh, I'm, I'm going to interrupt you because we have listeners who want to ask you questions and I want to talk about murder hornets. I want to tell you, though, what I experienced. So I go to the, the supermarket and the gentleman in charge of keeping people six feet away from one another 
has a mask dangling around his neck and he's not wearing oh, yeah. it. And I, so I walk up to him. I said, you're the role model. He goes, what? <laughs> I go, if you're, you're the guy keeping six people, six people, six feet away from one another. Right. And making sure that everyone's wearing masks. He goes, oh, okay. And, you know, and I'm feeling like, oh, I'm the, I want to speak to your manager guy. And right. I kept asking him to put the mask on. And I, I'm thinking, you know, I'm the coward. I'm the one who used Instacart. I'm the one who wasn't go. Now I feel it's safe enough for me to go out. This guy was going out there every day mm-hmm. at, when nobody really knew how bad. The, and, and, and so I talked to him and then I talked to his friend and they're, they start going down the conspiracy theory, the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the only want you to wear the mask because it's, it's cosmetic. It, it, it's the illusion that we're doing something to fight this virus. If you're going to get it, you're going to get it. There's no way to stop it. We need herd immunity, right. herd immunity. And yeah. they have their own narrative. Right. In the age of Trump, I'm listening to them thinking, a, they're absolutely right for thinking this way, and maybe this, you know, maybe they're right. And and who am I to tell somebody who's been out there for five weeks while I've been cloistered, relying on Instacart? Who am I to say put on your mask? And there's another. There are two elements. It's a socioeconomic element, and it's a racial element. Mm-hmm. Because uh, these people are not Caucasians. Some of them are not, uh, f- you know, they're not first generation Americans. There, there's a whole other thing at play here. And uh, I mean, so so I just want to point out that it's not just the age of Trump where you have this kind of thing in in the time of the Spanish flu, which they're still not sure where it originated. I thought it was Omaha. They're not, it's not 100%. It's not 100%. That's the first place it was detected, but that doesn't, they haven't been able to scientifically and empirically prove its origin. There have been many speculations about where it came from. Okay. Um, so, but, but the point is, is that there was the same argument. There were people who didn't want to wear face uh, coverings. There were cities that didn't want to stay closed. There, and, and, um, you know, there were asymmetric, consequences for that and so the one thing as a human species we're good at is repeating past mistakes mm-hmm. <laughs> we're really quite quite good at that and and so it's not surprising that we're seeing the same economic arguments the same uh you know uh face arguments the you know there were cities that stayed closed, where schools stayed closed. Uh, everybody had to wear a mask, and and there was no spitting, and you know you stayed six feet or more away from each other, and those cities did better. Right. Uh, you know, and and so I just want to point out that these kind, this kind of narrative or dialogue, you can call it something else, like it's got a new label, and it's you know there's a a, a new uh, a, 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 it's like it's like rompers. It, they came back, right? But somehow they look better. Uh, you know, they're dressed <laughs> yeah. up, but they're still fundamentally a romper, and you still have a problem going to the bathroom. Right. So I don't know why rompers came back, but it's just repackaged and remarketed. Right. And it's not new. And so 
you know, the only thing to say then is, well, what happens for the people who want to stay home who, because they don't feel safe because their community is not responding responsibly um, to this or we don't have the economic, you know, infrastructure to permit that? Uh, how do you stay safe? Right. 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 And 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 I you know, look, I'm a scientist and I've had people say, well, I can do what I want. And and, you know, uh, we're going to get a vaccine and then everybody should be mandate mandatory vaccinated or you don't have a job. And, and if you don't like that, then stay home. Yeah. And I was like, that's not really intelligent discourse, right. you know, about <laughs> a lot of issues. So so I think that. um I want to speak to the virus's manager. We have let's <laughs> let's talk about murder hornets in a second. Let's okay. go to JS. Hello, JS. Where are you zooming from or calling from? Uh, I am zooming from Atlanta, Georgia. Oh, hello there. How are you? Hi. Hello, hello. Um, so I had two questions for you, um, Dr. Bertelin. Um, again, thanks for for doing these. You're you're really a great. Um, person to hear from every week. Um, the first one is about the murder hornets. I'm wondering, okay. um, uh, are they, do they impact like the honeybee population in, in the world or do they attack bees in general? Um, so that's my first question, uh, and any other information around that? The second is, do you know which, um, version of the the SARS um, uh, two virus mutation animals are actually getting infected with. Okay, so a couple. Great a, a, all right, yeah, that's great. So let me. Uh, which one do you want me to take first, JS? You want me to tackle murder hornets, or do you want me to? Dealer's choice. It? Let's do okay. murder hornets because it okay. sounds like fun. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, only if you think about bits of bee bodies scattered all over in carnage, I guess. It's fun. So, so, uh, JS, to answer your question about murder hornets, they, they will, uh, they tend to prefer hive dwelling bees. So, um, in that case, there's many honeybees. Um, there's the European honeybee, which is the one we have, which is, uh, um, you know, uh, the one that is potentially at risk. So the adept, but, but the ones in, um, Japan, uh, the Asian sort of honeybee has had some adaptations. So to, is the murder hornet from Japan? Well, it's from, it's the Asian, uh, giant hornet. And what is and, the difference between a hornet and a bee? Uh, so I, ooh, that, well, hornets are like wasps. They're in a different group than bees, right? And can they so, can they breed? Do they have sex? Do the hornets have sex with each other? No, bees. Oh gosh, no. No, 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 no. No. That would be odd and Im- probably impossible and certainly um not fun for the bee since they get decapitated. Different species? Yeah, they're different groups. Yeah. Right? So wasps and bees they're they're insects, um but so are termites, right? So right. it would sort of be like does a does a wasp or a hornet um, mate with a termite. No. So they, um, they are eusocial like many honeybees. So the Japanese honeybee has, because they have experience, they've co-evolved with, um, uh, Asian giant hornets. They have a, uh, ambush defense. 
So, so what people might not realize is the speed at which honeybees, um, like in the morning when they're cold, they, they beat their wings really, really fast and it raises their body temperature, right? And that's how they kind of warm up. And it's like they're calisthenics in the morning. And so when, uh, the Japanese honeybees, uh, basically when, when a hornet scouts, so they send out a scout, uh, just like honeybees send out scouts to find food because hornets, these hornets are carnivorous and not vegetarians. They're scouting for honeybee hives. So when they find one, when the scout finds one, uh, basically the honeybees maybe, uh, lure her in with the sweet honeybee smell. And once the hornet enters the hive, they, they jump on her like a bunch of them and beat their wings really, really, really fast. And they create so much heat that they kill her. Wow. Yeah. So now some of the other honeybees that are part of that ambush process also die of heat, right? But, but they're creating so much heat that they, they cook and kill the scout so that the, the hive of hornets never finds them. Wow. European wow. honeybees have not developed this protection because they have no experience, right? They don't have this predator. It's, it's no different than a flightless bird having suddenly a cat or a, a, right. a weasel, you know, arrive on an island and the, the, the bird doesn't know how to fly and it has no predator recognition whatsoever. So this is the concern because what happens when a Asian hornet scout finds a hive, other hornets come, they move in, they decapitate the adults. So they basically, there's scattered heads of bees everywhere and they eat the babies hmm. and they stay in that hive for a little while while they eat up all the baby larvae, the baby bees. Okay. Uh, we're, so, we're, we're, we're short on time. So JS, uh, do you want to ask your second question? That's re- we should do. Talk about that this. Was, that was really way more carnage than I expected. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so it's quite worrisome for our, although our honeybees, by the way, are an invasive species. We just like them because we use them for agriculture. They're not native to the United States. We brought yeah. them here, right? If it, but was it, car- if it was carpenter bees, I would have been really happy with it. But the, the fact that it's honeybees is, is upsetting. But my well, second question okay. was. This is um, so interesting. I, I could do an hour on. Yeah, be more was, than that. Was Go ahead. What's your next question? Uh, I want to ask. It, what- it was it was just the CO the the SARS two um, right. mutation that animals are getting, like the tigers, the minks, the cats, the dogs. Right. Um, do you know which version that is? Um, is it the same one that uh, humans are getting, or is it a, a, a mutation in itself? No. Okay. So I just want to be clear that um, what we know is that it is there are several species uh, and, and dogs included that have have been found to contain um, live virus, you know, bits. And so they, they test positive, but that doesn't mean they're infected. So those the, the little pug, you know, that, that coughed and didn't eat its breakfast, what they find is they find the virus in their, their nasal cavity, but that does not mean that the, the pug is infected. And we still uh, are, at least the current uh, thinking is that they, they're getting, they're picking it up like a surface, from their owners who were sick. Now the cats and ferrets um, are 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 different situation in the sense that, and I think I've talked about this before. We know that they're sensitive to the to coronaviruses in general. They're more likely they have their own coronaviruses that they get sick with that we don't get from them. 
Um, but so, so in general, uh, cats like the tigers and lions and domestic cats that have gotten sick, uh, they're getting sick with the same one because they're getting it from their owners. And, uh, most of them may be asymptomatic or mildly asymptomatic. Um, it doesn't seem to make them super sick, uh, right? And there's still no evidence that they transmit it to people. They're getting it from their human owners. Now, what that means though is if you have a dog and you have coronavirus, uh, this, this SARS-2 COVID-19, uh, then, um, you can, uh, transmit by coughing and sneezing on things and your dog licks and, you know, uh, licks your face, licks your nose. In theory, they could then go lick somebody else's nose and face and they've got a few live virus particles. Although the argument about whether viruses are alive, infectious viral particles, um, is still questionable, but that they have been advising in all the veterinary associations globally, plus the CDC and the World Health Organization have from the beginning advised that you keep uh, your contact with your pets, if possible, minimal if you are sick, uh, because especially if there are other people in the household that are not sick, because it's like surface transmission. It's no different right. than, right. you know, than that. Now, the cats that the two cats in the U.S. that got sick, their owners had coronavirus uh, and they got sick, presumably from their owners with the big cats at the zoo. We know it was an asymptomatic keeper that obviously had close contact in feeding and preparing the food for the big cats. Um, the test that's being used on animals is not the same test as people. So we're not stealing. They're not stealing our tests. Um, it is the same virus. It is not a different virus. But JS, you bring up an issue of there's, there's. Well, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, okay. I'm gonna, this is. Okay, you're be, moderating. I'm sorry. I'm no, 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 no. I, I, I'm so grateful. Me. No, these are great <laughs> questions, but we have to, uh, JS, those are great. I, I, I'm so curious about the murder hornets, and now I have something <laughs> to study up on. Let us now go to Great Britain. Where Ricky is standing by, how how are you today in Great Britain? I'm I'm feeling probably as tired as you, David. Um, but you you've probably been doing a bit of editing on top of uh, getting to bed at six in the morning. So uh, uh, you'd be amazed at how much time I waste. Go ahead, <laughs> uh, Doctor Jen. Good to good to be with you again. Uh, yes. Evening. Um, I I uh, I was really curious. Um, uh, there's a few things on the Hornet question I was interested in from Good. a U.S. perspective. Just just broad brush, do you guys have any indigenous Hornets or is that just uh, something that's um, brought in from Asia? And then I was going to talk about something that we've that I sort of had in, in, our, uh, in our area. I live very close to the centre of London, so I'm about a mile and a half, two miles away from uh, the hospital that... Uh, the PM Johnson was at a couple of weeks ago. Was he so intubated? Right. Do you know if he was intubated? Was he on a No, he didn't. Okay, he didn't. go he ahead. Didn't, I'm sorry. Go he ahead. He didn't, he didn't get. Uh, he didn't get into that state, okay. which was lucky for him. Um, but um, yeah, the, we've had just. It's been quite amazing. We've had loads of wildlife, which you just wouldn't expect to see. You know, a mile and a half from uh, Big Ben, 
Uh, and um, we've had like wood pigeons and loads of birds that you never see, that squirrels yeah. and everything are quite happily running around and, and doing all that kind of stuff. And um, out the kitchen window the other um, day, I saw a, um, a blackbird sort of raven crow type thing actually take a, I don't know if it was a sparrow or something, but it took a bird like just right outside my window. Oh, it's yeah. Slightly, slightly interesting. But, you know, what's, what's the likelihood if we, I mean, obviously you guys aren't quite so in lockdown anymore, but across, across America and across the world, how, how likely it is to, to be witnessing proper wildlife, you know, <laughs> living, dying, <laughs> keeping yeah. the cameras thing. Oh, yeah. Well, it's so great question. So the first thing I want to say is we do have a sort of hornet, but it's uh, it's in the Vespa, which is in our wasps. But we they're really uh, yellow jackets, even if they're called the hornets. Yeah, they're smaller. um, Right. And and so, um, you know, so so ours are our yellow jackets. Um, It's common. uh, It's a predatory social wasp. So they are social Mm -hmm. as well. And so, so yes, we have sort of our own version, but they don't, uh, they don't, uh, attack honeybee hives, right? They're not, they're not like that. So, um, so that's the first question. The second one, it's, it's interesting because I wasn't gonna, I, I don't think I'll make a video because it was starting to get too morbid. But, um, speaking of decapitating bees, I'm finding a lot of decapitated animals along my route that I walk. Um, fresh kills of a rabbit. I mean, the head was just off to the side. I must have stumbled on it, uh, you know, and disturbed whoever is probably, uh, you know, a, a, a hawk or, or, or something else. Um, it, it, and when I came back on my, from my route and passed it again, the body was gone and the head. And I was like, okay, uh, that was quick. Uh, there was a quail, uh, just decapitated, <laughs> you know? So and is so- this because fewer humans are out there? So the animals are more emboldened. Well, it's not. The- so here's the thing. The reason why a lot of wildlife has departed from some of these urban environments is, is not, is because it's too noisy and especially for birds. And so some of the things, uh, uh, Rariki, that you're, is that the right way to pronounce your name? Yeah, yeah, absolutely okay, great. Right. Um, yeah. it, it is because it's quieter, right? And so, so the ones that have remained when we are at our full force of activity are those that have found some way to navigate around or, or have such a broad range, if you will that they can tolerate a lot of different environments much more easily. They can eat different foods. They can, um, you know, but yeah, ravens, uh, if it was a raven, so I'm following a little raven family and the, the, the hatchlings are now in flight lessons. Um, and, wow. uh, I'm sure they, uh, you know, will. What do you mean be- flight lessons? Well, so mom and dad are playing tag team. So their nest was up in a really huge tower, like really high. I figured if I was born a raven, I would be squawking like a sissy if I had to get out from that height for the first time, you know. That's just terrifying. And I think one of them is a sissy, but, you know. Right. (laughs) But so so they, I've been watching them for weeks. And then yesterday, uh, I'm sure it wasn't their first flight day, but so what's happened is, one of the adults stays at the tower at some different height than the nest. The other adult is on the roof of the library, which is, this is in a big parking lot. Um, and, and then, uh, calls 
and the youngsters fly from the tower to the library roof, and then the other one squawks, and they fly back. And and one of them, you know, was let. And then the the one of the parents. So they're both, uh, you know, they're, they're you can't really tell the difference between the male and female. So I'm just going to say parents. One of them uh, left to try to encourage the the squawking. Like, I don't. Where's everybody going? Right. And that was scary. Uh, you know, youngster uh, back and and it stayed on that roof and just squawked and squawked and squawked and right. squawked and finally. It, it, it flapped its wings and hopped a bit and then it took off and it made it. And uh, then they repeated, you know, they're back on the roof and back on the tower and just kind of back. And, I'm gonna, and I'm, part of learning, wait, I just want to say that's also part of learning the space around them and how to get mm-hmm. home and, and, and so they don't get lost. So, you know? so cute. So cute. Yes. So cute. Well, Ricky, <laughs> did, did the doctor answer your question? Oh yeah, amazing! Yeah, Great. really fantastic knowledge. Really, <laughs> really is. She knows. I mean, I, I always say this. Uh, I met her on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, and she <laughs> just knows her stuff. I mean, just like it—it's such a privilege. Hey, Wild Connection TV. Who's in that hole? I watched it last <laughs> night. It, that that you are upping your Wild Connection TV game. Subscribe. Thank you. Yeah, if you want to see Dr. Jennifer Vertolin talking about desert holes and out in the wild in the Sonora Desert, subscribe to Wild Connection TV. That is a great, fun channel. Raised by Animals, the surprising new science of animal family dynamics with try-at-home lessons from the wild. Buy it and you're at home, so try some of her Experiments, Wild Connections, what animal courtship and mating tell us about human relationships. Very quickly, tonight at 9 Eastern, our, our after hours, our, after, uh, our <laughs> office hours, after party, 9 p.m. Eastern. Do we have a love connection? I don't know. I mean, maybe they, like they got to come back and fill us in, right? I, yeah. I have no crystal ball here. I, I Like I said last time, if, if they don't, they don't come tonight, then I'm going to uh, use the absence of data to make a complete conclusion right. uh, that they are madly in love and, uh, you know, and, and are busy getting to know each other. Good. Virtually. virtually. <laughs> this is interesting. People are, are that's the great thing about the uh, office hours, that people are making different types of connections and, and it's it's fun. So uh, if you want to come to office hours tonight go to davidfeldmanshow.com hit the after office we're calling it office hours i'm beginning to call it the after party okay but it's because <laughs> you know it's where the guests and the listeners can mingle but it's still called office hours you'll get an invite the room is very large and we go uh my favorite part is watching some of the younger attendees get wasted you didn't stick around, but there was some virtuoso drinking and smoking where you just went, wow, I remember that. Dr. Jennifer Vertolin is an internationally recognized animal behavior expert. Follow her on Twitter at Real Dr. Jen. Go to JenniferVertolin.com. Sign up for her newsletter and go to YouTube and sign up for Wild Connection TV and watch the good doctor. Thank you so much. Can you stand the line for one second? Sure. Thank, thank you. you. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program.
you sad, pathetic hump. Bad jokes. Bad, bad. I'm a bad, bad man. Here's a good, good man. A great man. Professor Ben Burgess joins us today from Georgia. You can see him every Tuesday night doing the debunk with Michael Brooks on the Michael Brooks show. He is a columnist for Jacobin and author of several books. Most recently, well, Myth and Mayhem a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. That just came out. The book previously is Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. And he has a new book coming out, which we'll talk about coming up in, in the weeks to come. Hello, Professor. Hello, comedian. We have listeners who have been invited to sit in and ask you some questions or just watch. We mm-hmm. will get to them as they raise their hand. Again, to the listeners, if you want to raise your hand, raise your hand, and I welcome your questions. I want to talk to you about your new book, Myth and Mayhem, Leftist Critique of Jordan Peterson, which you co-wrote with two other great minds. And then I want to ask you about Glenn Beck's book. You you said you weren't going to read it, but now you were photographed, I believe, reading Glenn Beck's new book. And I want to talk to you about what we discussed at the Zoom party, the the mm-hmm. office hours that we held Friday night. You came late to it last Friday because you had been debating Stefan Molyneux. Mm-hmm. And so we had a, an open discussion at the uh, after party. I call it after party. It's office hours. I think I'm going to call it after party. I'm going to change its name. And I asked you, I said, by going on Stefan Molyneux's show, you're stepping into the gutter and you cannot possibly win. Why would you do that? So my questions are, who is Stefan Molyneux? I guess he has a million YouTube followers. And by going on his show... Are you helping him? How can you possibly win a debate with a white nationalist? Explain who Molyneux is, please. Yeah. Um, well, I think Molyneux would deny being a white nationalist, although he certainly flirts with it. He would say he's a libertarian. Uh, he has some political positions that are obviously inconsistent with libertarianism, which was a lot of what I was giving him a hard time about in the debate. Uh, most notably his opposition to uh, immigration. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he is a... He's Canadian, uh, right? Yes, yes. Uh, between him and Jordan Peterson, Canada is sending us to their best. <laughs> uh, I'm sure some of them are fine people. Is he part but, of the... Into, uh, uh, he's, not, he's not exactly part of what sometimes... Call- Although there are, um, you know, there there are definitely points of connection. Uh, he had he did have Peterson on his show fairly early at uh, Peterson's rise, and uh, I think that some of his shtick uh, resemble. And oh, and he's been on Dave Rubin's show. Uh, Rubin is is often 
I don't think anything anybody would uh, mistake for an intellectual or somebody who knows how to read, but uh, <laughs> he's you know he is often the sort of uh, conduit and sounding board for the IDW. Um, and Michael and Brooks's fact, obsession. <laughs> yeah, I, I, he, he enjoys having some fun with uh, with Dave, but um, but. How did Molnu? How did Molnu rise to get a million subscribers? Yeah, on it's, 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 I might have said a million. It's not quite a million. It's like uh, I think something like nine hundred and fifty thousand. So um, it's certainly over nine hundred thousand. It's very close to a million. Okay. But uh, in any case, um, how did he get there? Uh, well, I think that um, part of it has to do with the fact, and I think this does tie into the Peterson issue too, right? Peterson's the subject of that book you mentioned, Myth and Mayhem, that I wrote with uh, Matt McManus, Comrade Harry Hamilton, and Marion Trejo, introduction by uh, Slavoj Zizek. Wow. Uh, so I think in both cases, part of, part of what they're exploiting is that they do talk not just about politics, but about philosophy, about uh, certain kinds of, of deep issues, even if what they have to say about it is shallow. That Are I they doing the reading? We know Dave Rubin doesn't do the reading, and we know that Jordan Peterson doesn't really do the reading. You said he only read the, the Communist Manifesto when he debated Slavo Zizek. But is Mal new? I mean, I look at him, he could be a biker. I mean, he looks yeah. like he, yeah. I mean, does he do the heavy lifting, the, uh, the reading? Really. So he, uh, apparently he has like a master's degree in the history of philosophy is what he says. If so, um, he, uh, he doesn't remember, doesn't seem to remember much of it. I know his, uh, I believe his master's thesis is online somewhere. I really want to track that down and see what it's like. But, um, but look, you know, uh, Molyneux is somebody who, like I said, I think he feeds on the fact that you know, he at least talks about philosophy a lot. And I think that a lot of people outside of academia have a hunger for for uh, hearing about those kinds of issues and thinking about those kinds of issues that's not being otherwise accommodated. Uh, he also is one of these reactionaries who makes a really big deal about capital L logic, capital F facts. Mm -hmm. um, and he has a book called The Art of the Argument, in which, um, in fact, my original running with Molyneux last year was was when I, uh, I made fun of him on Twitter for, in this book, The Art of the Argument, getting wrong the distinction between uh, validity, which is when the conclusion follows from the premises, and soundness, which is a valid argument with uh, all premises, which is something you literally learn on the first day of a logic class. He wrote a book called The Art of the Argument. He got it wrong, which is pretty sloppy. Uh, and then he he, um, <laughs> he banned me on Twitter, and uh, and then uh, and then just to you know we issued this debate challenge, which because we knew it would be ignored, and you know wanted to like have a little bit of fun at his expense. And he did ignore it for about a year, and then randomly he accepted it. Uh, I'm not at all worried that I think that, look, in a just world, I think people like me would have to worry about giving exposure to people like Molyneux. I think if you're worried about that right now, you're not living in the real world uh, because 
unfortunately, a clown like Molyneux has like 10,000 times the audience that any of us has. Uh, you know, we're not, we're not giving him exposure. What we are doing, you talked about how you can't win. And I'd say it depends what you mean by win. I think that you can maybe do a couple things. One is, you know, puncture a couple holes in the, in the sort of impression that he gives, um, of, of being that he carefully cultivates, mm-hmm. of being this like great mind who's unassailable. Um, and uh, two, I think, look, different people, I have no illusions that I can reach his cult-like hardcore followers, but somebody who you don't get up to the point where you have 900,000 and change YouTube followers with nothing but hardcore cultists. Uh, what I'm more interested in is the person who's maybe watched one or two of his videos and kind of likes them or is kind of curious but isn't hardcore yet, or the person who maybe was a little bit more into Baladoo and is now in a place where they're open to the idea that his, you know, what he's saying might not really add up uh, and that I could help them crystallize those doubts. Last thought about the uh, the value of this is that as absurd as a lot of what characters like this say is, I think sometimes it's a really useful exercise to have to explain exactly what's wrong with it. I think if we don't put ourselves through that exercise, I think we get lazy and complacent about what we think. And we're in our own echo chamber. So my, I haven't seen it yet, and I, I'm going to get to it before tonight's party. Did he let you talk, or did he shout over you? Um, it was a mixture. So I actually insisted as a precondition of doing it, that there'd be a moderator who wasn't one of us and that there'd be, I said we could do like a more free for all portion in the middle, but I insisted that there'd be timed opening statements, rebuttals and closing statements. And did he abide by that? Did he follow those rules? To an extent. Uh, so he followed the part about the opening statements, the rebuttals, the closing statements, um, and and he did abide by the time limits and let me talk during my part of those, uh, which was also good because he wanted to go first. So I could get the last. Did he word follow again. the thread? But, but, did he follow the thread of the argument? And what were you debating? Uh, so yeah, that's the part. Because uh, I don't believe he's capable. I don't believe anybody, including our side, is capable of following the thread of an argument. Well, I think there there are. There are people who do. There are certainly people who do who are, but uh, you're not wrong that there are many people on our side who are not. Right? Both of those things are true. Um, you know, in fact, probably the most utopian part of of my project and what I'm trying to do is to uh, is is to help people get better at that. Right. Uh, but uh, but look, uh, so. Again, he, he followed the time limits for the structured part in the unstructured part. Um, did he get he, angry? Uh, he, he's very, he has some training as an actor, which shows, and he's good at not letting himself get like visibly angry, but there was a lot of interrupting. Uh, and a lot of what's sometimes known as gish galloping where you, uh, where, a certain kind of uh, debater will just sort of wildly swing from talking point to talking point rather than, as you say, following the thread of it. Is that a German word? Uh, no, it's a reference to um, 
uh, it's a reference to some like creationist weirdo whose last name is Gish. Okay. I think that's where it comes from. But in any case, uh, who's very okay, fine. So at the end of the using this technique, but yeah, look, uh, what we were debating was um, the the official subject was the ethics of capitalism. Uh, but like I said, one of the things that I particularly wanted to nail him on within that was the fact that he justifies capitalism by using these libertarian principles, but that he ignores those principles every time they lead to a political conclusion he doesn't like, most obviously immigration. That a libertarian would believe in no borders, no... Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, a consistent libertarian would, would have to say that uh, we should let anybody, you know, any nonviolent person who wants to move around from area to area should, should be allowed to do so, right? I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a pretty obvious application of, uh, of libertarian principles. And, uh, you know, and, and some of the more consistent libertarians, still people I don't like, obviously, you know, because they are libertarians, but uh, like Jason Brennan, people like that would acknowledge that. Uh, he um, he uses all of these excuses to, um, you know, to ignore that, and he'll start talking about like how bad the consequences supposedly are, uh, ranging from uh, from the effect on wages to uh, how he said where he lives in Toronto, he has to hear the Muslim call for prayer five times a day. I have no idea why he thinks that's a that's a bad consequence, or actually, I think I do, but whatever. Um, but uh, but of so course, it's racism in search of wrapping paper. Yeah, definitely, and I think to and I think to the extent that you can um, can make that clear or make it harder for people to rationalize away, uh, that in itself is a win. Right, and at what point do you call him? either a white supremacist or a racist and lose the argument because that's so, what he is. So, I mean, that, that's what yeah, these people so, are. Sure. So, so my feeling, um, I mean, I think it depends on the context. Uh, you know, I, but like, I think that when, when I'm talking to them, I think I tend to think that it's a less effective rhetorical strategy to just, um, you know, go in there saying, you know, you're a racist asshole. Mm -hmm. uh, and and it's uh, because I think that's kind of what they're expecting. Uh, that's usually what their interactions with leftists and progressives are like. Uh, and they and anybody who takes them seriously has all this def these defense mechanisms against it, right? So I think if instead you could do something like, hold on, I thought you just said that you had these like right. rock hard libertarian principles. So even if it means the people die because they can't have health care, we have to abide by them. But suddenly we can violate them to keep out brown people. What's up with that? Right. Right. And so right. it raises the issue. Right. It's it's you know you're not letting him sort of keep all of the racial animus under uh, outside of the discussion, but um, but it raises it in a way that I think. Um, plays less into their hands, right? Because, like, I think a lot of these guys have this kind of, you know, say, oh, see, we can't even have a discussion without everybody saying I'm a racist and fascist, which is stupid, right? But I think that it's something that plays well for them, um, and it's it's worth thinking strategically about how to respond to that. Right. 
So what we saw in the 50s is the John Birch Society and the rise of Bill Buckley, who was a segregationist, and the National Review, and they put a sunny face and fancy words and an academic undergirding to racism. They, they, yeah, they were I mean, able I mean, to, there's five steps, five steps removed from racism. And, and so libertarianism is how old? The idea of libertarianism. Uh, well, I mean, it goes back to Locke, doesn't it? You can it? certainly so, talk about predecessors of libertarian ideas long before this, but I think in the, in the form we really know it, uh, what, what, like that, this kind of idea of what Americans call libertarianism, the word sometimes means very different places, other, you know, things, other places, uh, is, is mostly a 20th century thing. It's, uh, so, you know, people like, you know, it comes out of like people like Murray Rothbard, um, Wilson Friedman, uh, you know, these, these kinds of, uh, Hayek, uh, these kinds of, Early to mid to late twentieth century. Uh, I, I know that's a stupid thing to say. Early to mid to late. That's just uh, totally redundant. But you know they have like depending on which ones we're talking about, right? But but, but Hayek, I think, yeah, came by his. Well, I don't know enough about Hayek, but somebody like Ron Paul, Rand Paul's yeah. father, mm-hmm. libertarian. And when you scratch underneath it, there's racism. That his campaigns were run by racists. There was a racist newsletter that came out of Dr. Ron Paul's office that it seems to me that Ron Paul was able to get a following by putting an ideology to segregationism, to, to yeah, making up truth, truth to that. And by the way, there's a, like those Ron Paul newsletters with all the racist stuff in them. Um, Murray Rothbard, who's one of the major uh, libertarian figures I mentioned before is 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 one of the figures who I've at least seen people suggest uh, might have been one of the authors of that, those newsletters along with Lou Rockwell because uh, in the last stage of Rothbard's life he was all about this um, what he called fusionism you know with the sort of ally and with these kind of paleo conservatives like Pat Buchanan and you really saw that who is a racist I mean Buchanan is an inveterate racist yeah, for sure. Look, I think both of these things are true. That, like, on the one hand, um, I think there are people who take the official ideology of libertarianism seriously enough that they um, that they have, at least on some subjects like immigration, very unracist conclusions. But I don't think it's a coincidence that so many that there's so much racism overlapping with the libertarian movement, right? Like you mentioned the Paul family. I just mentioned Murray Rothbard and Lou Rockwell. Uh, you can come up with lots of other examples because because uh, if you think about a lot of the, the appeal of this, right, that they, what libertarianism does above all is it rationalizes the existing distribution of, of wealth and property and resources and obviously, in the American case, that distribution uh, reflects the racial history of the country, right? So, um, if you if you can't just come out and say, like, uh, you know, well, there's a famous 
quote from, well, essentially from Bill Buckley. It's an unsigned editorial for the National Review, but he was the editor. Um, you know, so he had to at least approve it. We possibly wrote it, right? You know, where he said, like back in the 50s, that, uh, that well, the reason uh, to, to support continued uh, white supremacy in the South against the civil rights movement was that uh, he, they used some phrase like, at least for now, you know, whites are the superior race or something. Black so people like, aren't, I think he said black people aren't ready to vote. Yeah, yet. yeah. Uh, that, that like so it's it's like a it's sort of wrapped up in this cultural bigotry rather than claiming it's genetic exactly but like it's also the kind of thing that it's much harder to get away with coming out and quite say that now right so if you but if you still basically don't want to um, to change those patterns of, of distribution of wealth resource property that are obviously informed by America's racial history, um, and are obviously wildly unequal between the races, if you basically don't want to change that and you can't just come out and say what the National Review said in the 50s, then you need a new reason. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, and then the libertarianism, because there are, there are bits and pieces, you know, like from looked at from a certain angle, some of what libertarians are saying you know, can sound intuitive. Right. Uh, and there, to, there seems to be t- two paths with libertarianism. There's political libertarianism when you look at the government. Yeah. And then there's economic libertarianism. And I think that's what Hayek was preaching, the, the, this mythical yeah. free market where there are no restraints. Uh, right. But the two are not necessarily the same thing. I don't think Milton Friedman or Hayek would be Racists, I think they genuine. Well, who knows? Uh, but I think they genuinely believe that unbridled capitalism is the answer, and get the government out of the way and let the animal spirits flourish. I don't think they yeah, yeah, perpetuate no, that it, to, to keep black people or Mexicans down. Do you? Uh, no, I mean certainly, and certainly but it's hijacked by a Republican Party that wants to. Yeah, I mean, certainly, in, certainly in Hayek's case, I don't think that's the that's the motive, you know, motivation, right? I mean, you know, that's that's you know, given that he, um, you know, wasn't an American, and those particular those particular pathologies are probably not part of of what's uh, informing him. And mostly, I would agree about Friedman, although I'd say that um, Friedman, uh, when he was sort of pressed to explain. Um, some persistent inequalities or when he was like, uh, okay, so for example, there's a famous Milton Friedman line where uh, somebody was saying, okay, but, you know, Sweden has all these social democratic things and, you know, and people live so much better there, right? There's so much less economic, you know, there's no, there's no poverty uh, in, in Sweden. And, um, and he said, well, there's no, uh, there's also no poverty among Swedes in America, his implication being that this is just a result of like, you know, the homogeneity of the, of the people, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. So like, uh, which of course is totally asinine. If you read, uh, Thomas Piketty's new book, uh, apparently there's a lot of stuff in there. Um, I getting you know, I, I just read a review right now. I had time to read the book, but you know, uh, there's a lot of stuff in there about the history of, uh, of how, 
social democracy came into being in Sweden, which 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 is from like really like fierce you know class struggle, right? That there was uh, that uh, that you know this isn't just it's not just that like Swedes are like hardworking and culturally homogeneous and like that like all the economic stuff just fell out of that. Right. They have a huge welfare state that came about as a result of prolonged political struggle that was resisted by all the interests that you'd think would resist it. Right. Uh, but, but yeah, I mean, I think that, I don't think that, that race, I don't think that desire to maintain a system of distribution that, that favors white people is the only possible motivation for believing libertarianism. I think there are lots of others. Okay. Right? But I do think that if you're looking for a rationalization for that, it's not surprising that many people have latched onto it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, we're talking with Ben Burgess. His latest book is Myth and Mayhem, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. And he recently debated the relevance of Noam Chomsky. If you have any questions, we will take them. Raise your hand if you'd like to ask Professor Ben Burgess a question. Before we take questions from our attendees, Noam Chomsky. So... They always accuse the left of cannibalizing its own. Not seeing your debate. I think the 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 question was: Is Chomsky still relevant? What 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 were you debating with the serfs? Uh, well, yeah. So the serfs were hosting it. Uh, the so Lance for the serfs was the moderator, as he has been for a lot of debates that I've done. Um, so what I was debating. Uh, was so the uh, Esha, who's this podcaster, uh, who who was the other party to the debate. Um, her her claim was the the left should well what she calls outgrow Chomsky. I think I think what she's talking about is actually regressing away, you know, from Chomsky is how I would think of it. So yeah, so what is the what, complaint what, against what, what, Chomsky that he's basically saying vote for Biden? Well, that's a lot of people's beef against Chomsky right now, and that's kind of how the debate happened in the first place because I um, I posted some grumpy stuff about people complaining about that, right? I said if you uh, basically if you think that Noam Chomsky is a liberal, you've lost the plot. Um, and in one of the responses to that, somebody said, "Oh, I'd love to see a debate between you and Esha about uh, Chomsky." Um, so and, let me ask you about this debate, because it seems yeah. to me that would be a more entertaining and enlightening debate because she's an honest. Uh, that's a, you're up against an honest interlocutor, whereas yeah. Stefan Molyneux is dancing around who he really is. You with the serfs, you you want the same outcome. I think you're debating on the map, like which map to follow. Is that fair to say? Uh, in a lot of ways, I think that's true, yeah. Okay. So with Chomsky, the debate was he's no longer relevant because he has said that the Republican Party is more of a threat to the planet, to, to mankind, than the Nazis. And that's really a hard pill for people to swallow, even though it's true. Yeah, so so to me... To be clear, uh, Ashley had other complaints about about Chomsky. I think maybe given the 
you know, people could watch the debate, right? Like, I mean, instead of, instead of going into all the details of that, you know, in what little time we but have. But did you walk away from that? I'll, I'll just, we, we, we could stick the link into the show notes. Yeah. But I, yeah. Will, I will just say real quick, on the subject you're raising, which, which did come up at least a little bit, uh, that, yeah, I, I think that, uh, I actually think one of the, one of the admirable things about Chomsky, right? That like, I mean, I don't think anybody should be above criticism. I think that if, uh, I, I certainly wouldn't, wouldn't dispute that there are, there are subjects that Chomsky doesn't really talk about that we should, et cetera. But, um, I think that, I think one of the best things about Chomsky is his ability to, uh, recognize complexity. Uh, without sacrificing moral clarity, right? So, in other words, um, I think he's I think he's honest enough that the same you know the same way that he can um, talk about um, you know U.S. imperialism without pretending that uh, that all of the countries that the U.S. has been in conflict with you know are utopias. Uh, I think that. I think that he can. I think he can talk about the sort of everything that's wrong with that Washington consensus shared by Democrats and Republicans. Really, savagely and correctly criticize the Democrats while still recognizing, as I think he should, right? Mm-hmm. And 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 this is something he's he's always you know he's always said, right? This is you know somebody pointed out. I just saw it in the chat, right? This is not a new position. For him, right? I mean, this is this has been his consistent position for a long time. That you know, whether he was talking about Kerry versus Bush or whatever, right? That he could say, "Look, um, both of these are are awful, right? Both of them represent interests that I don't like, uh, but that doesn't mean that uh, that doesn't mean that the differences don't make a difference. That like." When you have the kind of tremendous power that's wielded by the American presidency, um, you know, post World War II era, uh, even relatively small differences can can have can have massive outcomes. And I think we've I think actually what we're living through right now is a is a huge vindication of that. Yeah. Because yeah. look at the you know I don't think if Hillary Clinton was president I don't think we can be confident that she wouldn't have dragged her feet to a certain extent. About uh, locking down and taking protective measures against the coronavirus, Cuomo dragged his feet. De Blasio dragged his feet. Right? There's lots of foot dragging all around. But here's the question: Would she have dragged her feet quite as much as Trump did? And I think the answer is realistically no. And it, as far as small differences mattering a lot, uh, I've actually seen models that say uh, if we'd started taking preventative measures two weeks earlier. Uh, we would have ninety uh, percent fewer deaths, and right. if we'd had started taking them even a week earlier, we'd have sixty percent fewer deaths. Right. We're talking about competence as opposed to philosophy. Chomsky is he an anarcho syndicalist? Yeah, that- yeah. He, he he comes out of that tradition. Um, well, you know what? We're, it's, the time it's I promise to me how how much that really continues to inform right. his politics. I, w- I would now. love I would love to continue that and discuss that, but I promise to keep this at thirty minutes. And we have a lot of attendees, uh, but only one question. So let's go to you know, Paul. Paul. Hello, Paul. 
Paul can explain the Federal Reserve in three minutes, and 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 he's gonna uh, he's gonna explain the Federal Reserve to me in three minutes on this show, but not right now. What is your question for Professor Ben Burgess? It's related. Um, I I want to thank Ben again for his book. My favorite retort is the ad hominem response because I'm an expert on nothing. So it gets used against me a lot. So great. Comes in handy. I, I just want to up on uh, a comment that Ben made in response to my question last time, where we were talking about how we're going to pay for things. And right. Good. Kind of flippantly said, "Ah, we'll just tax the hell out of the rich," which I agree with. But then I went back and I actually looked at some of the numbers, and if you actually look how much money the rich actually have. It's maybe about five trillion dollars available, and that'll pay for one year's worth of coronavirus. And then after that, then what do you do? So my point was that there are other ways to pay for things, and just taxing the rich is very important. But it'll, it's it's not going to get you very far. It'll get you maybe a year and a half. Okay, thank so. you for that question. Do you want to, you respond to that? Ben, and then I'll let yeah, you go. So, and then, and then so, we will have Paul explain to me how the Federal Reserve, he claims he can explain the Federal Reserve in three minutes. Like, sure. Go ahead. Okay. Uh, that, that sure wasn't for Paul to be able to explain the Federal Reserve in the three minutes. I was just transitioning to answer his question. Right. So, uh, what I'd, uh, what I'd said, uh, at, at the, in answer to his question, uh, last time, if I recall, uh, was I talked about different funding mechanisms, um, including taxing the hell out of the rich, um, just printing money, um, you know, borrowing money, and we get worried about how to pay it off later. Uh, and Paul maintains, I believe, that you can't. Yeah. The Federal Reserve doesn't print money; uh, that they, that the banks make the money that's lent to them by the Federal Reserve, that the only, I believe he says that the only people who can print money is the, the Treasury. But go ahead. Well, if, if, I, if I recall, the setup to his question was asking about legally changing that. So right. um, so that the, the uh, government, you know, or through the Federal Reserve could could just directly print money. Um, and I, I, said it's a, I said it's a good idea. I uh, I think that um, and in my admittedly flippant run through of those options, right? The main point I was making was that there are a few different options, places to look for the money, right? That they that we could, uh, I mean, could have we could have listed off a few more too. I know you always say that I sound like a uh, you know a hippie ant at Thanksgiving when I say this, but I think that. Uh, Scaling back the uh, the globe striding imperial machinery of war would also be a good place to free up some money. That's about a trillion a year that we could find. Yeah, you know, it's, that's not you know, it's not nothing. You know, a trillion here, a trillion there. Before you know it, you're talking about real money. Yeah. Um, but look, um, you know, the the sort of overall overall point I was making is that there are advantages and disadvantages to to each of those each of these. I think even even the more sort of scrupulous advocates of, of MMT, modern monetary theory, will say that there's a, you know, even after changing the legal mechanism in this country, right, that there's a limit to how much you could just print money, given that we don't have like a single global currency. It has to maintain its, its value on the world market. Um, 
But first of all, I, I mean, I think that, you know, could go a long way before running into those limits, uh, as I understand it. Secondly, I think that now is not the time to worry this much about it, right? That I think that in a state of emergency, right, that um, we, you know, it's, it's like if on, on December 8th, 1941, you're like, okay, I, I, I hear what you're saying about how we need to start pouring money into the military, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. I want to see the budget numbers first. Right. Right? I, I want, right. Can you tell me about the funding mechanism? Um, so, but I, I certainly, I certainly take his more general point that um, that that taxing the rich is not actually going to um, you know be sufficient. Uh, maybe, maybe not even for um, as he was maintaining for like the immediate needs. Okay. Right, of, of coronavirus, or just wrap up the point real quick, right? Uh, it's certainly not for the kind of social democracy that we would both advocate, you know, going going forward. Uh, which is why I think you you do need to, uh, you know, I'm perfectly comfortable with saying the thing that you know used to be verboten in American politics. I think Bernie Sanders went a long way towards fighting this taboo. Right, although Elizabeth Warren still seemed to be trapped by it, which is, yeah, you also need to raise middle income taxes. That's okay though, because for middle income people, you're going to they're going to be getting much more back in services than they're giving up in taxes. Right, right. Uh, Paul, I'm sure Paul will come back to us next sure. week. Yes, let's go to uh, Georgia and talk to one of your neighbors, JS. Hello, Professor and uh, comedian. Thank you. Good, uh, good speaking with you guys again. Um, uh, so, Professor Burgess, I just wondered, as a recent transplant, if you've been following the Georgia-U.S. Um, Senate race, <clears throat> excuse me, in particular, uh, the three um, front runners of Amico, Ossoff, and Tomlinson, and if you had any opinion. I on, had dinner uh, with those. Tomlinson. Howie Klein and I had dinner with Tom Winston. Okay. And I wouldn't put her on the show because she was against Medicare for all. Yeah, which is the thing that I keep wrapping my head around because um, they're, all of their notes say that they're for expanding Medicare and uh, background checks on guns and those sort of things, um, opposing open borders, uh, abolishing private insurance. But then I keep hearing contradictory stuff, so I don't know if uh, Who do you like? you can expand. Who, who do you like? I'm still up in the air because I'm trying to figure out exactly which one isn't talking out of their um, backside, quite honestly, and 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 which one is. Uh, it's mean, interesting, Howie. Howie. Howie and I had dinner. Is it Jennifer Tomlinson? What's her first name? Teresa. Teresa Tomlinson, and he said you should have her on the show. I said, but you're not endorsing her. And he said, well, she's not for Medicare for all. She was very nice. She's the mayor of a small town. Macon. Macon, yeah. And she was nice, but you know, if you're not medic if you're not for Medicare for all, I don't feel like paying for this dinner, which I ended yeah. up having to pay for. Go ahead, Ben. Yeah. Uh yeah, I I would never I mean I would never vote for anybody in a primary, you know, who who wasn't for Medicare for all. Um, you know, that at least at least in the context of a primary, I think that should be a red line. Um, right. But, uh, but look, I mean, I, I don't, um, 
as, as you say, I'm relatively recent, you know, transplant. I'm not going to pretend to. Uh, to I think you're expert. a carpetbagger. I think that that's, would be the term, right? right? That's, right. That's, that's correct. Which is uh, which, 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 which. By the way, if you actually look at the origins of that term, that that should be. Uh, you are. That that should be a, a term a term of honor, one that I'm not sure that that I'm worthy of because it's because uh, whereas I am a, a northern transplant like the original carpetbaggers. Uh, carpetbagger was originally a uh, radical was, Republican was, trying to profiteer off the the South. Yeah, or or to put differently, trying to do things like uh, um, you know build schools for uh, for black people who've been freed from slavery and register them to vote. But uh, I think uh, and all their possessions were kept in a carpet. Correct? They would wrap up yeah, their. Yeah, that's, I, that is my understanding of it. They, their they used car. They used a carpet as as a bag to carry their possessions. Right. I think. I think that's right. Um, but but look, um, you know, I think that. Uh, I mean, I. I mean, you mentioned Ossoff. I mean, I have a little bit of familiarity with him from you know previous uh, previous race when the Democrats were you know pouring all that money into um, into the Ossoff campaign, and it it didn't go anywhere. Um, and and from what I knew about uh, Ossoff then, didn't sound it didn't sound too inspiring to me. But I'm certainly not going to pretend to be any kind of expert. Uh, Do you have two Georgia. Senate races in Georgia this year? Right. Uh, Republican, yeah, Republican uh, Loeffler is um, who I've met before several times. But um, she and uh, Doug Collins are in a in a heated. Uh, primary basically for it to, to take the seat that was given to Loeffler by Kemp. Um, and I misspoke earlier, by the way, Tomlinson uh, was the mayor of Columbus, Georgia, just for correction there. But let me um, do my Don Rickles. Like that's any better. <laughs> <laughs> well, make, make it the third largest city in Georgia, yeah, which I mean, uh, I'm, I'm a little, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty, uh, you know, right now, as a result of the uh, the 2020 presidential primary, when I uh, when I hear somebody is a uh, small town mayor, it uh, doesn't make me well disposed towards them. Yes, yes. But uh, but look, I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on Georgia politics. I'm, I'm nothing of the kind. Uh, I I think um, I mean I I don't nothing that I've heard um, you know about. Uh, that any of these people sounds, you know, sounds that inspiring to me, but, you know, but don't, you know, don't take that from me saying that. Uh, I hope that maybe someday uh, my uh, state senator uh, here in, in uh, Norcross, uh, Sheikh Rahman, who's the uh, uh, first Muslim ever to be elected to uh, any kind of state office, I think, certainly the state senate in Georgia, and it's like an our revolution endorsed Bernie crack. You know, maybe he could run for uh, for the uh, the Senate seat someday, uh, which would be fantastic. But uh, you know, but I, I I'm not. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think that I, I think that if you, I mean, I, I think that if uh, if you find yourself uh, confronted with a uh, with a Democratic primary. Uh, where where none of them can even at least pretend to be in favor of Medicare for all, you know, I certainly wouldn't yeah. bother with it. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Great question, J.S. Thank you, Professor Ben Burgess. Once again, you uh, were very generous with your time, and I think it goes without saying that you're hoping Joe Biden picks 
George's Stacey Abrams. Uh, I'm kidding. <laughs> she's turned out to be. She's turned out to be something to be to be to be discussed. Yeah, she's a word. Yeah, um, yeah. But we'll, we'll we'll hopefully you'll come. I, 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 I could I could. Yes, I know. In, I unless know. unless he experiences temporary insanity and picks and. Uh, and picks Bernie Sanders, in which in which case I'll be enthusiastic because I'll kiss the slim chance that Biden dies first. Uh, <laughs> I, I have absolutely no interest in who Joe Biden picks as uh, as his running mate. Frankly, I think anybody who's uh, who's positioning themselves for their job, the job right now, has has by doing that made themselves someone I'm not interested in. Especially because clearly a requirement right now to be taken seriously the Veep stakes is that you make some sort of statement about how Tara Reid is a liar. Yes. So, um, you know, they're all garbage. Uh, you know, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll take the, I'll take the, the, uh, the neoliberal technocrat who will at least have competent advisors uh, over another, uh, another four years of the aggressive right-wing administration. But I think that should be done with, uh, with no illusions whatsoever, you know, but right. ch- channel the spirit of the French communists whose slogan of the uh, Le Pen Chirac runoff election was vote for the crook, not the fascist. Right. <laughs> Fantastic. Professor Ben Burgess is author of Give Them an Argument, Logic for the Left. His latest book is Myth and Mayhem, leftist, a leftist critique of Jordan Peterson. He is a columnist for Jacobin. You can watch him every Tuesday night doing the debunk on the Michael Brooks show and Go to patreon.com forward slash Ben Burgess and get two of the professor's essays delivered directly into your inbox. Follow him on Twitter at Ben Burgess. Did I get that right? It's at Ben Burgess. Yep, that's correct. Thank you, professor. All right. Thank you, comedian. Great. Stay on the line for one second. You're listening to the David Feldman Radio Program. You sad, pathetic hump. Let's go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by. Barry W. Lynn, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, was the executive director of Americans United for Separation Church and State. From 1992 to November of 2017, besides besides being an attorney, is an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ? Absolutely. I got that right. Absolutely. Thank you. Welcome. He did not change his name. If he did, I'd write you. And then if it was United Church of Crisp or something, I would let you know in advance so you wouldn't sound foolish introducing me. Welcome, Barry W. Lynn, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Christ was not his name, right? Like Christ is is an Old Testament term, right? Yeah, he did not uh, refer to himself as Jesus Christ. He did say he was the Son of God, and that was interpreted to mean that he was Christ, because there had been in the 
so-called Old Testament for people who are not Christians who only believe in those books of the Bible. They anticipate the coming of the Son of God. Which is the the Christ. The Christ. Right, so it wasn't Joseph and Mary Christ and their son, Jesus Christ. (laughs) No, no, there wasn't. Okay, and and Mary was Jewish, correct? Uh, Jesus was Jewish also. Everybody was Jewish. So her name... In the family. Right. Joseph, Mary, Jesus, they were all Jewish. Okay, so... Mary, her real name would have been Miriam, correct? There's no record that it was, but it would be now, wouldn't it? It would be Miriam. Okay. And Jesus, was he adopted? I mean, I can't imagine a Jewish family naming their son Jesus. That doesn't make sense to me. Are the accounts, which some people take literally, but very few people actually. Now, I did a sermon that uh, I think one or two of your listeners actually attended at the Community Church of Boston a few weekends ago, and I did explain why Bible literalism is such a terrible way to make policy. And one of the many reasons it's terrible is because these are stories, important stories. Some have important moral messages. Some have spiritual guidance. But this is not the basis for developing political agendas. Unfortunately, here in Washington, so many religious right characters have so much influence over so many politicians. Yeah. That, um, now, Dan, one of our, what, the guy helps me out, Dan, uh, attended your sermon, and he has a clip. I'd like to play it for you. And that is bullshit. That is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn speaking. What was the name of the uh, organization you were speaking before? <laughs> Reverend? You know, I first used that. I I have been doing a deep dive into YouTube, searching for me. And uh, there's a lot of stuff. There's some stuff, though, with Barry C. Lynn, who is an anti-Walmart activist, written a couple of books. We used to get uh, each other's telephone calls when we were both more popular. And um, But I do find a lot of these. I found a presentation I gave at the uh, Feminist Majority Conference one year. I have a clip. I have a clip. This is the Reverend Barry W. Lynn speaking to feminists. And that is bullshit. Go ahead. Okay. So, I told you I would make a meal out of it. <laughs> okay, so I talked to them, and I happened to mention that Rick Santorum, Senator Rick Santorum. <laughs> who who um, people should Google, by the way. Always. Yes, they should Google him. Absolutely. S-A-N-T-O-R-U-M. If you, if you don't know who Rick he is. Rick Santorum had said something. I said, I had never heard this word before, but come to think of it, some of what the administration is doing sounds to me like uh, this is a word I just learned from Rick. Bullshit. Because he had said that to the New York Times when they asked him to comment on some controversy, and he responded with the word bullshit. Well, you taught yeah. me, you you counseled me as a, as a young parent. You, you taught me to tell my kids there's no such thing as dirty words, just dirty parts of the body. 
that you shouldn't be ashamed of what I think you taught me that. I don't think I taught you. No. Is it? Is it? You know, we, you know, I also I taught <laughs> I taught sex education in a Catholic girls' school. Did you know that? No, no. I did the Cardinal Cushing Central High School for girls. That has to woman. be the easiest job in the world: teaching no. sex education at a Catholic. Very difficult. I team taught it with a woman. This is how liberal this Catholic school was. The woman I co-taught with was a recent divorcee. So they had a divorced Catholic and a non-Catholic teaching hundreds of students about sex. And and, and yep. did you? Were there complaints? <laughs> no, because there? there was there was a tremendous amount of illiteracy. I mean, it was actually painful because every Friday. We would, we would let people put in anonymously questions for either of us or both of us. And um, there were painful questions. These are people who were probably in juniors in high school. It was, a, it was an integrated school. And uh, we'd have questions like somebody would write, uh, I, I slept with a black man, a white girl would say, I'm a white girl. I slept with a black man a year ago. Is it possible that when I have children later, they will be black. That's all they knew. I mean, and, and what is the answer? No. Okay. No. And this is the kind of thing, if you had sat in on my classes, I can guarantee you, you would know more than you apparently do know about matters of sex okay. education. Right. Yeah. All right. Teaching people don't even now. I think people joke about sex, but they're not really. They don't really under. They, like they don't. I don't think they teach sex education properly. In our, I mean, they'll teach. You know, they don't teach love. I mean, how can you teach sex without teaching love, and how much it costs, yeah. how much to pay for it. Well, you, you are generally correct. The, the teaching of sex education. In fact, for a while it was so controversial to call it sex education that they started calling it family life education. And Why don't then, they teach love? And I'm being serious. I'm, I'm, I'm Why don't they teach that. love? I'm going to get to that. But I wanted to tell you what happened after people started to survey what students thought of family life education. And they said, what did you think of your sex education? And they said, we didn't have any. We had family life education. They didn't even know what the topic was because there was so much pressure against using the words sex education. I'm going to ask you a serious question, the Reverend. Jesus is all about the love. Absolutely. It's all about love. Yep. How much... Time is spent at religious schools teaching love, how to love one another. There's actually more than you would expect. There's a lot of discussion about love, about the many kinds of love, the difference between the love that you would have with a wife or a girlfriend and the love that you would have for people in your community. And so you learn the Greek words, what the difference is and all of that. But there's also a lot of counseling classes 
that come up in the modern theological school. I mean, I never took Greek or Latin or, any, or Aramaic or any other language, but I took a lot of classes in pastoral counseling. So you might spend a semester talking about suicide, what to talk to people about. I, I, would, I went as a uh, chaplain uh, to places uh, serving alcoholics and drug addicts and uh, that's a lot of what you served alcoholics. What did you serve? Yes, I, I, I snuck it into the hospital <laughs> because I was wearing a collar. <laughs> it, was, it was really easy to get in. <laughs> you know, uh, I may have told you this once, but I lived in South Boston because this, this high school was in South. And um, this was the most Irish Catholic city you could find outside of say Northern Ireland. But, the, my wife and I would occasionally go out. When I would go see the people at the, in the hospital, for example, I did wear a collar at the time, and I would hold her hand. And no, you're would, talking about like an, S- an S&M collar? Or a... <laughs> no, oh. a clerical collar. Oh, I see. A clergy collar. Oh, I see. But people were so shocked because they thought, what's this priest doing holding hands with a woman? <laughs> and it, it offended them. Hey, by the way, yes, the, Pastor Conrad delivered the convocation, as you call it, <laughs> at, at last Friday's Zoom party. You couldn't uh, deliver the, the convocation, as I call it. What is it called? A benediction? It would be the invocation. The invocation. No. You delivered is usually at the end. You didn't ask me to do that. Okay. So you... You uh, delivered a, a little prayer at the top of our Zoom meeting. It was beautiful, yeah, and it really set the tone for, for the, the meeting. And then you told me that you couldn't make it to last Friday's Zoom meeting, so I asked Pastor Jonathan Conrad, and I put out an yes. open call. I said, let's get the Reverend scared that he's going to be replaced. Sure. Yeah. And Jonathan delivered a beautiful, beautiful opening prayer. And then I came up with an idea that you have kind of uh, said you don't like. David Feldman. Well, what is that idea? We might as well let everybody know what we're talking about. Okay. David Feldman presents America's Next Top Pastor. It's, yep. a, it's a reality competition where, pastor, where pastors compete to become a yeah. so, and we put these challenges in front of you. So, like, you have two hours to, to yeah. deliver the the last yeah. rites at a hospital, and then race yeah. across town in a beat up jalopy to do a funeral, and then a christening, and counsel a divorced couple. And we we keep throwing these obstacles in front of yeah. you. You know, flat tires and yeah. We hose you down, and we just see who is the most committed pastor. And it's, I think we could sell that. David Feldman <laughs> presents America's yeah, Next presents. Top. I think without David Feldman exactly. presents, this yes. thing would go nowhere. Exactly. You need I my name. I on Netflix where these couples, very uh, traditionally very attractive couples, uh, sit around for weeks and to get uh, some large amount of money, maybe $50,000, which I guess is a large amount of money for people of that young age, but you can't show any affection. You can't have sex. 
you can't kiss each other, you can't stroke each other, and uh, that's kind of the downside. Yeah. Well, what are the benefits? It's you know, boring. I don't watch it. You know, what I would watching other things. Right. I, I what yes. we have uh, a lot of people in attendance right now, and I'm okay. thinking down the line, since people can call in now, you should. Sure. Uh, Admit, you know, minister to them. Seriously, like people could ask you for for spiritual advice. They could, or even personal life. You, you do advice offer about that. Your families about. I, that's what I had intended to do before I got into all this activism about Vietnam, about civil rights about church-state separation, freedom of speech. I just assumed I would go to this seminary in Boston. I would come out and find a local church, and that's the way I would spend the rest of my life. But, you know, as they say, and the they is, who is they? In the film Amores Perez, it has a reference to a dog's life. There's a very famous line, often repeated, that when you think you are uh, living your life, um, <laughs> I can't remember the line. God has other plans. You think you're living, and God has other plans. And so don't plan too much because you never know what's coming. It's it Wasn't it man proposes, God disposes? Did Alexander Pope say <laughs> that? That was a different line. Yeah. Or, anyway, and, Amor is Paris. People should watch it. It's a very good film. And, and, very and, and John Lennon said, uh, life happens when you're busy making plans. Life, you know, he said that, but I think he may have gotten that from Amoris Paris. And my when mother. You're, you're making plans, God is laughing. Right. Oh, you're when you're making plans, plans God, God is laughing. God is so together, the two of us have managed to come up with one line said both by John Lennon and by a character in Amoris Paris. And my grandmother used to say, my grandmother used to say, don't brag, God is listening. Hmm. And so what does that mean? That God would be jealous of me or he's going to poison my good luck? <laughs> I would think he'd be jealous of me, right? Yeah, I do think though that it, it's possible. I don't want to, I don't want to get thrown off of here, but it's possible that your grandmother was incorrect. That in fact God is not listening, or or God is always listening, and therefore, even if you don't say, "I'm David Feldman," I am the greatest interviewer on the planet. If you think that, it's bad enough because he's going to catch on. Yeah. Now, amen. Yeah. That works better than make it snappy. I've noticed. I, I, I've amen. noticed that if you yeah. end a prayer by saying amen, you get better yes. results than, and make it snappy. <laughs> Too sweet. How often do you do this? How often do you have the occasion to um, say a prayer and have to figure out how to end it? Well, Amen, I believe, yeah. is the sun god. Isn't, doesn't that word come to us from the the Egyptians? Wasn't Amen like... Oh. No, you're thinking of one of 
you're thinking of Amon, one of the figures in Egyptian mythology. That's right. Nothing to do. Amen. No, I, 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 I think the reason no, we it say doesn't. no, it has no. no reference to. Okay. No, but one of your listeners is suggesting perhaps uh, that the Egyptian mythological figure I was talking about, who may or may not have actually been a king, was Amun Ra, R A. Right. So yeah. uh, people are passing notes. And not paying attention. Is that... I'm going to... <laughs> no passing notes. Well, you know, it's funny you should even mention this, because um, as I was thinking about what to talk about today, uh, a very interesting thing happened, and it does, in fact, relate back to Egyptian mythology. Porn? So we'll eventually get to that. Porn? No, not oh. porn. Well, no. let's talk... We're gonna yeah. we're gonna take some uh, questions from our listeners, Good. and Good. Uh, oh, and what you know. Hopefully, you'll come back and we can minister to them. Good. And we're gonna talk about the coronavirus. Have you heard about that? No. Mm. It's all the rage. We're gonna talk about. It's it's, it's kind of like the flu. I understand, just yeah. not as serious. That's what it actually was going to be over because um, we're in the. May and the president, of course, who is a reliable purveyor of medical information, said that uh, it, it would be warmer in April and certainly warmer now in May, and that it would be gone by now. So yeah. I, I'm, I'm in a laundry room. I don't see it. No, I don't, I don't see, you it see it. No, <laughs> I guess it's gone then, isn't it? Yeah, because if we can't see it, it's not here. How are politicians using the coronavirus for their own purposes? Instead of solving the problem, they're using it to create new problems. Well, they really are, and uh, in a couple of ways. You know, the hard right that doesn't believe that uh, there's anything to worry about from this coronavirus, which is not in my laundry room, but is killing a lot of people around the world. Some of the people in this movement have also decided this is a good opportunity for us to cancel the ability of women to obtain abortions. And so this is the argument they make. Abortion is not a mandated, you don't have to get it right away. It's basically the kind of medical intervention that can be postponed. Of course. And therefore it's not essential. And therefore, we, we, we can't allow you to do it. And they tried this in all kinds of it's states. Elective, it's an elective surgery. An elective sur- yeah, it's an elective surgery unless you need it, unless you're a woman who is getting close 10, 11, 12 months into the pregnancy. And then you have to get it done. And if you can't get it done because everything is considered elective, effectively you've been denied the right to obtain an abortion. And at this point in our constitutional history, you're still permitted to put certain impediments in the way of obtaining abortion, but not ones that are significant. So in the state of Alaska today, if you're a woman seeking an abortion, there is an order from the governor and the state health officials in Alaska, that it can only be done if you're imminently ab- about to die. 
that, and even the civil rights groups in Alaska have not challenged that. Of course, you need a plaintiff to do that. You need somebody who is in need, not theoretically, but actually in need to find a plaintiff to sue. But they have been successful. That is the ACLU and other organizations with whom I've worked over the years in Arkansas, um, Alabama, Ohio, Tennessee, Oklahoma, West Virginia, Louisiana, Texas, all these states had attempted to impose serious restrictions on the right of a woman to obtain an abortion, and uh, courts have ordered them to stop it and to allow these abortions to occur. So that's a dramatic change, and it's something that they got away with. You know, the anti-abortion people have never been, um, have never been at all quiet about what they ultimately want to do. When Roe versus Wade came down one day in 1970, uh, 71, I guess, um, they said, we're not going to stand for this. We're going to try to eliminate it. We're going to try to have it repealed. We're going to take the constitutional basis in which it represents that fetuses are not persons protected by the Constitution, and we're going to um, we're going to eventually repeal it. We're going to overturn Roe and put in serious restrictions once again in every state, and they have never stopped doing it. And when they realized that they couldn't do it in one fell swoop because they had people like uh, the more moderate members of the Supreme Court who were not there, like Justice Kennedy. Um, they were phoning it in. Well, they're phoning it in now. They're phoning it in. They phoned in a big case about contraception I'd like to get to shortly. But they uh, they phoned in, and as everybody knows, they also, uh, somebody had failed to turn off the, uh, their, uh, to mute themselves, and there was a toilet flush. So two things happened yesterday when they went to this procedure. Number one, really? Irons Thomas asked two questions. He's never done that before. And somebody flushed the toilet, and everybody heard it. Wow. I didn't know Were you that, that interested in that? Yeah. A lot of here at the fetish, I'm sure. People interested in just hearing toilets flush. Yeah. Not mine. Okay. Anybody? No, but that's interesting. I didn't know I that. The toilet flushing. Yeah. Um. <sighs> yes, but okay, that's one. The other thing is porn, because I know you're obsessed with this. And uh, I didn't know the Small Business Administration does not give loans to certain companies. So I, I went down, I checked out exactly what the language was so that I wouldn't make a mistake. And I, I happened to have uh, that written down somewhere. Here's what they said. The Small Business Administration has this new loan program. It's specifically barring loans to anyone who, this is their language, derives directly or indirectly more than de minimis, tiny, gross revenue through the sale of products or services or the presentation of any depiction or display of a prurient sexual nature. You can't get that. In other words, if you want to get a loan and you sell cigarettes, no problem. You want to 
sell people a lot of booze, no problem. But the government has decided this, prurient sexual materials and the people who perform for them are in them and sell them, you can't get a loan for that. And how serious is this? Well, at least 10 uh, adult stores, which are often also gentlemen's clubs, strip clubs, have now sued in order to obtain the possibility, not the guarantee, but the possibility that they could be awarded a small business administration loan. So even there, it never made any difference before, but now as a... Um, Ro Akana, who of course was one of the spokespeople for the Bernie campaign, did say a few days ago that he thought one of the things that was missing in all of the relief bills was any kind of relief for sex workers, prostitutes, people who were in... The people who give relief deserve relief. relief. They should get relief. Yes. And it was was controversial, but um, I think he's right. I mean... You know, these are these are people who they're not out they're not out in the street and they're not making films and why shouldn't they? We don't have a litmus test. I can understand if you don't give a small business administration loan to an illegal act, but most of these most of these sex workers are not engaged in anything that's actually illegal. Okay. So why shouldn't they be allowed to apply just like anyone else? Okay. Yeah. An argument could be made, but I won't make it. What? Well, go make it. I, I rather I rather have our attendees raise their hand. Although well, I noticed can... since you started talking about sex workers, people's hands are no longer raised. But. Uh, <laughs> National Day of Prayer, you say? Yep. There's a National, national Day, Day of Prayer was set in 1952 as a play. It was kind of a gift to Billy Graham, and it was designed to make it appropriate on the first Thursday of every May for there to be a National Day of Prayer. And there's a National Day of Prayer Task Force, which is not government-connected, but tightly tied in with the activities in Washington and at the White House. It's run by James Dobson's wife. James Dobson is the founder of Focus on the Family, Mm -hmm. one of the most important uh, religious right organizations in the country, and his wife, Shirley. And when I was at Americans United, we didn't like a National Day of Prayer because we didn't really understand why it was important for the government to tell people to engage in a specific religious practice. And at that time, and even on into today, yesterday, when, when the president had a White House ceremony in the Rose Garden about it, it's very Christian-focused. They wouldn't have any problem, as, as you often do, saying, Church of Christ, because they were talking about Jesus a lot today mm-hmm. in, in the strangest ways. So it's not that it's illegal. It's just that I've never understood why government officials need to tell people this is the national day of prayer. If you pray, you've already figured it out, and you probably have already prayed. You didn't need to wait for the president to stand up in the Rose Garden, introduce a couple of pastors, and and say, 
pray. And I've never understood. I, I rarely made this argument when I was, you know, employed by an actual nonprofit. But when I, when Lewis Black asked me once to do a rant at one of his shows, uh, I said, I, it was around this very time. And I said, what are you supposed to do in National Day of Prayer? Pray longer? <laughs> pray louder? Maybe pray about more things at once? Or maybe in this administration, pray in English only. I've never understood it. You and that? I sure didn't understand it watching Donald Trump, Mike Pence, and a bunch of pastors talk about it from the Rose Garden for an hour this afternoon. Yeah. They would be against the Latin Mass and speaking in tongues, right? They would be. No one spoke in tongues. But they did make an interesting argument. As you may know, there is a, a woman named Paula White who is um, an official in the White House now. She is a very hard right uh, evangelical minister, and uh, she's very popular. And today she was explaining something which goes back, goes back to Egypt. She said, and there's an understanding of this, if you speak something, there are Christians who believe that if you, for example, ask God out loud to do something, it will guarantee that it will happen. Uh, kind of like uh, that baseball movie where they say, uh, build it and they will come. A kind of magical thinking. And she she said that. And she, she had a couple of things that she, she specifically wanted. I've written them down. Now, this is asking God, not telling him. This is, this is tell. Well, the way she's sounded today, she was telling him, you will remove all COVID-19. You will. See, it's very, just, she's telling him what to do. Yeah. She's not acting like she's the vehicle, or the, the vessel for the words of God. She's telling him what to do. She and sounds she like also, his ex-wife, quite frankly. She sounds like God's ex-wife. Oh, God's ex-wife. I thought you were talking about one of Donald Trump's ex-wives. There, there's so many. It's mm -hmm. hard to know. But um, <laughs> it, the reason this is interesting is there is a series of, I think, a five-part series on a, on a streaming service called Shudder, which is all horror movies. All horror movies. And they have one that they just started a few weeks ago called Cursed. Well, this they actually have one. They, they actually have one for ex-wives called Shutter Up. But that's a whole other. <laughs> yeah, that's probably on another network. Yeah. Um, but anyway, it's called Cursed. And it's about all these rumors around films like The Omen and Poltergeist, where lots of people die during or after the filming of them. And therefore, they are assumed to be haunted movies. And uh, I was watching it last night, and one of the things they did when they were discussing the omen was to talk about how curses develop in Egypt. And it was if you said something, the words themselves were so powerful that they would make things happen. And then they showed a clip from the old 1932 The Mummy where there's an incantation done, and the mummy comes to life. And I couldn't help but think Paula White was kind of doing that this afternoon. Mm -hmm. Speak it. 
and it will happen, just yeah. like the Egyptians cursed and then woke mummies from the dead. <laughs> just a little movie tidbit to throw in to a conversation about sex. Porn? Porn. No. Oh. Let's no. take some uh, let's take some calls. Take some calls. Let us go to Mexico where Alicia is standing by. Hello, Alicia. Hi. Good evening or afternoon, whatever, whatever time zone. I, I wanted to talk. You, last time, I at least I was a part of a Zoom, you were going to talk about the Berrigan brothers. And um, I wanted to talk a little bit about um, the Catholic workers like Dorothy Day and the liberation theology. Uh, one of the reasons is, as everybody is sort of... Um, doing a post-mortem on what, what happened with um, the Bernie movement. Not that it's dead, I don't mean that, but we're looking back at what went wrong. I wanted to talk about the difference between really living and breaking bread with the people that we want to help and having a kind of high church approach of charity and lots of great intellectual ideas uh, not, I'm not saying that people on, on this particular show are like that, but part of the problem with the left is this um, conflation with neoliberals who have this very paternalistic view of the people they want to save. And, you know, we've reduced a lot of working class people to kind of the buffoonery of Homer Simpson. And you see a bunch of people who are trying to do something good for people that they don't want to spend any time with. I mean, I remember years ago when I was working for a, a radio station, I had to go cover Kenneth Copeland uh, at the, um, what's it called, Melody Land Anaheim Christian Center. And it was just this huge thing. And, you know, in my kind of smart aleck college way, I was all ready to, you know, take pot shots at him. And that's easy to do. But when I started to look around at the people that were coming to this, and it was free to get in. And it was one of those rare rainy days in L.A. And I noticed that there were all these homeless people, all these kind of marginalized people that my sort of high church folk might do charity for, but really don't really like. Or my college students, who we all talked about Marxism, but none of them were in our little circle of, uh, you know, boutique beers. Right. And I, I'm wondering about um, how we, looking at Dorothy Day and looking at that, we, the theories are great, but unless you're going to really be like Jesus and get there and share bread and share fish and, and be there, um, you know, it, it's really hard because I think a lot of people who are, who are working class, they, they feel, um, like we're condescending. I mean, I know David, you've pointed this out a lot about the kind of, paternalistic, you know, a way that, that Hollywood and the rest of it have looked at people like that. And then we wonder why they go for somebody like Trump. Well, I tell you why, because like Kenneth Copeland, at least he entertains them. You know, that's wow. really cynical. Right. But you know, there is this kind of thing. So I sort of wanted you to um, maybe talk about that and, and maybe encourage or challenge us um, as, as to how we can kind of do a, a, an examination of conscience ourselves <laughs> about how we how we are really looking at the people that we are seeking to help. That's a great point, Alicia. You know, in, in Hollywood, they can't wait to go to the homeless shelter to serve yeah. food, but they don't eat with them. Yes. 
That's, right. Or yeah. if they do, they share it at their cocktail party about how wonderful and how meaningful. I was listening to CNN and this woman was talking about how hard it was for this woman who brings them breakfast. And she's sincere. Let me, let's not get wrong. These people are sincere about how they want to help them, but they're not living with them. Right. So that's, that is the difference. And that's tough. I mean, that's a challenge to me as well. So I, I kind of wanted to maybe talk about how we can look at our movement from the bottom down. Uh, about breaking bread with people. Great, great, great point. Really great. Um, like Jesus washed the feet of the the, the poor, right? Forever. Absolutely. Because he didn't want them coming. <laughs> Don't come into my house until you wash <laughs> those yeah. sticky feet. No, but, I, but I think she's absolutely right. And, and you know, the labor movement and the... Uh, right at, at the beginning of the last century and on into the 20s and 30s, there was so much involvement by the Catholic Workers' Party, by Catholics like Dorothea Day. Um, who was she? Was, Explain who she was. Well, you know, I don't... Que sera, sera, that song? No. No, that's not... I think I can safely say that's not... But she, she Her son was, was friendly Catholic, with... Uh, uh, with okay. Morris Day. No, I was going to make no. a... No, don't. Okay, sorry. Go, Go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to... She worked and she lived with the poor and she was dedicated to that and doing exactly what uh, the caller was talking about, and that is uh, living with people. And workers, union organizers, they were the first people. They would criticize the preachers, you know, they who had, as they put it, pie in the sky, by and by. But... They, they did have lots of people, including members of the clergy, who were very active in the labor movement, who made sure that there wouldn't be another triangle waistcoat fire, who took on these issues and took on the big companies of the day. And uh, we have kind of lost that. Yeah. I, I, I also think it starts, I think, it's, I think it starts not just with eating with the disenfranchised, but living with them. You know, in France, you cannot build a luxury apartment in Paris without also making room for low-income housing. But it ha- it starts from the top. You have to force the the different economic classes to mingle with one another because it it lifts everybody up. It, it not it just doesn't lift the working the lower class. Or I don't like to call them the lower the. Uh, it lifts the upper class up spiritually, and uh, you know we we the problem in this country, and I think Alicia touched on it, is that you have Democrats who see two types of people: the the ones who go these these Democrats who go off to the Ivy Leagues, and they are then convinced that they're entitled, they're educated, they know more, therefore. They should be waited upon. It it breeds an elitism that the Democrats are left confused by. How can we be the elitists? We're well. You're you think you're smarter than everybody. That's why Trump gets away with calling you elitists. Let's go to Adon, whose name I. Hey, David. Um, I had a question, kind of like the last caller kind of pointed out about how we don't break bread with the 
with the poor. And I was thinking to ask the Reverend, um, if no one's willing to actually give up their lofty life, how they live and how great they're living, how do you expect the Democratic Party to ever move towards the left and be willing to help the less, uh, less fortunate? If everybody's feeling like they're all good and living in their great homes, they're never going to be able to actually want to break bread. Well, is it a zero-sum game, Reverend? Well, I mean, I'd be happy if most people were willing to pay for the bread so that others can decide who they're going to eat it with, but they won't even do that. You know, one of the things that this uh, crisis has, has developed uh, for everybody, Aiden, is uh, the ridiculous nature of saying, we can't afford that. Why can't we have more health care? We can't afford that. We have found ways to send trillions of dollars, much of it wasted, in these programs that make Democrats and Republicans, Republicans are kind of give up on, but Democrats should not be patting themselves on the head for passing any of these bills that manage to end up without sufficient protections so that you find, and whether you, you think um, Congressman Khan is right about sex workers, there are a lot of people that are not getting paid. There are more people who are waiting for that $600 in extra federal unemployment compensation that aren't going to get it and might not get it till the end of the summer. These are the things, if the Congress cannot figure out what restrictions and provisions to put into these bills and they just want to pat themselves on the back and I do I blame Bernie for this I blame Elizabeth Warren for this I blame Nancy Pelosi for this not AOC not AOC make it good what not AOC she voted against the last AOC and of course uh, you know from the beginning she has been saying what we really need to do is give money to people Maybe we shouldn't even worry about it if people are wealthy or not wealthy, because if they're wealthy, they'll we can put something into the law that will require them to pay income taxes on it. But let's get out of the paperwork. Look at the paperwork. Look at the number of people who are trying to get these small business administration loans and who find that, oh, no, it's all going to a cruise company. It's all going to a major food chain. It's not going to Manny and Olga's where I get my pizza. It's going to huge companies. And, you know, you got to work at these things. There's nothing magic about putting ideas onto paper and then having them passed unanimously by the United States Senate. If you don't care enough to hang around or to do your work while you're on your district work period, which has been going on for weeks now, then maybe you should find another job. Maybe you shouldn't try to say, I'm going to speak for the people in my district, but I represent also a respect for people all over the country. Then quit. Don't stay. Don't do it. If you're too lazy to do that kind of work, maybe you can sell hogs or automobiles. Nothing wrong with that, but don't say you're going to lead the country because you're not. Well, the the the, the most abhorrent thing about the CARES Act and these 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 bailouts, we're going to bail out the the small businesses, but we're going to have the banks 
disperse the, the funds. The same people who crashed the economy 10 years ago, we're going to trust with a trillion dollars to administer loans. And they're going to, they're going to be honest because they've really, we know how honest they were with the last bailout we gave them. They pocketed something like $20 billion in fees dispersing these loans. The Small Business Administration couldn't do it. The IRS couldn't do it. The, the Federal Reserve, they say, should just give all of us a bank account. And well, the Federal Reserve monies, of course, are vast in the numbers, have nothing that go along with no strings attached. I mean, that's even a pejorative term. I mean, there are restrictions on who gets the money and what you can do with the money. And uh, there are in some of these programs, but by the time you, you take the additional trillion dollars the Federal Reserve is starting to disperse, there are no restrictions against uh, – a sale of bots, uh, stock buybacks. There are no restrictions about not firing the people that work for your company. So that the whole thing is kind of a scam overlooked by Mnuchin, who is a terrible human being. Aside Golden from sense. being the executive producer of the Wonder Woman movie when he was still in Hollywood, this guy is a menace to mankind. Kamala Harris should have locked him up. When he was yep. foreclosing well, on homes he didn't own during the last <laughs> financial crisis. Absolutely. Well, she didn't. Maybe she, she didn't. was a little too interested in the parents who couldn't manage to keep their kids going to school that she wanted to lock them up. But yeah. that's old history. You know, if Kamala Harris is who Joe Biden wants to pick as his vice presidential and she'll have that baggage of people who never will forgive her for her criminal justice failings and what she actually did. But I'm going with that Biden whomever ticket. Yeah, the shadow government. The Democrats are the shadow government. Right now, yeah. we're saying what they have to offer as an alternative to Donald Trump. What are they offering? What is what is Joe Biden offering to us? What are the Democrats offering to us? Well, well, you know what my answer is. It's the Supreme Court. I mean, if we don't do something about the court, and I don't mean just hope Ruth Bader Ginsburg doesn't die the next time she's in the hospital. I mean, what are you going to do structurally to change it? You're a you lawyer. Never- I want to ask you this, and then we'll wrap it up. You're a lawyer. Okay, but no. you'll never get anything done. Okay. You will not get a Green New Deal passed. Okay. You will not get Medicare for all. Not anything close to it. Here's my because question. Here's ahead. my question about the because you are are you a member of the bar, the Supreme Court bar? Yes, I am. Okay. The cudgel used against us to keep us in line is vote for these lousy Democrats because we need the Supreme Court. And so we vote for these lousy Democrats, and if we're lucky enough for them to get elected president. The way they get elected president, we end up losing the House and we end up losing the Senate because the people don't come out for these lousy Democrats. Do you need the Supreme Court if you have a populist uprising in the House and in the Senate that can reverse, you know, F the the constitutional amendment to overturn Citizens United 
who who has decided that the Supreme Court has the last word on the on whether or not a bill gets to be law? And usually when they rule on something, they say you have to change the the language in the bill. If you had a truly progressive populist leftist Senate and House, couldn't they challenge the Supreme Court? Couldn't they say no? No, not easily. But the premise is that they were going to have an uprising of people who are uh, uh, running for the Senate and they're going to be populists. And we've seen what the populists do. They've done the same damn thing as a lot of other Democrats. They'll vote for anything just to get out of town. I'm losing so much respect for Bernie, for Elizabeth Warren, for the people who say we are so progressive. And then they vote for these terrible bills that are poorly implemented and would be better implemented, of course, if there was language to restrict what you could do with the money that was being distributed. Instead of just giving it to people who need it to pay the rent, they're worried about whether you can get a loan to keep a a three-person bake shop in business, and then maybe the money will trickle down. And if you don't fire too many people and you really don't, you, you get your loans forgiven. Just give it to the people in the first place. Yeah. The it's, Reverend. But, no, but you cannot, you cannot change the Supreme, the Supreme Court has extraordinary powers. It's going to eat away. Uh, I want to close on this, but it's going to eat away at the mandate in the Affordable Care Act that says you have to provide contraceptive services to all women in your employ. And we've already had bad decisions like those horrible Hobby Lobby decisions. But yesterday the Supreme Court is arguing about whether these groups affiliated in some vague way with religious organizations, uh, like Little Sisters of the Poor, which sounds like a really uh, wholesome organization, but it's a massive national chain of um, more or less adequate care facilities for older people. And they said we're not gonna we're not going to grant our employees, most of whom are not even Catholics, we're not gonna take our employees and give them contraceptives. And so the last administration said, Well, here's all you have to do, just sign a statement that says we cannot in good conscience provide contraceptives for our workers. And that would trigger the last administration, the federal government making it possible to get that that contraceptive coverage paid for. So what Little Sisters of the Poor said, this is the argument from yesterday, we don't even want to tell you that we're not giving contraceptives to our women employees because even that impinges upon our right as a religious organization. And that is nonsense. Nonsense. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn was the executive director of Americans United for Separation of Church and State from 1992 to November of 2017. Besides being an attorney, he is also an ordained minister in the United Church of Christ. I I pronounce it properly. Say it. Christ. Okay. And uh, follow him on Twitter at Barry W. Lynn. And I maybe we'll see you tonight at our 
Zoom office hours, maybe, and maybe well, next week we have some listeners who might want to come back next week and you would minister to them. We'll do whatever we do. Stay on the line, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. Thank you. Okay. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. Well, this is my favorite time of the week. It's the end of the week, perhaps the world, and that can only mean one thing. Listener questions with Liam McEnany, and we have a theme song, I believe. Go ahead, hit it. Listener questions. Without Liam McEnany. It's listener questions without Liam McEnany with Laura House. That's the new name of this segment. Listener questions without Liam McEnany, but we have Laura House. Listener questions. <laughs> listen to those questions. Listen questions. Get those questions now. <laughs> and Brian is a world class. If you can't tell by now, he is a world-class violin player and uh, plays with Oingo Boingo. And <laughs> we are so lucky to have you. It's one, one of the good things about this pandemic is you're not we, you can't go out in public right now. <laughs> You're, you're stuck at home. So we get you. We've heard about you. But now we see you and we get you. And we have listeners have been invited to attend this segment so that they can. <laughs> ask, this is going to be great. We can ask uh, we can ask Laura questions and raise your hand if you have a question. And if you would like to attend this Please contact me over at the David Feldman Show. But first, Emilio. Emilio joins us, I believe, from Queens. Yes, that's right, David. And you have been writing the minutes of our office hours on Friday night. You read the minutes of our previous meeting, and it was it was great. And so I figured we would start this segment by your reading of the minutes of last week's office hours. Okay. And Laura, you, you corroborate whether or not this is actually true or not. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you, David. Previously on office hours, we embarked on our near six hour journey with pastor Jonathan and Conrad, who gave an invocation where he prayed for all the basement masturbators and their severely calloused hands. True. Then 
Dr. Jennifer Verdelin and David discussed several different animal spirits, and a poll was conducted to see which animal the participants identified with most. A plurality stated they identified with the black vulture. Hmm. And it's no surprise that listeners of the David Feldman Show would identify with the vulture, since David himself is a renowned Woody Allen apologist. Yes, I am. Next, one of the participants introduced everyone to some wonderful goats, including one that had just given birth earlier that day and ate her own placenta. This prompted Dr. Vertolin to warn us, especially David, to not eat human placentas, no matter how good they taste. <laughs> True. The baby goat was also determined to be the greatest of all time goat. <laughs> Yes, it was the greatest Next. of all time goats. Yes. <laughs> wow. Next, since it was since it was May Day last week, Professor Harvey J.K. and Professor John Shelton spoke about the conditions that today's workers are dealing with, specifically workers at meatpacking plants, since they are in terrible conditions since the easing of regulations governing the meatpacking industry have hit workers hard over the years. And currently they are being pressured to work during the pandemic, even though it may mean exposing themselves to the coronavirus. True. That, that part wasn't funny. No, it wasn't, but it, it did take place at our after hours, office hours party. After this, there was a discussion of the fall of higher education among Dr. Verlin, Professor Kay, Professor Shelton, and Professor Ben Burgess. David posed the question, when did students become customers? Professor Kay stated it started in the 1970s, and Dr. Verdelin added that there has been a shift in the last five years of students being more hostile and aggressive towards teachers. Today's students seem to view college as a place to get a piece of paper that will allow them to get a job that will pay them enough to get by. And as a result, teachers are viewed as obstacles in their way, and they are treated as such. Laura, is that... Do you recall it being that way? You're, you're nodding your head. <laughs> this is this is for an audio podcast, Laura. Yes, this. Brian, yeah. do you remember it that way? We remember that that guy was called the pasturbator. <laughs> Who called him that's, the pasturbator? That's from like five minutes ago. Um, I don't remember. It was in. It was in the um, in the chat. The pasturbator. The chat, the chat that, is. Um, yes, we have. Yeah. <laughs> so that's a housey calling Pastor Conrad a pasturbator because yeah. Colleen Worthman calls my listeners basement masturbators, yeah. and Pastor Conrad has a secret crush on Colleen. Oh, okay. Yeah. The whole thing. So All he's right. a pasturbator. Go ahead, Emilio. Next, acclaimed comedy writer Colleen Worthman arrived and immediately made her presence known by handing everyone their asses. With regard to the terror reaccusation, she disagreed with the majority of the basement masturbators, 71% of whom believe Tara Reid. That was in our she poll. 71% of the people in attendance at last Friday's meeting believe Tara Reid. Interesting. Go ahead. She feels that Tara Reid is not only lying, but that she may be a Russian asset. She then accused the participants of being too woke to see the truth. Mm. This, is, this is true. This is very good, Emilio. 
Go ahead. Now, by the four-and-a-half-hour mark of the meeting, most participants <laughs> went into hibernation. Hang on, hang on. Wait, 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 wait. I, 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 I didn't hear what you – say that again, at the four-and-a-half-hour – what? I said, by the four-and-a-half-hour mark of the meeting, most participants' brains went into hibernation. Mm-hmm. So naturally, we began an extremely complex scientific discussion about the coronavirus. <laughs> Henry Hakamaki – very stated good. that if a human contracts the virus and survives, there's no evidence yet that the person will become permanently immune to it. Now, Henry went into great scientific detail about the virus, and I cannot possibly repeat what he said, but you can listen to this week's episodes of The David Feldman Show for further information. Okay. Finally, <laughs> at 1 a.m., we began the two-hour conclusion of the meeting. <laughs> which mostly consisted of a cacophony of noises ranging from David's usual bloviating mm-hmm. to people breaking wooden boards with parts of their body. Wow. And, and who can blame them since Oprah Winfrey once ran a marathon in less time than it took to have this meeting. <laughs> <laughs> it, also became, it also became quite clear that a number of participants were under the influence of alcohol or narcotics. Yes. Yes. Which was fitting since what was occurring on screen can only be described as a psychedelic hallucination. <laughs> and that, that was last week's office hours. Back to you, David. Oh, hang on. That deserves a uh, hang on. Hang on. Hang on. <laughs> Emilio, that is fantastic. Thank you. Uh, that is really great. I, and I waited till the end of the meeting for you to read. But we're going to start tonight's meeting with you reading those minutes again. And Laura, would you consider doing some meditation at the top of the meeting? Because we had a benediction from pastor, uh, the pastor. Would you consider doing like a meditation? Sure, yeah. How long would it take? I just know I, I we can just take a few minutes to do it. Just to, I can just show people what it is to meditate. They can do it longer on their own if they want. Okay. I just know I'm going to get roasted in the chat room. You should have heard people. Somebody called <laughs> Pastor Jonathan uh, Michael Bublé, which <laughs> is pretty on target. <laughs> He's great, though. He's a real pastor, and he's funny. There are bits, there are bits going on during the prayer. It's uh, This chat room is wild. It's wild. It's wild. Now, Barry W. Lynn, the Reverend Barry W. Lynn, delivered our first benediction, which I called a convocation, but he couldn't make it last week, so I asked Pastor Jonathan Conrad to do mm-hmm. it. And then I realized, well, wait a second. We have two pastors. Why not do a reality show? And oh. I pitch I pitched this to the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. I said, What about David Feldman presents America's next top pastor? Right. Yes. It's a competition between pastors from all over America. They come mm-hmm. to Hollywood to become America's next you okay? <laughs> No, I'm not okay. Brian's losing it over. Why are you losing it? David Brian Feldman David Feldman presents David Feldman presents America's next top pastor, and they compete to see who is America's top pastor. 
The yeah. miracle off. Uh, yeah, or a pastor. Robe, robe modeling. Uh-huh. And we send them out. They have competitions. They have to do a Relays wedding. Up and down the aisle of the church. Yeah, we, we give them challenges. Like you have to get to this funeral, then you have to do a baptism and a, uh, a funeral and a, you know, and somebody's, you gotta deliver the last rites over here. And we put all these obstacles in front of them mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. see who's up for it. You know, who can yeah. win? You don't think this would be great? Of course. We, we all think it's a great idea. David Feldman presents America's Next Top Pastor. Well, if you have questions for Laura, raise your hand. We have people who, uh, this is, this is where we, uh, we, we talk to our listeners and there, and we have a lot of people in attendance here. They're not quite raising their hand yet, but we do have people there. There's no, no one should have questions about me or just want to, you know, like, you know, Larry King had open phone America. I thought this would be, you know, we have people all over the world mm. in attendance, and this is their opportunity to get something off their chest. And I don't see any hands being raised last, <laughs> quite last yet. Friday, last Friday, uh, the whiteboard was mentioned for the housey, and Jonathan Conrad wrote, why has it got to be a whiteboard? Ah. It's just a fun chat. Yeah. They're just a few of the houses I picked up along the way. Okay, so we have uh, quite a number of people here, but they don't seem to want to uh, raise their hand <laughs> and ask a question. Let me remind you that at the uh, end of uh, the week, we, we answer listener questions. If you have any questions, go to davidfeldmanshow.com and hit the listener questions. Uh, oh, now I'm seeing people raising their hand. Whew. Uh, I'll do it in the in the order in which you raised your hand. Let us first go to Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Where are you uh, zooming from? You have to unmute yourself, Kevin. Oh, hold on, David. There I am. Okay. Let me just get my video started here. We don't have to see you. Oh, oh thanks. Hello. Hello, Kevin. Hello, guys. I just joined in. I was just making dinner, and so I think this is a really good part of the discussion. Like yes. everybody else, I love Laura House. She's fantastic. Oh, boy. You're the best one. <laughs> a question for you, Laura. Have you ever seen David Feldman as Feldo the Clown, either photographically or in a video? This is something I would like to see. I'd like to see it out in the world. You know, just a part of David's history that, you know, he's kind of, he's talked about, but we've never seen any video. We've never seen any pictures. Do you know about that? Have you seen any of that? I, I haven't seen it. I also would like to. I, yes. I would say that's on on par with seeing a, a Sasquatch. <laughs> like, that would be really, like. But I'm hairier. A big moment. Do you, when you looked at your storage facility, David, few months back, you finally went to L.A. Did you find any Feldo the Clown content in your storage uh, that you can share with us? Well, there is, there is, there are two Feldo the Clown costumes, and mm-hmm. they are in storage. I just don't know where. Uh, there, John Ross, who I invited to attend, can tell you the whole story 
of mm. the clown suit because an argument could be made that it was his idea. That, really? See, yes. Well, he, he was scheduled to. I was going to ask him that. Question. Yeah, he was. Yeah, he was uh, scheduled, but he had a bailout. Maybe he'll come back okay. in. Uh, maybe somebody can put a call out to him on Twitter to come in and tell the fellow of the clown story. But th- we're talking about 1984. Well, 84. 84. I, I came in 40th out of 40 for the San Francisco Comedy Competition, and I was so bad that John Ross said, you couldn't make an audience laugh if you wore a clown suit. <laughs> That's hilarious. And did your jokes and cried in front of the audience. And so you did it? Well, then Steve Kravitz and Billy J. Steve Kravitz and I went to a costume store in San Francisco, and we bought the Bozo the Clown costume. And I was opening for Billy J. at Foo Bars in Pleasanton, California, or Pleasantville. I think it was Pleasanton. That night, and I wore the the clown suit. I'm not making this up. I killed. I went up. And, <laughs> I went up in a bozo the clown suit, and Billy J was headlining. Steve Kravitz was middling, and I killed. And I never killed again in that costume. <laughs> but it spread. It became the stuff of legend, and I started getting booked based on this one night. And it it didn't work. Really? Yeah, I was stuck. In this effing clown suit for three you years. Did dress up three, three years. years. Yeah, three years from eighty four. I stopped wearing it by the end of eighty six. I said enough. So it was like two and a half years. Yeah, it was the best thing I ever went through. It was it was it was like basic training. Like the Marines break you down, they get rid of your ego, and I, I often look back at that as just being purifying because it was so humiliating but wow. there is no video of it somebody videotaped me once at the holy city zoo oh, i'd love to see that and i don't know wh- where that went there's some photos i used to be really ashamed that i did this uh there there are a lot of photos of me in the in the clown suit which i'll post on the website but uh yeah you must yeah but I love you. hearing about that because when I was starting, that was like the generation up. And like in Austin, we like worship San Francisco. Right. Like that, like that was such an epic contest. I love even just, even just hearing like the, oh, me and Steven Kravitz did this thing. Like it just seems like such a magical time of like San Francisco comedy in the eighties. Yeah. It was a great, yeah, it was a great time. Uh, I wasn't happy. I did meet my second wife wearing the clown suit, and we did live happily ever after until we stopped living happily ever after. And that that clown suit is cursed because I was an alcoholic, and my ex-wife, I was on the road, and she went to a costume party, and she decided to wear the the costume because I was no longer wearing it. I said, be careful, you know, this is going to be given to the Smithsonian. And she got really wasted. She said, there's something about wearing a clown suit that makes you want to drink wild turkey. And she wow. got, yeah, she got really wasted. I would just drink, you know. And that was your second wife? You had had an early first marriage? I've, uh, for legal reasons, I've had five wives. 
So for legal reasons, yes, we 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 don't want to. So go they there. couldn't testify against you. They're going to testify against me anyway. <laughs> Let's go to Ronan, who comes to us in from Great Britain via Ireland. Hello, Ronan. It's Ireland via Great Britain, but yes. What did I say? Great Britain via Ireland. So I am Irish, but I live in London. Yes, it's good to see you again. And somebody has a crush on you. I can't imagine this. I was reading the chat. Yeah, I, I read the chats. And really? I, so I fell asleep. So um, if this person is out there, uh, I don't know of them. Yeah, well, she said, uh, wanted to know if Ronan was single and all that. But go ahead. What, what is your question? It's open I phone America. I like, Laura, I like having somebody from Great Britain. And it's we call this open phone America. <laughs> yes. Go ahead. I, I have no question. I'm really just taking the opportunity to, uh, you know, talk to you when it's not uh, five in the morning here, because uh, most of the time I'm uh, I'm near slumber by the time it starts. So uh, I figure I'll just get my time in now when it's still uh, relatively reasonable. This is an opportunity for you to talk to an American who yeah, runs a, a a show for the BBC, Laura oh, House. Yes, yes, yes. What's the name of it again? See, I don't have a TV license, I should say. It's called The Secret Life of Boys. This is one poster. This is audio, Laura. Laura, (laughs) it's audio. It's called The Secret Life of Boys. And you know why the the British are better than we are? You need a license to watch television. And you can get the license taken away from you. What? Yes, if you're watching, like, too much Dallas and uh, too much... Wheel of Fortune, they will come and they will take your license away from you. I hadn't heard that. You you need a license to watch TV in Great Britain, right? Yeah, you when, you need you need to buy uh, a TV license that lasts for a year. It's, I think it's two hundred and fifty pounds or so. I'm not exactly sure. And how does it work? You you they give you a, you have to go get your eyesight checked to make sure you can watch TV. <laughs> get your hearing checked. Is there a a test? Yes. If it worked the way you Your said, and you got it taken away for watching, you know, garbage, that would be fantastic. But uh-huh. unfortunately, that's not the case. It's more that you just you buy it at the start of the year, and uh, that means you can watch, you can have a TV. There's no real ch- checking process. Like, someone might show up at your door and demand to come in and see if you have a television. Now, I would assume, Laura, Laura House, you've worked in... Imagine that job. You're a TV cop. Like, we kind of laugh at bicycle cops. <laughs> Just imagine, you're like, what's my assignment? Am I going to bust perps? You're a TV cop. Oh, man. Do you know how fast you were, do you know how fast you were spinning the channel? Yeah. Do you know how fast you were watching Fleabag? Yes. (laughs) I would assume, Laura, because he said TV license, and I haven't heard that expression, but I do know that they have to pay to watch TV. I would assume every American comedian who goes to London, does this bit. Right, Ronan? I would assume this is not the first time somebody did jokes about a TV license. I, I, I've not heard it before. In Ireland, you need one. In England, you need one. I um, I didn't know that you didn't need one in America, though. It's not surprising. But I would assume the comedians all make jokes about the TV license. I've never... I've never I've, it's, not, it's, not, um, it's not something that comes up. Okay, I have to get booked in London to do you my... Are? What, Brian, what are you what are you, what are you saying, Brian? Go ahead. I'm saying do you have to get a temporary one if you're just visiting. <laughs> now, do you watch um, TV on the other side of the couch over there? <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. 
yeah. that's a great question from Brian. Um, I don't know what what happens when you're just visiting. There are some weird rules about watching TV on your phone. Like you, if you're if you're out and about and you watch a lot, you're watching streaming TV. You have to have a license for your for your address. But if you're in somebody else's house, you it it's if they have one or not. So like it depends on where you are. It applies to your telephone if it's your phone, but it depends on where you are if it if it if it's valid or not. Right. And there's one wow. rule which I don't know what it is. Is like it only it only counts if your phone is plugged in charging, and if your phone is not plugged in, <laughs> it doesn't count. It's some bunkers rule. I don't think anybody really follows them, but that that's is so a, wild. A, yeah. yeah it is. You know, the remote, as long as we're doing hackneyed bits, you really, I think women are better TV watchers than men. When we go to the bathroom in packs, that's what we're doing in there. We're watching. <laughs> no, I'm, I don't want to do cliches, but it, you don't? no, but I it do think, like <laughs> I do think women find a show and they lock in on it. They're monogamous with TV shows. Whereas men keep thinking something, I, I, I'm going to keep flipping around till I see a show with bigger breasts and nicer JS legs. JS just wrote Real Housewives of Restrooms. <laughs> That's a housey. <laughs> what did say that? Say, give me your house. Real Housewives of Restrooms just came up. Oh, do you find Brian and Laura, do you find that Brian doesn't lock into a show, whereas you will find something? And just watch it. You're, you're, no, you will commit to a show. This weird stereotype. No, women aren't monogamous with TV shows. Like you wait until you find something you like, and you grow tired of it, and you move on to the next one. You call that old TV show a dumb a hole, and find a better <laughs> one that has more money and a cooler car. Are we talking? What are we talking about? I don't know, but this is great. You like to browse more than select. I don't know. I mean. Oh, I guess he will browse. I guess he will browse a ton. I just don't want you to be right about anything. I have a wandering TV eye. I guess is what. You wow. Mean. Yeah. Although almost every time I go, it so the first two years we were together, living together, pretty much any time I walked in on him watching TV uh, by himself, it was Mash, and now it's Dog the Bounty Hunter. <laughs> so he wow. has. Extreme loyalties, you know, okay. the mash is, what is that, a 40-year loyalty that, yeah. <laughs> that show? Yeah. yeah. All right. Uh, I'm going to bump Ronan, and if you have a question, if you would Good like. Good meeting you, Ronan. Yeah, thank you, Ronan. And I'll find out. You. I'll look for the chat. There's some woman who has a crush on you. Uh, if you have a, we have a lot of people here. If you have a question. For Laura House, while I'm waiting for you to raise your hand, I will go to listener questions because people write in. Some of my, you know, some people can actually write. Listener questions, asking all those questions. <laughs> listener questions, gotta ask me now. Wow. Wow. Okay. So let's. We this all day. Let us first. Uh, for dinner. Have you been outside, by the way? Not in a couple weeks. <laughs> Seriously. Uh, have we been outside? He's been outside. I haven't been outside today. I, I went for a walk last night. Feels I don't go outside much. <laughs> okay. This is uh, comes to us from Yasser Ali. 
And his brother, of course, is no Sir Ali. And his question or comment, and I'd like Laura to respond to this. He's located in India. I want to clarify, Mark Breslin, that it was not Prime Minister Bhutto, but our Prime Minister, India's Marahi Desai, who experimented with urine therapy. Although he is nuts, he lived up to 99. He lived to be 99. So Mark Breslin said that Prime Minister Bhutto spoke about drinking his own urine, but apparently it was... uh, Prime Minister Moraji Desai, who drank his own urine for health reasons. And well, on that, Dan, Dan F. decided to take a drink. <laughs> <laughs> Dan F. is like, oh, that makes you tasty. <laughs> <laughs> of what I'm assuming is not urine. It's worse. It's, uh, it's like a nice Cosmo. It's a, it's a quarantini. It's a quarantini. Uh, Uh, You don't drink, Laura, right? Why does someone drink their own urine? That's all. That's the thing that's important. Whoever it was, as long as someone did it. Okay. I don't drink. Is that what you said? You don't drink alcohol, right? Oh, they froze. You froze. Yeah. Who froze? Who's frozen? Okay. Uh, Let us now go. We have uh, a question from Vince. He says, I apologize, I sent the wrong video earlier. I watched Dr. John Campbell for daily briefings on COVID. Thailand came up as a good example. Here's a video where he talks about Thailand and how changing practices, cultural practices, awareness can slow down the spread. Uh, Thank you, Vince. Stay safe. Okay. Uh, We'll look at the video. This one comes to us from James, and he is, he says, the show is long enough that I recognize he could share all the information, seriously, every bit of information. I think I'm getting chat questions. These are not, uh, let's go to, uh, let's go to JS. JS? Hello, JS. You have a question for Laura House? I do. Um, hi, Laura. How are you? Hi, I'm good. Um, How are you, JS? I'm doing well. Thank you. Um, so working on a BBC show, do you, um, are you the showrunner? Is that, am I, is that correct or is it? I am. Yeah. They say lead writer. Okay. So so do you do that? Um, do you travel over there or do you work with them remotely from, um, this side of the pond? What's been great is it's, it's mostly, um, uh, long distance. Like we, uh, and then I went over for a couple of years. I had gone over for a couple of weeks, uh, before I was the showrunner for a couple of weeks for a punch up, um, two weeks to after all the scripts were written, two weeks and we would, it's 10 scripts. We take one a day and punch it up. The writer's fortnight, we called it very charmingly. Um, and then, uh, last summer I went, the, the shooting is done near Belfast. So I went to Belfast for a little bit for that. There are a lot of shootings that used to take place in Belfast. Oh, hey, hey, um, (laughs) um, I'm sorry. I I just, the conversation drifted away from me and I try to bring it back to my ego. I get it. 
Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but this year, so we started in um, December. So it was like a Skype call, and we all pitched in ideas, and then I sort of chopped them into episodes and assigned writers their scripts, and then it was a lot of, like, emails and every now and then some phone calls. Um, and then I would have, had there not been pandemic-y, I would have been in London. I would be on my way to Belfast now for three months for wow. shooting. Wow. Yeah, but mostly long distance, which is amazing. I've loved it. Wow. I would love cool. to work in Great Britain. Yeah. I, I wish I knew a showrunner who's, who's got work in Great Britain. I, yeah. I, do you I think hear you. I hope you. hope you meet one. Somebody who I've kind of nurtured when he, he or she might have been starting out. In, yeah, in that'd a, be great. Yeah. And, That'd be uh, great if you had that. Yeah, and, and, and maybe she would, you know, as they say, pay it forward. That's uh, what the kids are saying, pay yeah, it forward. That'd be pretty cool. Yeah. She's gone on to bigger, or he <laughs> has gone on to bigger things, you know, maybe running a show and I don't know. Oh, are you talking about me? You? I don't know. I, I wasn't paying attention. Are you running a, a show somewhere? I am. All what, the writers are set, though. Sorry. What kind of nightmare do you think it would be? I just sort of inherited it. What? 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 What do you think the nightmare would be if you're running a show and you hired me? How bad would the room get? Do you think? Um, I, I don't. I don't think it would be bad. I mean, <laughs> oh, some DNF is taking the elevator down. Um. I, I don't think it'd be bad at all. For one, there's not a room, so it's fine. Uh, yeah, I think I think it'd be fine. I think it would go something like this. Hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Laura House, and I'm the boss. And we're going to be working late today till two in the morning. They're not we happy. We're on our own. There's no room. This is you, this is me working for you, and I'm in the room surrounded okay. by these uh -huh. hopeful twenty-somethings. And you say, by the way, we don't have any vegan food to order. We're going to have to order some greasy cuisine. And you hear, and you'll go, who said that? Yeah. David, was that you? No, no. Was that your vegan wine? No, no. And I would just ruin the meetings because I. Um, all right. Then you're fired. Okay. I'm fired. All right, let's go on to listener. If you have listener questions, go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit listener questions. By the way, my site was down for a week. Oh. It was like on and off. There was something. <laughs> it was, and, Ronan was on a tear. Huh? Ronan is on a tear in the chat room. Was, oh, he's what's he saying? How does everyone feel knowing we're all just fake people in David's head? <laughs> he had also said, come on, Laura. And I'm like, well. What that I I am coming on. This comes to us from an egghead professor in Texas. Oh, good. He says, I did not watch the Morning Joe segment with Joe Biden, but I have watched the clips. This is him talking about Tara Reid. I think there is an interesting tell in his response. He says it never happened, but then at least three times says it was or happened 27 years ago. That's right. I think that is telling. If you were accused of something horrible in your past, would you continually cite the exact year of the thing that didn't happen? I think you say something like this. 
this is something that never happened, that she says happened 27 years ago. He's right. He writes, I am, I'm, I'm, am I crazy to notice this or is it obvious? What a bind this puts the Democratic Party in. It's just terrible. Yeah, well said, egghead. Yeah, I mean, he's the worst, Joe Biden, the absolute worst. Um, yeah. Okay. Okay. You, that's my feeling. It seems um, like there are worse. Candidates? I mean, absolute worst. For the Democratic Party to run than Joe Biden. It does seem like a, a bad, weird move. It's it, sometimes the Democrats behave. Uh, th- there's a real like um, hands over the ears, like like Pee Wee Herman, like blah blah. Like they're just like as if Trump hasn't happened. Like as if it's 15 years ago. Like as if Bill Clinton was just in office and. Democrats are well-liked and that that's just the world that some of them live in. And they seem to proceed from that. Like it's the weirdest thing that they're just like refusing to acknowledge, um, you know, the reality of what's happening. It's very strange. Yeah. We have to wrap it up, but (laughs) Forrest, Forrest writes, Hey David, long time, first time. This is so funny. I take care of my 93 year old great grandmother. And my question is, do you think you can ask whatever retirement home you're broadcasting from where they got that floral chair? I think she'd love it. <laughs> there was another comment that just happened about that chair. Can we do a poll on how ugly David's chair is? Yeah, well, we have to wrap it up, but that's so funny. There's I, questions, asking all those questions. All right, Laura House, how do people follow you on Twitter? At I'm Laura House on Twitter and Instagram. Fantastic. Thanks for having me. Mouth Punch is the name of your comedy CD, correct? Yeah, Mouth Punch is my comedy album. It's available on all the platforms. And I'm also doing a meditation podcast called Will You Med With Me, where you can med with me. And I'll show you. Tonight at 9 p.m. Eastern at our after hours office party, whatever we call it, you'll start the meeting with a little meditation, right? Sure. Okay, great job. Thank you, Laura. Very funny. Bye. You're listening to The David Feldman Show, you happy, self-actualized hump. 